Welcome to Choice Classic Radio, where we bring to you the greatest old-time radio shows. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, and thank you for donating at choiceclassicradio.com. And now... The Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the series of radio dramas dedicated to the supernatural, the unusual, and the unknown. Come with me, my friends. We shall descend to the world of the unknown and forbidden, down to the depths where the veil of time is lifted and the supernatural reigns as king. Come with me and listen to the tale of The Automaton. Over here is what I call its brain. Put the power on, Elizabeth. Yes, Father. I've only begun on the binary system, but watch. Why, it's moving. It's sitting up. Yes. It's getting down off the table. And now you'll see a sight that no one else has ever seen before. It's walking around the laboratory. Yes, you're witnessing the first movements of a new creation, superior to man in that it will never tire, a servant to man, for that will be its place in the future. A machine that looks like a man and will be able to think like one. Fantasy will present the automaton in just a moment. The automaton. I first met Dr. Eric Ziegler at the conference on scientific research. I knew of him, of course. His name was famous throughout the world as one of the foremost experts on automatic control. It was the closing session of the conference when he made his now famous speech. And in conclusion, gentlemen, may I say that mankind can expect his technological advance to continue. He can look forward to the future in the secure knowledge that his life will become easier and longer through the advances we make. That he will be free to direct his energies towards the conquering of new frontiers, bringing him closer to the day and he will stand alone over all the universe. Bravo! His speech so aroused me that I couldn't help making my way to the speaker's platform, pushing my way through the crowd which surrounded him in order to congratulate him. Congratulations, Dr. Ziegler. Dr. Ziegler? Uh, Yes, yes. My name is Drake Sheridan. I just wanted to tell you I thought your speech was the best thing I've ever heard. I take that as a compliment coming from you, Dr. Sheridan. I know about your work. Oh, nothing at all compared to yours, sir. Dr. Sheridan, I'd like to talk to you further. Why don't you come to my house this evening? What time? After dinner, about 8.30. Here's my card. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, You'll be there? Of course. I'll see you then. Yes? I, uh... Came to see Dr. Ziegler. Oh, your name? Drake Sheridan. Oh, yes. He's been expecting you. Won't you come in? Thank you. Just follow me. Was the most interesting effect of all, 
a new paragraph. Uh, the success of the automaton of which I am speaking is uh, dependent upon the excellence of the brain I can give him. Uh, my work has become so... Dr. Sheridan is here, Father. Oh, oh, excuse me. I, I do hope you'll forgive me, Dr. Sheridan. Of course, sir. I was dictating my report on a project on which I am now working. Please be seated. And before I forget, this is my daughter, Elizabeth. How do you do? My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, drink, perhaps, Dr. Sheridan? Yes, I uh, I could stand one. Yes, any particular preference? No, no. Uh, would you do the honors, Elizabeth? Of course, Father. Uh, <clears throat> Dr. Sheridan, perhaps you're wondering why I asked you to come here. I uh, have been, but... I consider it a privilege and an honor to be here. <laughs> Thank you for the compliment, but it wasn't necessary. You may be interested to know that I've followed your career quite closely. And from what I've gathered, you're a very intelligent young man. Well, thank you, Dr. Ziegler. I'm not complimenting you to make you feel comfortable, Dr. Sheridan. I mean what I say. Exactly why did you ask me here, Dr. Ziegler? Uh, to talk to you. To see what kind of a person you are. And here are your drinks. Oh, thank you. Thank you, my dear. That's just right, Elizabeth. Yes. Uh, Dr. Sheridan, I'm going to be completely frank with you. I am working on a private project financed with my own money, completely divorced from my work at the Research Institute. Mm-hmm. My daughter has been helping me with this work, but unfortunately she does not have the knowledge nor the training to be of anything more than elementary assistance. I see. I am interested in finding an assistant who will devote his full time with me to the work I am doing. You mean you intend to leave the Institute? Yes, yes. My work is finished there, and besides, I want to devote more time to this particular project of which I'm speaking. What's the nature of your work? Automatic control, of course. Uh, would you be interested in working with me? It's a great honor, sir. I will make it worth your while. Well, I'd like to know exactly what you're working on before I make any decision. I believe I can trust you. I, I have a building some miles outside of the city which serves as my own personal research laboratory. Uh, we might as well drive out there. That is, if you're interested. Why, well, certainly am. Uh, good, good. Uh, Elizabeth, get the car from the garage, please. We'll drive out tonight. Well, you certainly have it well equipped, Dr. Ziegler. I wanted to show you that you would be working with only the finest of equipment. What's that? Oh, that's the watchman. It's nothing to worry about, Bart. Oh, it's you, Dr. Ziegler. I didn't hear you come in. It's all right. We'll check out with you when we leave. All right, sir. Uh, will you open the door, Elizabeth? Of course. All right, let's go in. I'll put on the lights. Now you'll see what I've been working on for the past year. But... Sheet-draped figure on the table over there. What is it? My newest research project in automatic control. But what uh, you'll see, you'll see. It looks like a human body underneath that sheet. Not quite. Here, I'll pull back the sheet. No, it isn't a human body. That's correct. What do you think of it, Sheridan? What do you think of my automaton? Is it finished? Not yet. But soon, with your help... A mechanical man. 
A robot shaped exactly like a human being. What better form could I give him? After all, our own bodies evolved to what we are today. Why should I attempt to improve on nature? What do you intend doing with, with him when you finish? Tell him, Elizabeth. Well, this automaton will be able to do all of the hard and painstaking work of mankind with, without ever getting tired. It can fight his wars. It, it can be the first to explore outer space. It can free mankind to direct his energies to, to other channels. I don't know. Oh, come, come, Sheridan. You look at the automaton as if you thought he was some Frankenstein monster. Believe me, this is the farthest thing from that imaginary creature. This is a work of science. This is not a monster created from the dark recesses of someone's imagination. This is our key to the future. We'll return to the Hall of Fantasy and the tale of the automaton in just a moment. Back now to the Hall of Fantasy and the tale of the automaton. Dr. Eric Ziegler, his daughter, and I stood looking down at the metallic figure lying on the table before us. In all respects, it resembled a man, a metal and plastic man, created by the genius of Ziegler. This is our key to the future. This automaton will free man from labor. Let him develop his mind to the fullest. How much longer do you think you'll have to work before it's finished? I can't tell. That's why I need you to help me set up the automatic self-regulation of its brain. Then you haven't developed the system of feedback yet? No. As you are aware, that is the basic machine of all self-regulating systems of automatic control. A man's mind is a complex creation. The mind of the automaton must also be complex in order that it can do the work of a man, in order that it can think and regulate itself. Why don't you show him what you've accomplished so far in the feedback system? All right. Now, over here is what I call its brain. Uh, put the power on, Elizabeth. Yes, Father. I've only begun on the binary system, but watch. It's sitting up. Yes. It's getting down off the table. And now you'll see a sight that no one else has ever seen before. It's walking around the laboratory. Yes. You're witnessing the first movements of a new creation, superior to man, and that it will never tire, servant of man, for that will be its place in the future. A machine that looks like a man will be able to think like one. I shall return him to the table now. It's climbed back up on the table. And it's lying down again. All right. Turn off the power, Elizabeth. Well, Sheridan, what do you think now? I'm afraid I don't know what to think. Will you work with me? I... Oh, yes. Who wouldn't jump at the chance? Of course I will. Good, good. You understand, of course, that the feedback system and the binary scale are still in their elementary stages. When the brain, the, the automatic control, is finished, it will fit inside the automaton's body and head. That's correct. There will be controls on the robot's chest to set the automatic control to working, and another to stop the machine if it needs to be repaired. Of course, our largest task will be to develop a complete automatic self-regulatory system to fit inside the robot's body. As soon as you can be free... Which should be in about two weeks. Good. 
Then we shall begin work on the final stages that will lead to the completion of the automaton. Rather than completely sever my relations with the organization for which I worked, I took an extended leave of absence. There were living quarters in the laboratory in the country. Ziegler shut down his house in the city, and he and his daughter and I moved our belongings to the laboratory in order to devote every possible minute to our work. Not only was Ziegler intent on having the automaton think for itself, but he was also insistent that the robot be able to talk. To those ends, we went to work. If we were right in our calculations, the amplifier and receiver we have built into the mechanism will convert our words into electrical impulses, which in turn will activate a response from the automaton. Those responses themselves will be electrical impulses, which will be converted into words. Well, why don't we try it and see, Eric? We might as well, I suppose. After all, the automatic control is almost finished. We only have the more complex reactions to set in the binary scale. All right. Turn the control on his chest. Right. It's on. We'll see what happens. I order you to sit up. Uh, jump down to the floor. I want you to answer me with your voice. Uh, what have you been created for? To kill. That's not the right reaction. What was that? Correction. To work. That's right. Must have made a mistake somewhere along the line in the reactions we set up. That to kill value is present for only one situation for personal protection. I thought you'd come up and. What are you doing? Well, we're just conducting a test. Woman. That's correct. Woman. Stay back. Stay away from me. Elizabeth, be quiet. He wasn't going to hurt you. I, I'm sorry. Started toward me, frightened me. You see, he stopped now. There's nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Get back. Back to the table. Lie down again. Turn off the control, Drake. Right. What's the matter, Elizabeth? You're shaking. I... It's just that that thing frightened me so. It those lenses that it has for eyes. There's there's something hypnotic about them. He looks so much like a man. I, I know he's made of plastic and metal, but but well, I fear him. Elizabeth, there's no sense getting emotional about this. There's nothing to be afraid of. I know you're right, Father, but but what? But what would happen if you ever lost control of the automaton? That will never happen. But is it possible? Hmm? Perhaps. We didn't do any more work on the automaton that day. We went into the city in the early evening to see a play, leaving the watchman at the laboratory to take care of things. We got back about twelve and were having a late snack. More coffee, Drake? Oh yes, <clears throat> please. I think it did us good to get away from here this evening. We've all been working too hard. 
Uh, do you feel better now, Elizabeth? Oh, yes, Father, much better. Yeah. Tomorrow we can finish up with the automaton. Then we can show him, after suitable tests, of course, to the world. Uh, if we're successful, you ought to win a prize. What was that? Someone screamed. It came from upstairs. We'd better take a look. Who could it have been? The only other person up there is Bert the Watchman. Hmm. There it is again. Hurry. Look. Huh? The door to the laboratory is... It's open. He must be in there. The lights are on. We'll see what's wrong in a second. All right. Oh, oh no. It's Bert. What's the matter with him? His neck's been broken. He's dead. But how? I don't know, only... What's the matter? Look, we turned off the control on the robot when we left, didn't we? Of course we did. Why? Because... Because now it's on, Eric. The control is on. You are listening to the tale of the automaton on this week's journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to our story. An original tale of fantasy entitled, The Automaton. On the floor of the laboratory sprawled the broken body of Bert, the night watchman. A scant few feet away, I stood looking down at the inert form of the automaton. Before we had left the laboratory... We had turned off the control, and now we found it on. But that isn't possible. Take a look for yourself. The control is on. But we turned it off before we left. Are you sure? Of course, I turned it off myself. How did it get on? Perhaps Bert turned it on. Why should he do that? Perhaps he was curious. But the most important thing to find out is what killed him. The robot. Don't be a fool, Elizabeth. The robot won't kill unless attacked. That's right, Elizabeth. It's the only reason for it to kill. Actually, the reaction was set in the control system for self-preservation. For no other reason than that. It's the only time the automaton is dangerous. Maybe you made a mistake when you set the automatic controls. It's possible that we might have made an error in the feedback system, Eric, and that the automatic selector chose the wrong value. When Bert turned the switch on, the robot thought he was in danger and killed him. We didn't make an error in the feedback system, Drake. We checked each value through five times before we placed it in the server mechanism. You know that as well as I do. Then, then how did Bert die? I don't know. Did you hear what it said, Eric? Master of men. We didn't set that reaction in the servo mechanism. Something's wrong. Do you mean the automaton can can think for itself? What about it, Eric? We'll dismantle it tomorrow morning and check it over thoroughly, just to be sure. What about Bert? We'll merely explain to the authorities that he died in an accident here at the laboratory... We can do that in the morning, too. Now we all need a good night's sleep. 
Don't you think we ought to move him out of here? Well, they may want to look at his body, Elizabeth. Besides, nothing more can happen to him. Elizabeth? Who is it? Drake. What are you doing up here on the second floor outside the laboratory? I... I couldn't sleep. Oh. Well, neither could I. Drake, do you think that... that the robot can operate by itself? Why do you ask that? I was thinking. What if... what if Bert was merely making his rounds? What if he walked into the laboratory... And the robot was there, waiting for him. Well, that's... that's not possible, of course. I wouldn't say that. Isn't... isn't it possible that you and Dad might have made a mistake in setting up the feedback system? Isn't it possible that... that there could be an error in the automatic control system that would allow it to operate without being switched on? Operate enough to at least turn the operating switch on? Well, it's, uh, it's possible that there's something comparable to a short in the control system, which would mean that the robot could operate without the control being on. Yes. I want to go in there and take a look at it. Why don't you wait until morning? No, I, I want to see it tonight. All right. Let's go. Are you... Sure you want to go inside? Yes. Switch on the lights. Mm -hmm. Everything seems to be all right. Let's take a look at the automaton. Every time I see it, it... It frightens me. There's nothing to be afraid of, Elizabeth. I'm not so sure... Button is still off. Wasn't he lying the opposite way? With his head at the other end of the table when we left? No, I don't think. Where's that hum coming from? I don't know. It sounds like the robot's power system. If the control button is off. Are you sure? Let me get a little closer to it. Well? The hum is coming from the automaton. That means I was right. I guess you... Drake! Huh? Look out! Master of men! The system is on! It, it's sitting up! To kill! To kill! We made a mistake. We must have made a mistake. It's getting down! Let's get out of here! Is, is it following us? No, it's just standing there. But it will be after us in a few seconds. Hurry, hurry. Let's get this door closed and locked. There. I can see it through the glass panel. It's starting towards the door. I heard some noise up here. What's the matter? The automaton's in operation without the control being on. What? That's right. We must have made a mistake, Eric. The, 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 The only thought that thing knows is to kill. We have to destroy it. It's getting closer to the door. That door won't hold. Let's get out of here. It has to be destroyed. But how? It weighs over half a ton. I think I have it. Stop here by this window. 
Oh, another crash against that door and it'll be out of the lab. What are you going to do? Its reactions are slower than ours. We'll wait here for it. It'll come walking towards us. At the last minute, we'll run to the side. I don't think it'll be able to stop itself in time. It should crash through the window and to the ground below. The two-story drop should destroy it. The door is down. I hope your plan works. And if it doesn't? Then we'll have to think of something else. Here it comes. It's coming up and down the hallway for us. Over here! Over here! It sees you. Here it comes. Don't kill. Don't kill. It's getting closer. When do we move away? Not yet. Master of men, kill all men. It's only a few feet from us. How soon? In a moment. To it's destroyed? Yes. The fall completely destroyed the automatic control. You're looking at nothing but a pile of metal. What do you intend doing? Starting all over again. Somewhere along the line, we made a mistake. We have to find that mistake and correct it. We don't want a master of men, but a servant of men. Someday, I don't know when, but someday, we'll be successful. And then one of mankind's most useful servants will be the automaton. So runs tonight's tale of the unusual, the terrifying, the unknown. Join us again when next we journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy to hear another strange tale of the supernatural. All characters and events portrayed in these programs are fictional, and any similarity to actual events or persons living or dead is purely coincidental. Broadcasting System presents The Mysterious Traveler. Written, produced, and directed by Robert A. Arthur and David Colvin. And starring three of radio's foremost actors. Brett Morrison, Joyce Gordon, and Leon Jenny. In Fire in the Sky. journey into the realm of the strange and the terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip. 
that it will thrill you a little and chill you a little. So settle back, get a good grip on your nerves, and be comfortable, if you can, as we join two young people who find themselves in the strangest situation human beings ever encountered. It's the story I call Fire in the Sky. driving along a lonely road in the Shenandoah Valley. The driver is young, in his 20s. So is the girl beside him. They're Mr. and Mrs. Nicholas Ramsey of New York City, married less than 24 hours and honeymooning. Nick Ramsey is driving slowly, for both he and Sally are watching the great golden disk which is rising in the sky above the hills to the west. Uh, not the moon, but the new comet, which the whole world is talking about with excited interest and uh, some apprehension. Nick, it's so bright. It's grown much brighter since last night. Yes, I know. Seems to be about half as big as the moon now. You can almost see it grow. It looks as if it were coming right at us. Well, that's just an illusion. It will pass about 15 million miles away, the radio said. Fifteen million. Sounds like a lot. But I wish it were more. No, they said it wouldn't do much damage, even if it hit us head on. Comets are mostly gas, you know. Oh, it certainly looks solid. It is beautiful, though, isn't it? Hmm. I'm glad we decided to drive tonight so we could watch it. Let's turn on the news and see what the radio says about it. Mm-hmm. I'll try Washington. Danny Dunn has been giving a blow-by-blow account of its approach. Yeah, it looks like an old codger, one of the local natives, I guess. Well, do you think we ought to stop? It's a lonely road. Oh, he probably just wants a lift. Anyway, he's so old he couldn't hurt us any. <laughs> Hello, you want a lift? Oh, evening, folks. Mighty glad you come along. I need some help back. Help? It's my partner. Rock slide fell on him, crushed his chest in. He's down in the mine. I need help to get him out. You're a miner? That's right, ma'am. Name's Jones. Jerry Jones. We got us a mine up this road about a quarter of a mile. Poor Sam hurt himself an hour ago. Been waiting ever since for somebody to come along. Well, Sally, I guess it's up to us. We can't leave some poor fellow dying and not help. But, Nick, are you sure? I'm sure it's all right. Okay, hop in, Mr. Jones. 
We'll have your partner out just as quick as we can. Covers the mine chest. Well, come along, Sally. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry we haven't any first aid equipment here, Joan. I've well, got some down below. This way, Mr. Ramsey. You have to go down on the lift. Nick, look how bright it is. The comet seems to be growing bigger by the minute. Yeah, here we are. Uh, step inside, folks. I got the flashlight. Huh. You've got a regular mine lift in here. Machinery and everything. What kind of mine is this? It used to be a coal mine. Got abandoned. Me and Sam, we found a little vein of diamonds down in the coal. Diamonds? Now, wait a minute. There aren't any diamond mines in this country. Sure there is. Got some down below. Prove it to you after we fix up, Sam. Uh, please step on lift, Mr. Ramsey. Nick, I think this is a trick. So do I. A diamond mine. Listen, Jones. Coal and diamonds don't go together, even though they're both carbon. So we're not getting on that list. I'm afraid you have to, Mr. Ramsey. Believe me, I'll shoot if you try to get away. Nick, a gun. Now listen, put away that revolver. I don't know what kind of crazy scheme this is, It's but... not crazy. I'm trying to save your life. Save our lives? You see that comet in the sky? Yes. They're calling it Comet X. They should be calling it Doomsday. You are crazy. That's enough talk. Fourteen hours, this earth and that comet are going to meet, and time is precious. Get on that lift, Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey, or I'll shoot. Believe me, no harm will come to you if you do just as I say. Well, I guess we'd better do it, Sally. There's no use in arguing with a madman who has a gun. Oh, you say so, Nick. Now, that's better. Now, hold on tightly. Don't do anything foolish. If you don't know how to operate this lift, then we have a thousand-foot drop below us. We've been going down for so long, now. We're almost at the bottom, Mrs. Ramsey. Please don't be frightened. I'm doing this for your own good. Hey, who are you? You're not a native. You lost your hillbilly accent long ago. No, I'm not. It was just a crude disguise. My name is Jeremiah Jones, formerly Professor Jones. Now we've reached above. The surface of the earth is a thousand feet above us. Now, Mr. Ramsey, if you and your wife try to attack me, you might succeed. But you'd be very foolish. You'll need me to get you out of here again. Yes, I suppose that's right. Very well, please walk quietly ahead of me. These old mine shafts are quite level. I'll shine my flashlight ahead and you won't have any difficulty. I suppose we have to humor you, but why are you doing this? What are you up to? You won't believe me if I tell you, Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey, that you two are the most important people in the world tonight. So just walk ahead of me and we'll have the explanations later. Further is it? All these tunnels are winding and twisting. 
Nick, I'm completely lost. Listen, Jones, if that's your name. Come to your senses. Take us back to the surface and we'll forget this happened. Careful, there's a door ahead of you. Oh, oh yes. Push it open and go in. Well, shine your flashlight inside. We can't see a thing. You'll find a light switch beside the door. Turn it on. Nick, he's closed the door. He's, he's locking us in. Jones! Jones! Turn on the light and just wait calmly. I'll be back. I have to go to the surface now to see if I can rescue anyone else. Jones! Jones! So he's gone. Nick. Nick, I'm frightened. No, it'll be all right, Sally. I'm sure it will. There was a light switch, didn't there? Yes. Let's see if we can find it. It should be here beside the door. Maybe it's higher. There, I've got it. Lord. Nick, we're in a room. Completely furnished. Yes. Chairs, tables, electric lights. There's even a radio. Through those archways, I can see a kitchen. Another room. But this place is like a furnished apartment. A thousand feet underground, with walls of solid rock. And he's locked us in here. But why, Nick, why? I don't know, Sally. I don't know. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Nick, what time is it? How long have we been down here? 2 a.m. We've been locked in here nearly four hours. Nick, it's crazy. He's a madman. He must be. I wonder. If he's mad, there's certainly a method in his madness. <laughs> Look around you. This furniture, a radio, a kitchen. There must be a generator someplace to supply these lights. That's what I mean. Only a madman would fix up an old abandoned mine like this. You know, I've just placed his name. Professor Jeremiah Jones. Who is he? He's an obscure astronomer who ten years ago claimed to have discovered a comet no one else could see. And he dropped out of sight. He seems to have an obsession about comets. He said Comet X should be called Doomsday. Yes, yes, I know. And I can't help wondering. Let's turn on that radio again. I have a hunch we'll be getting some news soon. Real news. All right. Nick, how can a radio work way down here underground? We must have a wire running above to the surface. Just music. Well, let's leave it on. Maybe a bulletin. Mm.
they will hardly be noticeable. However, accompanying the comet is a core of tiny particles of rock and iron. Now these, entering our atmosphere, will cause a spectacular display of shooting stars and may do some damage. You bet. Accordingly, the government is asking everyone to take the following precautions. Within the next eight hours, take shelter. Uh, underground, if possible. Otherwise, in cellars or in area shelters. Uh, take with you all the food and water you can manage. Take bedding, warm clothes. And be prepared to stay under shelter for at least 48 hours. Uh, begin your preparations now. You will receive uh, further instructions by radio. But above all, remain calm. Well, folks, this is Danny Dunn again. I'll be standing by all night long to bring you the latest. Keep tuned in and don't worry. This will be a great story to tell your grandchildren. So long for now. Nick, there's something they're not telling us. I'm sure of it. Do you suppose that the cup... Mr. Jones, back. Why, Professor? Nick, he has two little children with him. Oh, one of them is just a baby. A little girl. Here, give it to me. Yeah, it's all right. You mustn't cry. Everything's all right. Thank you. Now, if you, Mr. Ramsey, can take this little boy. Fortunately, he's still sleeping. Just let me have him. I've got him. Now, you sit down. You're all in, and there's blood on your coat. I'm afraid I, I've been shot. Oh. I'll put the boy on the couch there. Yes, he's still sleeping soundly. Now, let me look at you. Let me get this coat off. I'm sorry, but it's got to come off. There. Uh-oh, you've lost a lot of blood. Yes, I, I know it. Too much, I'm afraid. You'll have to cut your shirt loose and fix the bandage. Sally, can you help me? Oh, yes. Baby's gone back to sleep. I'll put her down on the couch, too. There. Now, what shall I do, Nick? I'm going to cut away the shirt. You pull it loose as I cut. I. How did you get shot, Professor? And where did you get those children? I, I went out to bring back more people to, to this shelter. There are no cars on the road. I went to a house a mile or so away. Family and some visitors were out in the lawn watching the comet. That's fine, Sally. Now give me something to wipe away the blood. Oh, yes. Let's go. I knew if I tried to persuade them, they'd think I was crazy. I saw the children, a boy and a girl, sleep in the back room. I stole them. The baby woke up and cried. Somebody shot at me. I got away in the darkness. Catch him, Nick. I've got him. Help me ease him into the chair. I. He's passed out and lost the blood. And here we are, stuck down in an old mine a thousand feet underground with two children that he's taken from their families. I convinced you the entire world is in grave danger. Danger? From what? A few chunks of stone that may be part of a comet? The radio last night admitted some damage might be done. Some damage? 
What did the broadcast say now? I don't know. We haven't listened. After we got you into bed last night and took care of the children, Sally and I just fell asleep. Since we woke up, we've been so busy we haven't had a chance to listen. Turn on the radio now. Let's listen. Of course. While you were gone, Andrew Weatherby urged everyone to take shelter for a few days. Buddy, this is Dan Dunn, sleepy, but still on the job. Well, I, I guess you won't find anything else on the radio this morning except the comet. So bright you can see it blazing away in the morning sky like a baby sun. It's about four hours before its path intersects town. Four hours. I repeat again the official advice. Take shelter. Stay undercover for the next few days, but don't panic. Panic is more dangerous than the comet, believe me. I have to admit that a lot of people have unfortunately lost their heads the last few hours. Roads leading out of every city are clogged with refugees trying to get away. A good many people have been killed in the crush of crowds fleeing the cities. We have reports of hundreds of auto accidents, some looting. Fires are burning unchecked in a number of places. Firemen are fleeing with the others. Washington this morning is a deserted city. So many people here have autos, you know, and they were able to get away. All the air raid shelters are full. People in them are being very calm about it. Our news from other places is a bit scanty. Some lines are down. And I'll keep bringing you all the bulletins as they come in. All right now, I've got to get a little rest, so this is Dan Dunn, signing off temporarily, folks. Well, are you convinced now, Mr. Ramsey? Oh, people are losing their heads because they're scared. But that still doesn't say the comet is actually dangerous to the Earth. Yes, I know. It wouldn't be if it was just an ordinary comet. But it isn't. But what is it, then? Ramsey, the fiery head of Comet X is radioactive. Radioactive? It will envelop the world in a searing bath of atomic fire. In a dozen hours, civilization will have come to an end. How's the professor, Nick? Unconscious. His fever is high, and he's in a delirium. His pulse is very weak. Only we could do something for him. I've done what I could from the medicine chest. In his mind now, he's reliving the time ten years ago when he first discovered Comet X and predicted that it was radioactive. He predicted that? Yes. Yes, we had quite a talk while you were busy with the two kids. He was an obscure professor of astronomy in a little college. He found a speck of light wandering around in the sky, identified it as a comet, analyzed it as being radioactive, and predicted that on its next visit it would strike the Earth. And nobody believed him? Well, the comet had vanished by then. Everybody thought he'd imagined it. And when he claimed it was radioactive and would destroy civilization, that was too much. He was fired, he had a breakdown, and was an institution for years. Oh, yes, now I remember. I read something about it years ago. But the war was on it. And people had other things to think about. Everybody forgot Professor Jones and the comet. You see, the atomic bomb hadn't been developed then, so the idea of an atomic comet was considered plain crazy. Now it's come true. Oh, Nick. Yeah. Well, let's turn the radio on again, see if Danny Dunn is still broadcasting. All right. What time is it? Well, my watch says eight. Must be eight at night. No way to be sure, way down here underground. Well, everybody is. Mm-hmm. I don't guess there's much more I can say. We're broadcasting from the sub-basement of the building... About six of us locked in here. I don't know how much longer we can hold out. We haven't had any communication.
station from outside Washington for the last hour. All wires are dead. Can't pick up any other radio broadcast. Washington's a dead city now. It's a weird sight. We have a television camera hooked up on the roof. Shows all of the big government buildings outlined by a ghostly greenish light. Luminous gas surrounding the head of Comet X. We're right in the middle of the comet now. Be about six hours before it starts to withdraw. Anybody who can hear, stay underground as long as you possibly can. Don't come out. The radioactivity will be deadly for a long time yet. This was there. One guess was that our Earth will be poisoned for 20 years to come. In that case, our power seems to be failing. I guess we'll have to sign off now. Go on, everybody. She's gone up the end. Nick. Nick, think of the whole world dead. Now, 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 wait a minute, darling. There's bound to be millions of people in safe places like we are. Caves, tunnels, old mines. Yes, but did you hear what he said? The earth may be poisoned by radioactivity for years. to me ten years ago. Now, you mustn't upset yourself, Professor. You did everything one man could. Yes, yes. When I was released from that institution last year, I set about fixing up this refuge. I bought the old mine. All by myself, I brought down furnishings, machinery, food. When I tried to get a few people to join me here, he thought I was insane again. We understand, Professor. In the end, I had to resort to desperate trickery, which got you here. And we're very grateful for it, sir. And I stole two children, a boy and a girl. Out of the whole world, you four are all I say. But there must be other people alive somewhere. Yes, yes, of course, now. By the time the surface of the earth is livable again. Will it really be 20 years? Yes, Mrs. Ramsey. Between 15 and 20 years before the human race can once again live on the earth's surface. But in even 15 years, the people who are still alive now... Exactly. Some will live. Human race is very tough. But they may be terribly changed. To reestablish civilization, we can only be sure of you four. Oh, no. I fear you mustn't be dismayed. I've planned carefully. There's everything you'll need for 20 years down in this cavern. Medicine, food, clothing, books, 
Gasoline? You must not go above ground until it is absolutely safe. Then you will find the world changed. Animal life, plant life, it may have been altered greatly by the radioactivity, but it will be safe then. Professor, you're too weak to talk. No, no, I must. I must talk now. I haven't much more time. Of course, you have. You're going to get well, Professor. We need you. I wish I could. But I won't. And now listen. Build for a better world. We seem to have gotten off the track somehow. Maybe. Maybe nature simply decided to be done with us when she sent that comet. I don't know. But this is a chance to start over again. And do better. Professor. Professor Jones. Nick. Nick, he's not... I'm afraid he is. He's dead, darling. We're left. You and me. Down here a thousand feet underground. We have to live here. Twenty years or more. That you can't give way, Sally. We've got too much to do. Listen. Baby. Got to go to him. That's what I mean. We have to take good care of those kids. Yes. Of course, Nick. Of course we do. And we'll have to give them names. We could call them Adam and Eve, but let's not. Suppose we just call them Johnny and Susie. Yes, Nick. All right, Susie. I'm coming. I'm coming.
and any resemblance to actual persons in name or otherwise was purely coincidental. Bill Tonkin speaking. This program has come to you from New York. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. From the far horizons of the unknown come tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million, could be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents X minus one. Can you predict the future? Can you tell what will come in 100 years? Or in 10? Or in the next minute? Tonight we present two ventures into the unknown. Two fantasies of the future, chosen from the works of one of our most brilliant young science fiction writers, Ray Bradbury. First, his story entitled, There Will Come Soft Rains. The house was a good house, planned and built to be lived in in the year 1980. The real estate agent had told them all about it. Now, this is the bedroom. Of course, it contains all the latest devices, self-warming blankets, and uh, yeah, there's a brand new feature. Beds, which make themselves. Now, if you'll just step this way through the library... We can see the latest in talking book recorders, self-building fireplace, self-cleaning robot dust disposal. Oh, these little mouse-like things come out of the wall and take away all the dirt. Now, over this way, there's a complete robot kitchen, of course. Just set the menu for the week and the stove does the rest. Then there's the automatic hydroponic garden, self-sprinkling fire protection. See, the house is fully automatic. Well, you could go away for a year and it would run itself. And so the family took the house The man and the woman And the two children uh, A boy and a girl And they lived contentedly Enjoying music and poetry And the rich, warm things in life And the house fed them And slept them And entertained them It made a good life for them until one day, there were 10,000 explosions, and the world shook, and red fire and ashes and radioactivity fell from the sky. The happy time was over. Tick-tock, seven o'clock, time to rise, open your eyes, tick-tock, seven o'clock. Time to rise. Open your eyes. But the house lay empty. The clock talked to the empty morning. 
In the kitchen, the stove sighed and ejected from its warm interior eight eggs, sunny side up, twelve bacon slices, two coffees, and two cups of hot cocoa. Seven, nine, breakfast time, come and dine, seven, nine. Today is April 28th, 1985. Today, remember, is Mr. Featherstone's birthday. Insurance, gas, atom heat, and electricity bills are due. In the walls, relays clicked, memory tapes glided under electric eyes, recorded voices moved beneath steel meters. But no doors slammed. No carpets took the quick tread of rubber heels. At 8.30, the eggs began to shrivel. An aluminum wedge scraped them into the sink. 9.15, time to clean. 9.15, time to clean. Out of the wall, hundreds of tiny mechanical mice darted. The rooms were a crawl with small cleaning animals, all rubber and metal. They sucked up the hidden dust and dirt and popped back into their burrows. At ten o'clock, the sun came out from behind the rain. The house stood alone on a street where all the other houses were rubble and ashes. At night, the ruined town gave off a radioactive glow which could be seen for miles. At 10.15, the garden sprinkler filled the soft morning air with golden fountains. The water tinkled over the charred west side of the house, the side which had been facing the blast. It was blank, except in five places. One of the five places was a silhouette of a man mowing a lawn, just as he'd been the instant the radioactivity burned his image into the side of the house. Over there, a woman bent to pick flowers, Still further over, their images burned into the wood where a small boy, hands flung into the air, higher up the image of a thrown ball, and opposite, a girl, her hands raised to catch a ball which never came down. Five people. Five spots of paint. <laughs> On the front porch, the dog whined and shivered. The front door recognized the dog's voice and opened. The dog padded in wearily, thin to the bone, covered with sores. It ran to the kitchen and pawed the kitchen door wildly. Behind the door, the stove was making pancakes which filled the house with their odor, as prescribed by the automatic preset menu selector. The dog frogged, ran insanely, spun in a circle, biting its tail, and died. Delicately sensing decay, the regiments of mice hummed out of the walls, soft as blown leaves, their electric eyes glowing. One fifteen. The dog was gone. Two fifteen. Bridge tables unfolded from the walls of the patio. Playing cards fluttered onto pads. Martinis appeared on an oaken bench. But the tables were silent. The cards untouched. Dinner was made, ignored, flushed away. Dishes were washed. In the study, the tobacco stand produced a cigar with half an inch of gray ash upon it, smoking, waiting, waiting. 
The hearth fire bloomed out of nothing. Nine o'clock, nine o'clock. The beds began to warm their hidden circuits, and the phonograph spoke from beside the fireplace. Mrs. McClelland, what poem would you like to hear this evening? Mr. McClelland? Since you express no preference, I shall select at random from among your favorites. Sarah Teasdale. There will come soft rains. There will come soft rains and the smell of the ground and swallows circling with their shimmering sound and frogs in the pools singing at night and wild plum trees in tremulous white. Robins will wear their feathery fire whistling their whims on a low fence wire and not one will know of war. Not one will care at last when it is done. Not one would mind, neither bird nor tree, if mankind perished utterly. And spring herself, when she woke at dawn, would scarcely know that we were gone. The phonograph finished the poem. The empty chairs faced each other between the silent walls. At ten o'clock that evening, the house, began to die. The wind blew the bough of a falling tree into the kitchen window, smashing it. A bottle of cleaning fluid crashed on the stove. Water pumps shot down from the ceiling, but the solvent spread onto the doors, making fire as it went. Other voices in other rooms taking up the alarm. The windows broke with the heat, and the wind blew in to help the fire. The fire crackled upstairs at paintings, lay hungrily on the beds, devoured the rooms. The house began to shudder. The bared skeleton began to cringe in the heat. The wires revealed as if a surgeon had torn the skin off. Voices screamed in every room. Windows snapped open and shut like undecided mouths. A thousand things were happening at once, like the interior of a clock shop at midnight. All the clocks were striking, making a merry-go-round of squeaking, whispering, and rushing. In the kitchen, the stove hissing hysterically was making breakfasts at a psychopathic rate. Ten dozen pancakes, six dozen loaves of toast. Then, there was silence. The film spools were burned out. The wires withered and the circuits cracked. Then the house began to breathe its last. The beams began to give at the foundations. Long cracks appeared in the concrete. The seams were burst from the heat. And finally, with a huge rumble, it crashed into dust and rubble. shone faintly in the east. In the ruins of the house, only one wall remained standing. And within the wall, even as the sun rose to shine upon the burning rubble, a voice spoke again and again and again. No one would mind, neither bird nor tree, if mankind perished utterly. And spring herself, when she woke at dawn, would scarcely know that we were gone, that we were gone. 
that we were gone. That we were gone. Strange are the uses of providence. Is this how the end will come for mankind? With 10,000 explosions and a flash of radioactive gas? Or will destruction come more subtly, extended to us gently and innocently in, oh, let's say, the hand of a child? Who knows in what manner zero hour may arrest the world we know? <laughs> It was a perfect summer day in the year 1985. The streets were lined with green, peaceful trees. Businessmen sat in their quiet offices, taping their voices or watching televisors. Rockets hovered like darning needles in the blue sky. There was the universal quiet conceit and easiness of men accustomed to peace, quite certain that there would never be war or trouble again. There were no traitors among men, no unhappy ones, no disgruntled ones. The world was upon stable ground. Sunlight illumined the suburbs, and the town drowsed on a tide of warm, sunlit air. On the lawns, the children played, catapulting this way and that across the green grass, shouting at each other, holding hands, flying in circles, climbing trees and laughing. And in the homes, busy mothers prepared for the evening arrival of their husbands. Heavens, Mick, what's all the excitement? We're playing a game, Mommy, the most exciting game ever. What are you doing in that cabinet? I need some tools from Daddy's chest. Mm, your father may not like... Oh, I'll take good care of them, Mom, I promise. Very well. Don't you lose anything. Oh, thank you, Mom. You want a glass of milk? Can't stop now, Mom. What's the name of the game, Ming? Invasion. <laughs> Invasion. What will they think of next? <laughs> Pants Joseph Connors. Don't let him play. He's 12 years old. Don't worry, I won't. What you playing, Mick? None of your business, Smarty Pants. I want to play. Can't. Why not? You're too old. Just because you're only eight. No, you'd only laugh at us and spoil the invasion. Make him go away, Mick. Go away. This is my backyard. Now, who wants to play with you and your old fairies anyway? They aren't fairies. Uh, nuts to you. I don't want to play anyway. Good riddance. I'm glad you didn't let him play, Mink. He'd only laugh. Now, we'd better talk to Drill and get some more instructions, Art. Now, here's your pad and pencil. Where is Drill? Drill! Here, Drill! Drill! Well, he's hey, drill. in the rose bush, I think. I'll talk to him myself, and you write it down in the pad. Okay. Drill? Drill? Okay. Drill wants you to write down triangle. What's a triangle? Never mind. Drill will tell us when he wants us to know. It helps the invasion. How do you spell it? Hmm. Well, I'll ask Drill. Drill, how do you Mink. spell... Here's your mother, looking out the window. Mink? Yes, mother? Who are you talking to? The rose bush, Mom. 
Only it's not really a rose bush. That's drill. Who's drill? He's planning the invasion. Oh, I see. Well, you better come in and clean up for supper. Your daddy will be home soon. In just a second, Mom. You got that, Art? See, now what? Four, nine, seven, and A, and B, and X, and a fork, and some string, and a, and a hexagony hexagonal droopy. Come oh. on, Nick. Supper's in ten minutes. Okay, Mom. Just a minute. I have to tell Drill. I wish we didn't have to eat, though. It holds up the invasion. <laughs> Slow down. You'll choke on that soup. I can't, Mom. It's a matter of life and death. What's a matter of life and death? The invasion. What invasion is that? Oh, just some silly game the children have been playing. Well, whatever it is, Mink, it'll wait until you've finished your supper, I'm sure. Oh, I don't want any more. You've barely touched anything. Oh, but Drill is waiting for me, Daddy. Drill? Who's Drill? He lives in a rose bush in our backyard. Imagination, Henry. <sighs> Such nonsense. I'd better run now. You'll sit through dessert, young lady. Oh, gee, Daddy. And while you're at it, tell me more about this new game. It's Martians invading Earth, Daddy. What? Well, we're not exactly Martians, Daddy. They're from... Well, gee, I don't know, from up. And from inside that little head of yours. You're laughing at me. Drill said you would. You'll kill Drill and... and everybody. Oh, I didn't know you could kill a Martian. But it, it's not really a Martian, Mom. Jupiter or Venus, even. Imagine. They couldn't figure out a way to attack the Earth. We are impregnable. Impregnable, dear. Well, that's the word Drill said. Impreg. Well, anyway, that was the word, Mom, the same word. Anyway, so we're helping them. Now, who's helping who? Well, the kids are helping the Martians. Well, fifth column, eh? Well, Drill says in order to make a good fight, you've got to have a new way of surprising the people. That way you win. And he says also you've got to have help from your enemy. Pretty slick, those Martians, using the kids for a fifth column, eh, Mary? And hiding under rose bushes, too, Henry. Don't forget that. Well, that's because grown-ups never look under rose bushes. Only kids. Oh, I see. Well, finish your fruit, darling. You can play for an hour afterward. Mary. Oh, it's so nice out, Henry, and there's no school tomorrow. Very well. Till 8 o'clock. Drill says after the invasion, we can stay up as late as we want. No more bats, either. Oh, is that so? You can watch all the grown-up televisor shows. I don't wonder this invasion has caught on among the kids. Well, some of the kids are giving us trouble, like like Dale Britz and Petey Jarek. They're growing up, so they won't believe in the invasion. They make fun. Worse than parents, even. I hate them worst. We'll kill them first. I hope you're saving your father and me for last. But Drill says you're dangerous. What? But I, I think they'll let me keep you because I'm helping so much. I'll talk to Drill. Maybe we won't have to kill you. Mary, I think this nonsense has gone far enough. Can I go out now, please? Well, run along, dear. Don't worry, Dad. I won't let them hurt you. Mary, I think the child's taking this game entirely too seriously. Invasion. Ah, Henry, you know how Mink is. Besides, all children have their aggressions. Better to get them out in the open, I suppose. Maybe you're right. Um... I was wondering about bridge with the Jacksons tonight, Mary. All right. But, uh, you look tired, dear. Why don't you sit in the relaxer for a while and get a massage? I'll sew for a while until it's time to... Oh, I wanted to call my sister Helen. Oh, good. Find out when her husband's going to return my golf clubs. 
Would you please connect me with Mrs. Helen Rogerson on Channel 7, 2Z, uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What is your channel, please? 817X, New Rochelle, New York. Thank you. Just a moment. Go ahead. You can see your party now. Hello, Mary. How are things in New York? Fine, Helen. How are things in Pittsburgh? You look tired. Oh, I've been having a terrible time with the children. Sick? No, just underfoot. They've got a new game that's got me just about crazy. It's called Invasion. Did you say Invasion? That's right. Well, isn't that strange? My mink is playing it, too. My boy Tim is all involved with some imaginary fellow named Drill who's running the Invasion. Must be a new password. Mink likes him, too. How do you suppose these games start? My backyard looks like a scrap drive. They've got every conceivable kind of mechanical gadget arranged out there. I talked to Josephine Schiller in Boston, and she says her kids are wild about it, too. It's sweeping the country. Remember when it was the Roomba? Please, dear, I'm not that old. Mommy! Oh, please, Minky, I'm on the televisor. Come on, see your Aunt Helen. Hello, Ming. Hi, Aunt Helen. Look what I've got. What is it, honey? Well, it's a yo-yo. Look what I enrolled with. See? Well, Helen, look, it vanished. Where did it go? Into another dim... 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 <laughs> she means dimension. I uh-huh. say the darn thing. My Timmy brought one home, too. I can't figure out how they work. Make it reappear, honey. There. See, it's easy. Where'd you get it, dear? Jill gave it to me, Mom. Mink? Bye, Aunt Helen. Gotta run now. Mink, you come back here. I want to talk to you. Hey, Mom, zero hour. It's five o'clock. Mink. Bye. I can't understand it. The child's never been so unruly. Helen, do you suppose that... What? Uh, nothing. Just a wild thought that... Say, the reason I called, I want to get that black and white cake recipe. And Henry wants his golf clubs. I don't know what he'll do if I... What was that? I don't know. One of the children must have been hurt. I'll have to run and see. Call me back tonight, will you? All right, Mary. Bye. Mink, come here. Yes, Mom. What is it? Who screamed? Peggy Ann. All right, what happened? Well, she got scared and went home. Did you hit her? Uh, no, she just got scared. She's a scared baby anyway. We won't let her play anymore. She's getting too old. Hmm. Now, Mink, tell me why she cried. No, I can't. Mink, you'll answer me this instant or come inside. I've had enough of this nonsense. Gee, I can't quit now, Mom. It's almost zero hour. Then tell me what frightened Peggy Ann. Okay, she saw Drill. Drill? He almost came through. He was just testing. Through what? Well, those pipes and things we set up. She looked into one of the pipes and screamed. I guess she saw Drill. And no one hit her? Uh-uh. Very well, Mink. I'll call Peggy Ann's mother and see how she is. And I'll call you for your bath in half an hour. Your father and I want to go out tonight. You won't be able to go out, Mom. Why not? Zero hours, five o'clock, Mom. Hello, dear. You home already, Henry? Yes, I thought I'd relax a little before we went to theater. Where's the little one? Out back. Same game? Same game. They've got a stack of pipes and hammers and spoons a mile high out there. Children, children, why do we have them? They are strange little creatures, aren't they? Even Mink, Henry. She's a part of us, and and yet what do we really know about how she thinks and feels? Well, I didn't mean to start a philosophic discussion. 
Kids are such a queer mixture of love and hate, though. Even normal, healthy kids. They need you and they're dependent on you, and yet they resent that dependence. You sound like a child psychology course I once took. I wonder if they ever really forgive the whippings and the commands we have to give them sometimes. I wonder if we ever forgot them when we were children. Look, I'd like to discuss this with you, dear, but we do have a theater date, and it's almost five o'clock now. What's happened to the kids? They're so quiet. When children are quiet, you know there's some mischief. Kids aren't playing with anything electrical, are they? I'm sure they are. At least I Just the same. I'd better go out. Henry. Tell them to put off the invasion. Mary, don't get upset. It's just a game. Good Lord, what's that? Look out the window, Mary. What is it? Where are the children? Mary. Why are you shaking? What did you see? Henry, quick. Up to the attic. They aren't in the attic. Yes, yes, the attic. Quick. Mary! Come back here. Mary! Mary, don't go up. They aren't up there. Mary, you out of your mind? There's no one up here. Quick, shut the door. Lock it. Lock it. But there's nothing up here. What, what is wrong with you? Mary, come to your senses. Henry, I was about to stay here and hide. What are you talking about? I saw it through the window, Henry. It was horrible. What? Oh, it is an invasion. For heaven's sake, let's get down out of this attic and talk this over sensibly. I, I want to find out if Mink is all right. She's all right. I saw her. She was leading them around the corner of the house. Leading who? The kids? Shh. Listen. It's nothing. Like 50 men with the boots on. Not men. Oh, huh? Please, God, don't let them find them. Don't let them find I, I don't understand. Who's there? Shh, don't shout, Who's down there? I demand that you answer me. Got to save her. Henry, you don't understand. She's leading them. What? She's leading them. She's on their side. Oh, please, God, forgive them. The children on their side? Oh, she told us, but we wouldn't believe her. Henry, they're coming out! Mom? Dad, we know you're in there.
have just heard X-1, presented by the National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine. Your announcer, Fred Collins. X-1 was an NBC Radio Network production. Wheaties presents Dimension X. Adventures in time and space. Transcribed in future tense. Dimension X. On stage tonight, Dimension X. Another in the Wheaties big parade of exciting half-hour presentations. I'm thinking of a girl... Very pleasant person, very attractive, too. She has cool hands, a nice voice, and a gentle manner. She's crisp and efficient, but she needs help badly. She's the American nurse, and her problem is this. There just aren't enough like her to go around. Not enough nurses for the hundreds of important nursing careers now open in hospitals, industry, research, the armed forces, and private duty. Now, you may not know the girl I mentioned, but perhaps you know someone very much like her. A young girl with at least a high school diploma of good health and character. If you do, tell her this. America needs 50,000 student nurses this year. Tell her you think she might be one of them. If she agrees, have her stop in at the hospital nearest to her. She'll never regret it, and neither will you. Now, tonight's adventure into the world of the unknown. The world of Dimension X. The doll shop stood on a quiet Washington side street, not too far from the sprawling Pentagon building. A woman and a child waited outside, the little girl peering eagerly through the window at the dolls inside, and the woman glancing impatiently at her wristwatch, as if expecting someone who was late for an appointment. And there was nothing about the doll shop to warn them that they were waiting to keep an appointment with doom. Oh, Mommy, look! Yes, what is it, dear? In the window of the shop, the tiny dolls. Oh, Mommy, do you think Daddy will buy me one? Well, we'll ask him when he comes, dear. He said three o'clock on this corner. I see him, Mommy. There he is. Oh, Henry, here we are. Oh, dear. Hi. Sorry I'm late. Well, we've been waiting for you. Sidney's been so. Yes, I'm afraid I'll have to call off the shopping, Alma. Oh, Henry, we promised. Yes, I know. Cindy. I'm sorry. It's just one of those things. You've been the wife of an army colonel long enough to know his life isn't his own. What is it this time? Oh, some more of that flying sphere nonsense. The pilot who says he sighted it last month crashed and was killed today, so the general wants a full report. Oh, dear, what next? Daddy! We'll have a staff meeting at the Pentagon at 3.15. Daddy, look in this window. Oh, I haven't time, dear. Just for a minute, Daddy, please. Cindy, I haven't time to stop and watch a bunch of six-inch dolls parading around in the shop. <laughs> Say, they are lifelike, aren't they? <laughs> look at that, Alma. Dolls are marching around like a regular review. <laughs> They've even got their own little band. Henry, your staff meeting. Hmm? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, I've got to run. Now, look, don't go spending a lot of money on that nonsense, Alma. <laughs> no, dear. Bye. Bye, dear. Bye, Cindy. Bye, Daddy. Oh, Mommy, look. Look, the band's going to play. Well, <laughs> aren't they wonderful, honey? You 
know, it's funny. I must have stood on this corner a thousand times, and I've never even noticed this shop before. Good evening, children. Oh, well, well good evening. <laughs> Mommy, he talks awful funny. Hush, Cindy. Would you like to step inside the shop of Santo Perigi? Well, yes, we would. This way. Here in the shop of Santor Perigi, creator of Perigi's universal, wonderful dolls, the world of adult reality is blended with the world of child's fantasy. This is a new shop, isn't it, Mr. Perigi? What is new and what is old? Come, this way. Would you like to meet one of my little ones? Oh, yes. This one in the red jacket is Toto. Speak, little one. Absolutely amazing. That is nothing for Perigi's wonderful dolls. Listen, uh, sing, Toto. Sing for the little girl. My name is Toto. <laughs> Cindy, listen. Sing, Toto. Men are big and tall. Dolls are very small. When men begin to fall, the dolls will rule them all. Oh, Lord, Mr. Toto, how do they work, Mr. Perigi? How do they work? Ah, that is the secret of the great Perigi, greatest of all doll masters. To make an ordinary doll is nothing. <laughs> to make a perfect replica, that is something. But to make a doll with intelligence, that is the work of an artist, huh? Well, yes. Well, they must be very expensive. Madame, when I construct a doll like Toto, I cannot bear to be parted from him permanently. So instead of selling, I rent my little people. You rent dolls? Precisely. Ten dollars. I have but one request. When you grow tired of my dolls, you must leave me in good condition. Oh, Mommy, could we take him home? Take him home! Take him home! Take him home! <laughs> oh, look, Mommy, look! He's bowing and dancing. <laughs> oh, Mommy, he wants to come. Please, I'll take such good care of it, please. Well, honey, we'll, we'll have to deal with your father later, but... Well, oh, Mommy! All right, wrap him up, Mr. Perigi. Oh, dear, I have a feeling when your father comes home, we'll be sorry. Be sorry, be sorry, be sorry, be sorry! <laughs> now, Toto, it's my room, and you're going to sleep right here next to my pillow. Oh, Toto, don't laugh like that. I'm going to have to teach you some manners. You'll be quiet because my daddy will be home soon and he's a colonel in the army and, and he'll bust you to private if you don't behave. Now you wait here. I'm going to introduce you to my puppy dog, Mr. Blister. So be good now. Here, Blister. Here, Blister. Come on, Blister. Mr. Blister, now this is Toto. Oh, dear, I don't think Mr. Blister likes you to. Stop it, Mr. Blister. Come over here and shake hands with Toto, Mr. Blister. Come on now. What happened, dear? Mr. Blister tried to bite my doll. Look how frightened Toto is. Dolls don't get frightened, Cindy. But he is, Mommy. He screamed. You just imagined it, honey. But he did. He did. Well, Mr. Blister didn't mean it. You know he's the gentlest little pup alive. Yes. He's nasty and I hate him. <laughs> Cindy, you hurt his feelings. Okay. He tried to bite my new doll and I don't ever want to see him again. Ever. Oh, 
dear. All right, Mr. Blister, you come downstairs with me. Come on, now, Cindy's angry at you tonight. I'll kill him. Why, Cindy, where did you... Where did you hear a thing like that? Toto said it. Well, you... I see. Well, you've had an exciting day, honey. You brush your teeth now and go to bed. Daddy's coming home late, so we'll see you in the morning. Hmm? Good night, darling. Sleep well. I hate him, Mr. Toto. I hate him. Morning, Alma. Breakfast ready? Just a minute. How was the staff meeting last night, dear? Oh, horrible bore as usual. Where's the little one? Up in her room. She'll be down in a minute. Oh, sir, remind me to take some papers back to the war department, will you? Mm -hmm. I left them in my strong box. Henry? Hmm? You told me it was against regulations to bring secret papers home. Well, I had to finish some work for the old man. Nobody will have another difference. Well, I suppose not. Oh, dear, would you feed the puppy before we sit down? His bowl's under the sink. Uh, where is he? That's funny. Here's a supper from last night, only half eaten. Getting fussy. Blister? Hey, Blister! Blister! Where the dickens is that mutt? Maybe he's on the back porch. Oh, maybe. Here, Blister! Here, Blister! Alma. Hmm? What is it, dear? Alma, look. Henry. Is he? Yes, he's dead. But, but how? What happened? From the looks of it, he might have been poisoned. Poisoned? Who on earth would do a thing like that to an innocent little pup? I don't know. Let's see his dish. Oh, Henry. I don't understand this at all. Say, what's this? What's what? Well, look, there are pieces of broken glass in his food. Blue glass. Glass? Henry. Huh? Well, I, I I just remembered something. What? It may just be coincidence, but in the bathroom this morning... What about the bathroom? Cindy's blue glass, you know, the one with the Mickey Mouse on it. Mm-hmm. It was broken, Henry. I found pieces in the wastebasket. I meant to ask her about it. Oh, well, for heaven's sake, you aren't suggesting that our little girl... Why, she loved Blister more than anyone. Not last night, she didn't. Why not? Well, he... he... Oh, he went after Toto. Well, who's Toto? Oh, a new doll. You bought her one of those dolls? Well, I just rented it. Rented it? Yes. Look, Alma. Oh, no. Oh, well, all right. What's this got to do with Blister? He went for the doll, and Cindy... Well, well, Cindy said... Henry, she said she'd kill him. What? Well, that's ridiculous. True. Good heavens, a nine-year-old child putting ground glass and dog food? She'd have to be a monster. Now, don't say anything. I'll talk to her. Good morning, dear. Morning, Mommy. Morning, morning Daddy. Hello. What's the matter? Uh, nothing, Cindy. Sit down, dear. Yes, sir. Cindy, uh, your mother tells me you broke your blue drinking glass. Oh, no, I didn't break it. Now, Cindy. I didn't. Well, now, somebody broke it. It wasn't your mother and it wasn't me. Well, then it must have been Toto. Cynthia. Cindy. You know Toto was only a doll. Now, a doll couldn't have broken your glass, could he? Well? But he must have done it, Daddy. Cindy, you know how Daddy feels about little girls who tell untruths. 
Now, did you break your glass and maybe accidentally get some pieces into Mr. Blister's dish to sort of punish him for biting your dog? Oh, no, Daddy. I'd hate to think you'd done something you knew was wrong and you were blaming it on a doll. What's the matter with Mr. Blister? Is he sick? He's dead, Cindy. Oh, no, he, he can't be dead. He isn't dead, Daddy. No, he isn't. He isn't. Mommy, I... Yes, dear. But he'll come back. He has to come back. No, he won't come back, honey. Not ever. No, Cindy, not ever. <laughs> now that we've told you, Cindy, do you want to change your mind about the glass? Let alone. Daddy, you think I killed you see what you've done. The child feels guilty enough, Henry. Oh dear, this is no time for feelings to interfere. Feelings don't really time. When they come, they just come. You go up to your room, honey. Daddy and I'll be up in just a minute. I don't want to. Please, Cindy. We'll be right up. Please. There, that's a good girl. And close the kitchen door behind you. Dimension X will continue in just a moment. You know, friends, breakfast of champions is a whole lot more than a phrase written across a package of Wheaties. There's one thing I could tell you. I could tell you that it means champions in the world of sports eat Wheaties. And it's so true. You bet it is. But I've got a better idea, one I think you'll like. I think perhaps you'd rather get the story from a champion himself. So here is a champion. Will you introduce him, Ed Prentice? Now, young man, will you tell us what you do for a living? I pitch. You what? Pitch, pitch. You know, baseball. We have a baseball team, you have to have a pitcher. I'm a pitcher. I pitch. Oh, yes, yes, I see. And are you on a team? Uh, yes, sir. I'm on the Cleveland Indians. Cleveland Indians, hmm? What is your name, young man? I'm Bob Feller. And you know it as well as I do, Ed. Sure I do, Bob. It's good to see you. This makes your 14th season playing with the Indians, doesn't it? Yep, Ed. 14 years. Well, tell me, Bob, how long have you been eating Wheaties? Oh, about 20 years, give or take a couple. You mean you started eating Wheaties before you started playing ball? Why, of course. What's so strange about that? Most people start eating Wheaties before they get to playing ball. In fact, most people never start playing baseball. You don't have to be a ball player to enjoy the lift you get from Wheaties with milk and fruit. You're right as rain, Bob. No champ ever said a truer word about Wheaties. Breakfast of champions. Eat your supper, dear. I'm not hungry. Cindy, you scarcely touched your lunch. I don't feel like eating. Is it, Mr. Blister? Oh, Mommy. Cindy, answer your mother. Oh, Henry, she'll work it out in her own way, dear. Oh, I don't know. When I was a boy, there was such a thing as discipline. Where this child is being brought up... Henry! Well, it's true. There's no respect lying. Oh, I don't know. Alma, what's happened to us... We were a nice, peaceful, happy family until you bought that cursed doll. Now who's blaming things on the doll? Well, it's true. Henry. You wanted to get some papers from your strong box. What? Oh, yes. Excuse me. 
Will you try to eat something, Cindy? Now, darling. Yes, Alma. Alma. Yes, Henry. What is it? Alma, it's gone. What's gone? The box. The strong box is gone. But it can't be. The door to your study is always locked, and you and I have the only keys. I know all that, and I tell you, it isn't there. Well, who would? Take... I don't know, Alma. Those confidential reports, if they ever get into the wrong hands... Oh, I warned you about keeping them here. What if it ever came out in the open? Can't you see the papers? Army colonel, derelict in duty. Call the police, Henry. What, and throw my career in the wastebasket after 17 years? And we've got to find it ourselves. But it was there when I went in to clean this morning. Well, what about your key? Well, it's right here. I always keep it right with me. That's funny. Oh, no. But my other keys are all on the ring. You've lost it. I don't see how. Alma, how could you do it? Henry, please. Come on, we'll search the house. I can't think of anything else to do. Oh, dear, you're going to miss your staff meeting. Well, all right, never mind the meeting. My whole career goes up in smoke if we don't find those reports. Now, somebody get hold of your key and open that room. I know, Cindy. Oh, let the child alone. She's been through enough. You know she wouldn't do a thing like that. I don't know anything anymore. I don't know my own child. I don't even know you. All I know is that strong box is gone with papers that are dynamite if the wrong person gets them. The question being who? What's that? It's coming from upstairs. Who's that blasted doll again? Something must have set it off. I, I don't know how the mechanism works. Well, for heaven's sake, let's go up and shut it off. Right. Dodo, Dodo, Dodo! Kill him, kill him, kill him! How do you do? Stop how it! How do you do? How do you do? Blasted little imp! There. Henry. But since we've got this thing... Henry. What? Look. Where? What? Around the doll's neck. The key. The key to your study. It was Cindy, after all. I don't believe it. Ever since she got this fool doll, she's been acting half insane. First the dog, now this. I think she hates us, Alma. Henry. Cindy is my child, and I know her. I know she's a good, sensitive little person with, with no malice in her. You're just simply refusing to face the facts, dear. What are you going to do? I'm going downstairs and have a talk with that young lady. Cindy, you're not telling me the truth. Oh, yes, I am, Daddy. Now, all I'm asking is that you tell me the truth. Now, where is it? Take it, Daddy. Honest, I didn't take it. I suppose you're going to tell me now that a little six-inch doll took my strong box and hid it. Well? Cindy, I'm speaking to you. I didn't take it, Daddy. You don't understand. Toto did it. Oh, he's terrible, awful. He says things. He says he's going to kill everybody. Oh, Cindy, you're inventing things. It's true. At night when I'm sleeping, he stands next to my pillow and, and whispers things to me. Awful thing. He told me he'd kill me, too, if I told him. Alma, I think this child is sick. I think she needs a doctor. It's frightened, Henry. She's trembling like a leaf. Come on, darling. We'll go up to your room. I don't want to no, go up honey, there. No, honey, Mommy will stay with you. I'm afraid. He's up there. Who, Cindy? Toto. Well, he won't be up there for long. Mr. Toto is going right back to Parigi's wonderful doll shop before I lose my sanity, which means right now... <laughs> Colonel Grayson, welcome to the home of Perigi's wonderful doll. Are you Perigi? Santor Perigi, creator of the universal doll. The doll with the mind. The doll Yes, with... well, I'm returning one of your masterpieces. Oh? If you will step into the rear of my shop. 
Now, what is the complaint? There's no complaint. Here's your doll. Good riddance. My little Toto, rejected. You found the world of men too filled with hate. Hate, 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 hate! We will change all that later on. Return to your comrades in the window, little one. And now, Colonel Grayson? I think we have no further business, sir. Ah, but we do, Colonel. Let me see. Aye. Here it is. Do you recognize this, Colonel? That's my strong box. Quit. My little Toto is very clever, sir. Are you trying to tell me your doll stole that from me? Let us not say stole. I'm merely keeping it in custody. What's your game, Parigi? Blackmail. You give me what I want, I do not ruin your career. What do you want? Information. We already know something from the reports of the War Department concerning a certain strange-looking sphere reported by one of your pilots. What government do you represent? I represent Pirigi's wonderful dolls, none other. I'm not so naive, sir. Perhaps I should explain. Each man hides something from the world. Each man loves something more than life. With the help of my wonderful dolls, I obtain personal information which enables me to control the men who control the world. Men like you. Hand over that strong box. I warn you, I have a gun. Give it to me. You are being foolish. Put down that walking stick. Now. No closer. Now. Hello. Give me the police. Hello. This is Colonel Henry Grayson. I've just killed a man. Parigi's doll shop, corner of 4th and Lexington. The body is in the rear. I'll wait for you. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Shut up, you little fiend! Colonel Grayson! Did I hear you speak? Colonel Henry Grayson! <laughs> oh, it can't be. I must be going out of my mind. A six-inch doll... Shut up! The master's dead! You are mistaken, Colonel. I, Toto, am the master. What do you mean? If you will examine the body of Santo Parigi, you will see that he does not bleed. And he does not bleed, Colonel, because Santo Parigi never lived. Never lived? Santo Parigi is a doll. A doll? But he's a man. He talks. He walks. The people of Meritrix? Doll builders? Who are you? I am Xanthus Imperator, commander of the legions of the third planetoid. Meritrix! Legions? Planetoid? My people and I, whom you regard as dolls, come from a tiny planet beyond the moon. What? So small that it cannot support our population. That's true. We landed one of our space spheres on Earth three months ago with the intention of colonizing. Unfortunately, one of your pilots intercepted us. So that's why you wanted our information. Precisely. And you are human? Quite human. Of course, in order to deal with Earth people without suspicion, we were forced to construct Pirigi, a man-sized doll. No, it can't be. I can't believe this. I'm, I'm having hallucinations. I've got to get out of here. That will be impossible. We have weapons of destruction quite unknown to Earth people. I phoned the police. They'll be here soon. By the time they arrive, my people will have prepared something quite shocking. (laughs) 
cupboard, Brian. Okay, Sarge. All right. You the guy who turned in the call? Yes, that's right, Sergeant. Where's the body? Well, you see, it, it isn't exactly a body. What do you mean? It's a doll. A what? Now, wait, you've got to let me explain. I know this sounds fantastic, but I've stumbled onto an unbelievable plot. Yeah? Keep talking. Well, you see these little dolls? They, they aren't really dolls. They're, they're tiny people. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a big doll named Santor Perigi. They're using him as a front to run this shop. He's off his trolley, sir. Now, now, look here. Now, I... listen, mister. We got a call that there was a murder here. Now, if there was one, where is the body? Well, it's behind the curtains in the back. Only, you see, it isn't really a body. It's a, a big wax dummy. It's, it's all part of their plot to gain control of the world. Holy smoke. He's really off his rocket. Now, look, if you don't believe me, I'll prove it to you. Come here. Look behind this curtain and you'll see the dummy lying on the floor. Welcome, gentlemen. Are you looking for something? Parigi! This is impossible. I smashed his skull. Do you know this guy? That's the one, the doll. What's your name, mister? Perigi. Santor Perigi, creator of the universal doll. Uh-huh. You ever see this man? Never until just now. That's not true. He's lying. I tell you, he's nothing but a big doll. The real masters of the little dolls. Brian, are you getting this? He's wacko, Sarge. No, I'm a fruitcake. I'm not crazy. I tell you, I can prove it. They must have fixed up his head where I smashed it in. Touch him and you'll see. Mr. Perigi... You know what this guy is talking about. The man is demented, obviously. No, that's not true. I tell you, there's a plot to control the Earth. I've got to call the War Department. They want to know about the flying sphere. Holy I... mackerel, this gets worse every minute. Brian. Take him to headquarters. No, no, save this... some time. Take him down to Psycho Ward. Okay, all right, Buck no, Rogers. Come along nice and quiet. No, don't you see? He's nothing but a man-sized yes, doll. I'm sure. And the little ones are going to take over the Earth, and you're but... going away and cut out some nice paper dolls. Oh, please, listen that's to me. You've got to listen to me. You've got to... Sorry you had all this trouble, Mr. Perigi. Poor chap. He is obviously suffering from delusion. Well, he's not the only one in Washington today. You know, we've been getting a whole string of crack-ups lately. Big wigs blowing their tops under pressure. If you could see some of the names in our confidential files... You keep confidential files on cases like this? Certainly. Believe me, they'd be dynamite if they ever got in the wrong hands. Well, I'd I better be running the wrong I- <laughs> Hey, is that a talking doll? Yes, Sergeant. My name is Toto. I dance and sing. Well, I'll be. <laughs> hey, my little girl would be nuts for that. So? Then please accept the doll for saving my life. That madman might have killed me. Yes, but I... Take uh... Toto home with you as a gift. Well, now, I don't know, Mr. Parigi. It's against regulations for us to accept favors. But this I... is not for you. It is for your little daughter. And if you will only take the doll and give him a good home, you will be doing me a great favor. Well, then, if you insist, and and thanks very much. (laughs) When my kid sees this, will she be surprised? Yes, Toto will come as a great surprise. A very great surprise. Eh, Toto? Tonight, Dimension X has transcribed Parigi's Wonderful Dolls, an original radio drama written by George Lefferts. Les Damon appeared as Colonel Grayson and Joan Alexander as Alma with Ninis Alexander as Cindy. Joe DeSantis played Santor Parigi and Leon Janty was Toto, the talking doll. Engineer Bill Chambers, your narrator was Norman Rose. Music by Albert Berman. Dimension X is produced by Van Woodward and directed by Edward King. In a moment, we'll tell you about next week's show.
And now, here is your Wheaties man, Frank Martin. Look at your Wheaties in a cereal bowl and, well, they look pretty innocent, don't they? They're crisp, all right, and golden brown. And you know they've got that wonderful Wheaties nut-like taste. But where does all that energy come from? What is it about Wheaties that give you all those vitamins and minerals and protein? I'll tell you what it is. There's a whole kernel of wheat in every Wheaties flake. Not just a portion of a kernel, mind you, but a whole kernel of wheat. Now, that begins to explain things, doesn't it? Tells you why Wheaties energy helps you feel good all morning long, like I keep saying. No wonder they're America's favorite whole wheat flake. Breakfast of champions and all that. Now you know why Wheaties at 7 can help at 11. Wheaties. Next week, the strange story of a curse that came true. It's the story of the castaways. Another adventure into the unknown world of tomorrow. The world of... Dimension X. And this is the Wheaties man, Frank Martin, inviting you to listen Saturday, that's tomorrow night, to Joel McRae in Tales of the Texas Rangers on the Wheaties Big Parade. See you then. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creature's that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds, as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, Intellects, vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. Near the end of October, business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley Service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radios. Not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern state, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature 66, minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. 
We'll take you now to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. With a touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Compensita. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello, playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York. tune that never loses favor, the ever-popular Stardust, Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with a noted astronomer, Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on this event. In a few moments, we will take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, New Jersey. We return you until then to the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. We are ready now to take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, where Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. We take you now to Princeton, New Jersey. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Carl Phillips speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton. I'm standing in a large semicircular room, pitch black except for an oblong spread in the ceiling. Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of the huge telescope. Ticking sounds you hear is the vibration of the clockwork. Professor Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform, peering through the giant lens. I ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides the ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by telephone or other communication. During this period, he is in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may I begin our questions? 
At any time, Mr. Cook. Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disc swimming in a blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disc. Quite distinct now, because Mars happens to be at the point nearest the Earth, in opposition, as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, Professor? Huh. Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips. Please. Although, that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then, you're quite convinced, as a scientist, that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? Say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet, how do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Phillips, I cannot account for it. Oh, by the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from the Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. <laughs> well, that seems a safe enough distance. Uh, just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. While he reads it, let me remind you that we, we are speaking to you from the observatory in Princeton, New Jersey... Well, we are interviewing the world-famous astronomer, Professor Pearson. Uh, one moment, please. Professor Pearson has passed me a message which he has just received. Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience? Certainly. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the Natural History Museum, New York. Quote, 9.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Seismograph registered shock of almost earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Princeton. Please investigate... Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. Unquote. Professor Pearson, could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Uh, hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, for the past ten minutes, we've been speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton, bringing you a special interview with Professor Pearson, noted astronomer. This is Carl Phillips speaking. We are returning you now to our New York studio. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. Toronto, Canada. Professor Morse of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. Now nearer home comes a special bulletin from Trenton, New Jersey. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give you a word picture of the scene as soon as he can reach there from Princeton. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millett and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. Take you now to Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmot Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles in Princeton in 10 minutes. Well, I hardly know where to begin. Painfully, you were worried to the strange scene before my eyes, like something out of a modern Arabian night. 
Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it. Yes, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. But I can see the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. Has a diameter of, um, um, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? Uh, what would you say, uh, what's the diameter of this? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheet is, well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white. It's curious. Spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. They're getting in front of my line. Uh, 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 would you mind standing one side, please? While the police are pushing the crowd back. Here's Mr. Wilmoth, owner of the farm here. He may have some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmoth, uh, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? Uh, step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Wilmoth. Well, I was listening to the radio. Uh, closer and louder, please. Pardon me? Uh, louder, please, closer. Yes. <laughs> I was listening to the radio and kind of drowsy. That professor fellow was talking about Mars, so I was half chosen, half... Yes, yes, Mr. Wilmot, and uh, then what happened? Well, as I was saying, I was listening to the radio, kind of halfway... Yes, Mr. Wilmot, and then you saw something. Well, not first off. I heard something. And what did you hear? A hissing sound like this. Uh, kind of like a 4th of July rocket. Yes, then what? I turned my head out the window and would have sworn I was asleep and dreaming. Yes. I seen a kind of greenish streak and then zingle. Something smacked the ground. Knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, were you frightened, Mr. Wilmot? Well, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was kind of riled. Well, thank you, Mr. Wilmot. Thank you very much. Yeah, you want me to tell No, that's quite all right. That's plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm, where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene. Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in back of us, and the police are trying to rope off the roadway leading into the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. Car's headlights throw an enormous spotlight on the pit where the object's half buried. Now, some of the more daring souls now are venturing near the edge. Yeah, the silhouette stand out against the metal sheet. <laughs> One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with a policeman. Now, the policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen, please. Do you hear it? The curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll uh, move the microphone nearer. Here. Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson? Yes, sir. Uh, can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I say, do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this earth. Friction with the earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and you can see it's cylindrical shape. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw and this thing must be hollow. He's moving! Keep those back! Keep those idiots back! Keep those idiots back! Look out, Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I, I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Something I can see turning out of that black hole through luminous discs. The eyes, it might be a face, might be almost a heaven. Something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. I can see the thing's body. Now it's large, large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but that face, it, it, 
Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is that's kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seems to oh, quiver and pulsate and the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now and the crowd falls back. It seems plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen, I can't find words. Well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description until I can... Take a new position. Hold on, will you, please? I'll be right back in a minute. We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, my aunt. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilma's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. More state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. Those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. Pumped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! The whole field's caught up by the woods of fire. They're gas tanks, tanks for the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Indelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been handed a message that came in from Grover's Mill by telephone. Just one moment, please. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith, commander of the state militia at Trenton, New Jersey. I have been requested by the governor of New Jersey to place the counties of Mercer and Middlesex as as far west as Princeton and uh, east to Jamesburg under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding from Trenton to Grover's Mill and uh, will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to General Montgomery Smith, commanding the state militia at Trenton. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, 
crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Grover's Mill, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you to... Just one moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Grover's Mill where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by Direct Wire. Professor Pearson. Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It's my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. That is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Trenton. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in the Trenton Hospital. Now, here's another bulletin from Washington, D.C. The office of the director of the National Red Cross reports ten units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia, stationed outside of Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Here's a bulletin from State Police, Princeton Junction. The fires at Grover's Mill and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit, and there is no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement from Mr. Harry McDonald, vice president in charge of operations. We have received a request from the state militia of Trenton to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. In view of the gravity of the situation, and believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia at Trenton. We take you now to the field headquarters of the state militia near Grover's Mill, New Jersey. This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps attached to the state militia, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Grover's Mill. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object that lies in a pit directly below our position, surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry, without heavy field pieces, but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns. All cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. Things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all their reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. Anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their cocky uniforms, crossing back and forth in front of the lights. Looks almost like a real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering the Millstone River. Probably fire started by campers. Well, uh, we ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it'll all be over. Now, wait a minute. I see something on top of the cylinder. No, no, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Wilmoth Farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. A tub, rather. Well, wait, that wasn't a shadow. It's something moving. Solid metal. Kind of a shield-like affair rising up out of the cylinder. Going higher and higher. What? It's 
It's standing on legs, actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees and the searchlights are on it. Hold on. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grover Mills has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against the single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of the middle section of New Jersey and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down from Pennsylvania to the Atlantic Ocean. Railroad tracks are torn and service from New York to Philadelphia discontinued except routing some of the trains through Allerton and Phoenixville. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Philadelphia, Camden, and Trenton. It is estimated to twice their normal population. Martial law prevails throughout New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. At this time, we take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area, and we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. You have just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We're informed that the central portion of New Jersey is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat ray upon power lines and electrical equipment. There is a special bullet in New York. Cables have been received from English, French, and German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The majority voiced the opinion that the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. There have been several attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of Princeton, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared he was lost in the recent battle. Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops, moving north toward Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. The heat ray is not in use, although advancing at express train speed, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside, wherever they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here is a bulletin from Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Coon hunters have stumbled on a second cylinder, similar to the first, embedded in the Great Swamp, 20 miles south of Morristown. Army field pieces are proceeding from Newark to blow up the second invading unit before the cylinder can be opened in the fighting machine rig. They are taking up a position in the foothills of Watchung Mountain. Another, another, another Bolton from Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report enemy machines, now three in number, increasing speed northward, kicking over houses and trees in their evident haste to form a conjunction with their allies south of Morristown. 
Machine's also sighted by telephone operator east of Middlesex within 10 miles of Plainfield. Here's a bulletin from Winston Field, Long Island. A fleet of army bombers carrying heavy explosives flying north in pursuit of enemy. Scouting planes act as guides. They keep the speeding enemy in sight. Just a moment, please, ladies and gentlemen. We've, uh, we've run special wires to the artillery line in adjacent villages to give you direct reports from the zone of the advancing enemy. First, we take you to the battery of the 22nd Field Artillery, located in the Washington Mountains. Range 32 meters. 32 meters. Projection 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire! 140 yards to the right, sir. Shift range, 31 meters. 31 meters. Projection 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire! Yes, sir. Got the type of one of them. Stop. The others are trying to repair it. Quick, get the range. Shift 50, 30 meters. 30 meters. Projection 27 degrees. 27 degrees. Fire. Can see the cell answer. Letting off a smoke. What is it? Black smoke, sir. Moving this way. Flying close to the ground. Moving fast. Put on gas masks. Get ready to fire. Shift to 24 meters. 24 meters. Projection 24 degrees. 24 degrees. Fire. See, sir. Looks coming nearer. Get the range. Twenty-three <coughs> meters. Twenty-three meters. Army bombing plane V-843 off Bayonne, New Jersey. Lieutenant Volt, commanding eight bombers, reporting to Commander Fairfax Langham Field. This is Volt reporting to Commander Fairfax Langham Field. Enemy tripod machines now in sight. Reinforced by three machines from the Morristown Cylinder. Six altogether. One machine partially crippled. Believed hit by shell from Army gun in Wachung Mountains. Guns now appear silent. A heavy black fog hanging close to the earth of extreme density, nature unknown. No sign of heat ray. Enemy now turns east, crossing Passaic River into the Jersey marshes. Another straddles the Pulaski Skyway. Evident objective is New York City. They're pushing down a high-tension power station. Machines are close together now, and we're ready to attack. Planes circling, ready to strike. Thousand yards and we'll be over the first. Eight hundred yards. Six hundred. Four hundred. Two hundred. There they go. Giant arm raised. Green flash. Spraying us with flame. 2,000 feet. Engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Only one thing left. Drop on them, plane and all. We're diving on the first one. Now the engine's gone. This is Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. This is Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. Come in, please. Langham Field. Go ahead. Eight army bombers in engagement with enemy tripod machines over Jersey Flats. Engines incapacitated by heat ray. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. 
Enemy now discharging heavy black smoke in direction of... Newark, New Jersey. Newark, New Jersey. Warning. Poisonous black smoke pouring in from Jersey marshes. Reaches South Street. That map's useless. Urge population to move into open spaces. Automobiles use Route 7, 23, 24. Avoid congested areas. Smoke now spreading over, over Raymond Boulevard. 2X2L calling CQ. 2X2L calling CQ. 2X2L calling 8X3R. Come in, please. This is 8X3R coming back at 2X2L. Eyes reception. Eyes reception. K, please. Where are you, 8X3R? What's the matter? Where are you? I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building. I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. Hutchison River Parkway still kept open for motor traffic. Avoid bridges to Long Island, hopelessly jammed. All communication with Jersey Shore closed ten minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. People are holding service here below us in the cathedral. Now I look down the harbor, all, all manner of boats, overloaded with fleeing population, pulling out from docks. Streets are all jammed. Noise in crowds like New Year's Eve in the city. Wait a minute. The, the enemy is now in sight above the Palisades. Five... Five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, wading, wading the Hudson like a man wading through a brook. A bulletin is handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Seem to be time and space. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over the city. Steel cowlish head is even with the skyscrapers. He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the street see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them, dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. Uh, a hundred yards away. It's 
Calling CQ. 2X2L calling CQ. 2X2L calling CQ, New York. Is there anyone on the air? Is there anyone on the air? Is there anyone? 2X2L. You are listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, starring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air. set down these notes on paper. I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on earth. I've been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life, a life that has no continuity with the present, furtive existence of the lonely derelict who Pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Richard Pearson. Look down at my blackened hands. Try to connect them with a professor who lives at Princeton and who on the night of October 20th glimpsed through his telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My wife, my colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory... My world, where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Richard Pearson? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? Writing down my daily life, I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book that was meant to record the movements of the stars, but Right, I must live, and to live, I must eat. Find moldy bread in the kitchen and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. Keep watch at the window. Time to time, I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. Smoke still holds the house in its black coil, but thanks to the hissing sound, and suddenly I see a Martian mounted on his machine, spraying the air with a jet of steam as if to dissipate the smoke. I... Watching a corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. Morning. Morning. Sun streams in the window. A black cloud of gas is lifted, and the scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm has passed over them. I venture from the house. I make my way to a road, no traffic. Here in their wrecked car, baggage overturned, a blackened skeleton. Push on north. Some reason I feel safer trailing these monsters and running away from them. And I keep a careful watch. I've seen the Martians feed. Should one of their machines appear over the top of trees, I'm ready to fling myself flat on the earth. Come to a chestnut tree. October. Chestnuts are right. Throw my pockets. I just keep alive. Two days I wander in a vague northerly direction through a desolate world. Finally, I notice a living creature. 
A small red squirrel in a beech tree. I stare at him and wonder. He stares back at me. I believe at that moment the animal and I shared the same emotion. The joy of finding another living being. Push on north. I find dead cows in a brackish field and beyond the charred ruins of a dairy in a silo. Main standing guard over the wasteland like a lighthouse. Deserted by the sea. Stride the silo, purchase a weathercock. The arrow points north. North. Next day I come to a city. City vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its building strangely dwarfed and leveled off as if a giant had sliced off its highest towers with a capricious sweep of his hand. Reached the outskirts. I found Newark. Newark. Undemolished, but humbled by some whim of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step towards it and rose up and became a man. A man armed with a large knife. Stop! Where do you come from? I come from... from many places. A long time ago, from Princeton. Princeton? Near Grover's Mill. Yes. Grover's Mill. <laughs> There's no food here. This is my country. All this end of town down the river. There's only food for one. Which way are you going? I don't know. I guess I'm looking for people. Hey, what was that? You hear something just then? No. Only a bird. A live bird. Get to know that birds have shadows these days. Say, we're in the open here. Let's crawl in this doorway here and talk. Have you seen any Martians? No. They've gone over to New York. Night, the sky's alive with their lights, just as if people were still living. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I think they're learning how to fly. Fly? Yeah, fly. Then it's all over with humanity. Stranger, there's still you and I. Two of us left. Yeah. They got themselves in solid. They wrecked the greatest country in the world. Those green stars, they're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're licked. Where were you? You're in a uniform. Yeah, what's left of it. I was in the militia. National Guard. <laughs> That's good. There wasn't any war. Any more than there's war between men and ants. Yes, but we're eatable ants. I found that out. What'll they do to us? I thought it all out. Right now, we're caught as we're wanted. The Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. If they won't keep on doing that, they'll begin catching us systematic-like, keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us yet. Not begun? Not begun. All that's happened so far is because we don't have sense enough to keep quiet. Bothering them with guns and such stuff and losing our heads and rushing off in crowds. Now, uh, instead of our rushing around blind, we got to fix ourselves up. Fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities, nations, civilization, progress. Yes, but if that's so, what is there to live for? Well, there won't be any more concerts for a million years or so and no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up. What is there left? Life, that's what. I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We're not going to be exterminated. I don't mean to be caught either. Tamed and fattened and bred like an ox. What are you going to do? I'm going on. Right under their feet. 
I got a plan. We men, as men, we're finished. We don't know enough. We got to learn plenty before we got a chance. And we've got to live and keep free what we learn, see? I've thought it all out, see? Well, tell me the rest. Well, it isn't all of us that are made for wild beasts. That's what it got to, that's what it got to be. That's why I watched you. Watched you. All those little office workers that used to live in these houses, they'd be no good. They haven't any stuff in them. Run. Run off to work. I've seen hundreds of them running to catch their commuters train in the morning. Afraid they could can if they didn't. Running back at night. Afraid they wouldn't be in time for dinner. Lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents. Yeah, and on Sundays, worried about the hereafter. The Martians, they'll be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages. Good food. Careful breeding. No worries. Yeah, after a week or so of chasing around the fields on empty stomachs, they'll come and be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? Sure, you bet I have. That isn't all. These Martians are going to make pets of someone. Train them to do tricks. Who knows, get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. Yeah. And some, maybe. They'll train to hunt us. Oh, no, it's impossible. Yes, they will. There's men who do it gladly. In the meantime, you and I and others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own the earth? I got it all figured out. To live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers. Under New York, there are miles and miles of them. The main ones, they're big enough for anybody. Then there's cellars, vaults, underground storerooms, railway tunnels, subways. You begin to see, huh? They got a bunch of strong men together. No weak. That rubbish, out. As you meant me to go. All right. Give you a chance, didn't I? Won't quarrel about that. Go on. Well, you got to make safe places for us to stay in, see? Get all the books we can. Science books. That's where men like you come in, see? We raid the museums. We'll even spy on the Martians. May not be so much we have to learn before... Just imagine this. Four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat rays right and left. Not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, see? But men. Men who've learned the way how. May even be in our time. Gee. Imagine having one of them lovely things with a heat ray wide and free. We'd turn it on Martians. We'd turn it on men. We'd bring everybody down on their knees. That's your plan. Yeah. You. Me. more. We don't the world. I see. Hey. Hey, what's the matter? Where are you going? Not to your world. Bye, stranger. Well, after parting with the artilleryman, I came at last to the Holland Tunnel, entered that silent tube, anxious to know the fate of the great city on the other side of the Hudson. Cautiously, I came out of the tunnel and made my way up Canal Street. Reached 14th Street, and there again was Black powder and several bodies and an evil, ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses. I wandered up through the 30s and 40s, stood alone on Times Square, caught sight of a lean dog running down 7th Avenue with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws and a pack of starving mongrels at his heel. Made a wide circle around me as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. Walked up Broadway in the direction of that, that strange powder past silent shop windows, displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks. 
Past the Capitol Theater. Silent. Dark. Past a shooting gallery where a row of empty guns faced an arrested line of wooden ducks. Near Columbus Circle, I noticed models of 1939 motor cars in the showrooms facing empty streets. Over the top of the General Motors building, I watched a flock of black birds circling in the sky. Hurried on. Suddenly, I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine, standing somewhere in Central Park, gleaming in the late afternoon sun. Insane idea. I, I, I rushed recklessly across Columbus Circle and into the park. I, I climbed a small hill above the pond at 60th Street, and from there I could see, standing in a silent row along the mall, 19 of those great metal titans, their cowls empty, their steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly, my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of black birds that hovered directly below me. They circled to the ground. And there before my eyes, stark and silent, lay the Martians with the hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from their dead bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the putrefactive and disease bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. Plain, after all, man's defenses had failed. By the humblest thing that God, as wisdom, has put upon this earth. Before the cylinder fell, there was a general persuasion that through all the deep of space, no life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere. Now we see further. Dim and wonderful is the vision I've conjured up in my mind of life spreading slowly from this little seedbed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastnesses of sidereal space. But a remote dream, maybe. Maybe that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve to them and not to us. It's the future ordained, perhaps. Ah, strange it now seems to sit in my peaceful study at Princeton, writing down this last chapter of the record. Begun at a deserted farm in Grover's Mill. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to see young people strolling on the green where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers enter the museum where the dissembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it. Bright and clean cut. Hard and silent under the dawn of that last great day. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, 
glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian, it's Halloween. Tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations, Coast to Coast, has brought you The War of the World by H.G. Wells, the 17th in its weekly series of dramatic broadcasts featuring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air. Next week, we present a dramatization of three famous short stories. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Now for tonight's story. Let's go beyond tomorrow. Are you afraid to face tomorrow or whatever may lie beyond tomorrow? Do you think you're up to spending a weekend on the moon or entertaining house guests from Mars? Can you and your children adjust to the strange, new, wonderful world that is being wrought in the test tubes and cyclotrons of science? Beyond Tomorrow? Beyond Tomorrow, a new program of probabilities drawn from the vast library of science fiction where anything is possible and possibly may happen to you. Tonight, based on a famous story, The Outer Limit, by Graham Dorr, the tale of a pilot of an experimental jet rocket aircraft about to be hurled 40 miles out from the Earth's surface into the limitless boundaries of space, and there to receive the most terrible warning in the history of man. right, the RJX-1, the top, top secret experimental rocket jet aircraft. We've been babying it, nursing it, staying up nights with it for 16 months now. This morning, Major Westfall is going to wean it. Bill is going to take her out and beat her up to death. I can't impress upon you men how extraordinary this flight is. It's an eight-rocket ship. That's what I said, eight rockets. Eight rockets designed to take man into areas of space that have never been explored before. And at a rate of speed to which no pilot has yet been subjected. Some of you men have already flown many times the speed of sound, so I don't have to tell you very much. Yo? Yes, Colonel? You'll need the F-86s. You and the other three jet boys will be Bill's chase planes. We want observation at 35,000 feet. Yes, sir. Okay, here's how it plays. Pull the curtains on the map, will you, Sergeant? Yes, sir. You see it circled here, your rendezvous point. We designated point X. It's roughly over Boulder Dam. Zero hour is 0900. Joe, you and your jets will take off at zero minus 15. You got that? Yes, sir. UF-86s will make conventional climbs to 30,000 feet. Rendezvous at point X and call into meet control at 35,000 feet. Right, Joe? 
That catch it, Colonel. Oh, no, wait a minute. Not quite. Now we hear about the weather, Pete. Yes, Colonel. Well, the weather's very pretty out, boys. All clear, ceiling unlimited. Winds aloft at 10,000, 80 mph, 25,000, 140 mph, 40,000, 150 mph. Estimated temperature, 45 below at 40,000 feet. There's some scattered clouds northwest of Point X at 15,000 feet. Stratus at 30,000 feet, 30 miles east of Point X, east. We expect no change for three hours. That's it, sir. Okay, Pete. Joe, you and your boys go unwrap your F-86s. Have a nice time. Yes, sir. Come on, boys. Major Westfall. Major Westfall, stick around. I want to talk to you. Okay, Hank. How you feeling, Bill? <laughs> Why? You worried, Hank? Don't worry. Look, Bill, you've got only ten minutes of rocket fuel. Get rid of those jets before you fire the rockets. Fire only one, one rocket, rocket at a time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, look, I'll be listening in on the public address of control. I won't bother you until you're airborne. It'll be between you and the tower until then. All right, don't worry, Hank. I'm going to fly that baby higher and faster than anybody ever did before, just like you said. I'm going to take it up and I'm going to bring it back. And then you and I'll have dinner together, hmm? Good morning, Colonel. Mr. Hargrove. You'll be here at the control with me? It's all right with you, Colonel. I wouldn't have it any other way. You've checked the communications equipment, Sergeant? Oh, yes, sir. Major Westfall's been assigned a special radio frequency at 3970. I've... Good, good. You'll take care of it, Sergeant. We don't want it to poop out or anything like that, do we? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, uh, no, sir. Sir. Hargrove, I got a thing on my mind. That boy in the plane you geniuses designed, he's my best boy. It's our best plane, Colonel. It better be. Now it's your turn. What do you got on your mind? Everything's in proper order, Colonel. Recording equipment, the television cameras in the cockpit, everything. Every known scientific device, even some unknown. They've been very... We're talking about a man, Hargrove. That's all I really want to get back out of this. What about the man? There may be one difficulty. Tell me about it. I'd like to know. The takeoff. With all that load. The jets, the rockets... All at maximum fuel capacity. Never been tested that way before. Go on, Mr. Hargrove. Well, it's just that Major Westfall has only 6,000 feet to get his ship airborne. If he accelerates from zero to 160 miles per hour in 6,000 feet, he should be airborne in seven seconds. Seven seconds at make zero plus G. Yes, Colonel. Beyond zero plus G? Well, beyond that, we... We don't know. We just don't know. Thanks. Thanks for everything, Mr. Hargrove. Sergeant. Yes, sir. Flip your switch on Major Westfall. I hear he's got a swell program. Flip them all, will you, Sergeant? Yes, sir. RJX-1 to tower. Any change in weather? Tower to RJX-1. Barometer reading 29.7. Set your altimeter accordingly. Roger. Wind 15 miles from south. Take off runway 27. Runway 27. Got it. Zero minus one thirty. Zero RJX one to control. Over. Control RJX one. Go ahead. This is just for you, Hank. Cabin pressure okay. Oxygen pressure okay. All right, all right. Get off the dime, kid. <laughs> I take a pill, Hank. You'll need it to settle your stomach. Zero minus one. Zero. RJX one to crew chief. Over. Crew chief to RJX one. Go ahead. 
I'm ready to fire. Hold it. Okay, all set to fire. Clear? <laughs> Starting right, Jet. Starting left, Jet. Zero minus 30 seconds. Tower to RJX-1, over. Zero minus 30 seconds. RJX-1 to tower, go ahead. Western Airlines convoy reported over Ventura. Got it. Eastbound Constellation at 17,000 over Salt Lake. Roger. Western Airlines DC-4 on Base Lake at 1,000 over Burbank. The rest of the air is yours. Thank you so much. Zero minus 10. RJX-1 to tower. Ready for takeoff. Tower to RJX-1. Clear for takeoff. Five. Good luck, Bill. Four. Three. Two. One. Zero. He's rowing. Rowing. B. 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 E. Bill, lift it. G. Lift it. A. Lift it. Bill made it to RJX-1 to control. Come in. Control to RJX-1. Go ahead. Everything's great, Hank. It's a doll, baby. Hey, you must have been kidding with that takeoff, weren't you? It took that long to get off. That makes it a takeoff. How fast are you climbing, kid? 1,700 a minute airspeed, 550. Retract your landing gear. It'll help. Oh, sorry. Call me at 20,000. Heading is 87. Everything is real good. Come in, Hank. How do you feel? I like it here. Pressure okay? Okay. F-86 leader to control. F-86 to control. Come in. Control to F-86 leader. Go ahead. F-86 observing RJX-1. He's really tearing, Colonel. Over point exit 35,000. On schedule, Joe? On schedule. RJX-1 to control. RJX-1 to control, come in. Control to RJX-1, go ahead, Bill. 40,000 feet, Hank. Fill it down, baby. Bill is ready to pressurize. Can you hear me okay, Hank? Coming in fine. Pressurize. Ready to prime rocket system in five seconds. Prime. Dropping right jet. Dropping left jet. All clear. Good luck, Bill. Firing number one rocket. Fired. Oh! Haken, back. Firing number two rocket. Fired. Okay, Bill, what is it? Bill! Bill, are you receiving me? Control to RJX-1. Come in. Come in, RJX-1. Hello, Bill, come in. Control to F-86 leader. Control to F-86 leader. Come in. F-86 leader to control. Go ahead. What about it, Joe? F-86 observing RJX-1. RJX-1 at approximately 60,000 feet. 
Maintaining a heading of north-northwest. I can barely make him, Colonel. Try calling. Okay. F-86 leader to RJX-1. F-86 to RJX-1, come in. Come in, RJX-1, come in. Mr. Hargrove. F-86 to RJX-1. Share it with me, Mr. Hargrove. F-86 to Sit here and run your fingers through your hair and come in, wait and think about it and share it with me. F-86 to RJX-1. F-86 leader to control. F-86 leader to control, come in. Go ahead, F-86 leader. We've lost it, Colonel. Stay up there, Joe, for as long as you can. What do we do now, Colonel? I just told you, Mr. Hargrove. We wait. You and me, we wait. We've lost him, Colonel. You haven't lost me. I can hear you, Joe. Stay up there, Joe, for as long as you can. Hello? 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 I'm trying another frequency, Joe. RJX1 to F86. Can you make me? RJX1 to F86. Come in. Come in. No good, huh? I'll switch back to Channel Charlie. Still can't get you, Joe. I'll keep sending. Firing number eight rocket. Fired. Hello, brother! Oh, brother! RJX-1 to all you ships at sea, to all you people anywhere. This is Bill Westfall approaching 210,000 feet. That's 40 miles straight up in the air, all you people, and that's where I am. You never saw anything like it. No clouds. A color no one ever named before. Silence. Eight rockets roaring at my tail and I can't hear them. Their sound will never reach me at 1,800 miles an hour. Silence so complete that the ticking of the clock on my instrument panel is a hammer in my brain. Silence. Otherwise, nothing. Nothing except... No, nothing at all. Wait a minute. Yes, there is something all right at two o'clock high. Oh, that's really something, brother. Maybe a flying disc and this is a big one. Spinning like a top and it's coming toward me. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Listen. Something has just happened. Something, a missile, a shot maybe through the canopy. My pressure is going down. Something is happening to me. This, this thing, it's like a magnet. I'm being pulled toward it. I've lost control of my ship. I've no control. I'm going through decompression. I'm on the verge of unconsciousness. I'm blacking out. I'm black. Can you hear? You are listening.
listening to The Outer Limit, starring Frank Lovejoy in another thrilling adventure on the exciting new science fiction series, Beyond Tomorrow. In a moment, we'll return to our story, but first, CBS wishes to remind you that there's a lot of bright listening in the daytime as well as at night. Every weekday, Monday through Friday, two of radio's top stars, Arthur Godfrey and Art Linkletter, are heard on most of these same CBS stations. Godfrey is here for an hour and a quarter each day with his wit and humor and the music of the little Godfreys, Bill Lawrence, Jeanette Davis, the Mariners, the Cordettes. For a half hour each weekday, Art Linkletter is on hand with his famous house party. Art's insatiable curiosity, his endless flow of questions, bring out the most human, the funniest things about people. They flirted, fainted, bragged, and fought at his mic and come back for more. Listen to Arthur and to Art as often as you can, daytime. On CBS. Now, back to our story. He had only ten minutes fuel. He's three hours overdue. Well, that's that, Colonel. Well, wait some more, Mr. Hargrove. No point to it. May I make a suggestion, Colonel? What? Give it up. Make your report to Washington. What about you, Mr. Hargrove? To be frank with you, Colonel, in another 16 months, there'll be another plane. The RJX-2. And the Army will give us another man to fly it. Not till we're certain about this man, and we're not certain. What do you propose to do? The things that are in the manual. We'll organize search parties and put spotter planes up in the air. Maybe Bill came down on the ocean. We'll call the Navy in. Colonel, if the RJX-1 came down on the ocean, it would sink in three minutes. You know it had no life preserver equipment on it. The added weight of the... We'll call the Navy in. Whatever you say, Colonel. My guess is... What's your guess, Mr. Hargrove? My guess is that sometime, somewhere, on some beach or in some field, someone will pick up a piece of torn metal. That someone will be holding what's left of the RJX-1. You're aboard the space patrol ship F2J3. Am I in communication with you? Can you understand me? Are we in contact? Can you understand now what I am saying to you? Yes, yes. Uh, yes, I can understand you. Earthman, your brain is in turmoil, is it not? It has great difficulty in accepting what you see. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Accepted. What you see here exists. Uh, all this? This exists? It exists, Earthman. The spaceship you're on exists. Those jet dynamos you see before you exist. Jet dynamos driven by the harness power of a thousand suns. Listen, Earthman. Listen to them. what happened as you listened, Earthman? We have flung ourselves 10,000 miles into space. What do you say to that, Earthman? Why, I don't know what to say. It's beyond the conception of your Earth brain. Then conceive this. 
Try to move, Earthman. You're not bound in any way. Try to move. Don't strain. It's impossible for you to move. There's a screen of force aimed at you. Now it's turned off. You may move about, Earthman. Proceed, Zeglon. Yes, Commander. Earthman, I perceive that your intellect now accepts the fact. You are aboard Space Patrol Ship S2J3. I am Captain Zeglon of the Galactic Guard. Galactic? Galactic Guard? The Guardian of the Galaxy. The Guardian of the Universes. The instrument the Brotherhood of Worlds has set up in defense against such a civilization as yours. What puzzles you, Earthman? Well, I... I uh... Well, I, I can't see you. I can feel that you're here, but I can't see you. There is no necessity for you to see us. It is sufficient that we communicate with each other. Yes, but talking to you is... Well, it's not like talking. It's, uh... Well, it's as if it were all happening inside my brain. It is. That is how I'm reaching you. By telepathy. Do you remember what happened to you before you blacked out? Yes, I think so. Uh... There was a sharp sound, like a bullet hitting the canopy. It was not a bullet. It was a ray. It was necessary to stop your flight. We have so much to tell you. Well, first tell me about my ship. Is it lost? No. It is such a crude little ship. Crude? Easy for us to repair. It will be returned to you. And you will return to Earth. Because you are the Earth's only hope of survival. Hope of survival? What do you mean? I will show you. What you see on this screen before you is a panorama of your own universe. Far greater in scope than an Earthman has ever seen before. Observe. Observe where the line is pointing. Planet 3, Star 5, Galaxy C, Sector K. Is, uh, is that the Earth? No. That dot, that speck you see revolving in the vastness, is your sun. A star whose surface is 12,000 times that of your Earth. Your Earth is not even visible here. What? How did you know we even existed? That was our problem. We first became aware of your planet when we found atomic dust in the upper atmosphere. We traced it to your Earth. It was that important to you? Quite. We determined that you were setting off atomic bombs. That's why the Galactic Council has quarantined you. Quarantined? I don't understand. How? How are we uh, quarantined? We have sealed off your planet from the rest of space. We have surrounded it with a force screen. When that screen has accumulated enough particles of atomic dust, your Earth will explode. Your civilization, you, all life will disappear forever. Listen to me, Earthman. Listen. We've had our own wars. Wars that almost destroyed our civilization. But we have finally outlawed war throughout space, including Earth. Now listen carefully, Earthman. If you continue to make atom bombs and hydrogen bombs, each many times more powerful than the last, and if you start making war with them, exploding them, it would upset the balance of the entire universe, throw all space into chaos. This, of course, we cannot allow. And the force screen with which we have surrounded the Earth will prevent it by exploding the Earth itself. Remember then, Earthman, if you start an atomic war, the Earth will at once be completely destroyed. Warn them, Earthman. 
Listen, Zagdohan. Yes, Commander. Earthman, you will rise from your seat and open that door. Descend those stairs, Earthman. You will now enter the chamber to your left. There is your ship. Get into it, Earthman. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. While we were communicating, the patrol ship has returned to where we picked you up. And now you will be propelled toward Earth. Close your canopy. Open aperture. Warn them, Earthman. Warn them. Fire! RJX-1 to tower. RJX-1 to tower. Come in. RJX-1 to tower. Come in, tower. Tower to 20, man. You loaded, kid. How did you get in on this frequency? Listen, this is RJX-1. RJX-1 coming in for landing. Give me landing instructions. Tower to 20, man. Impossible that you're RJX-1. He's 10 hours overdue. Get away from the area. Area cleared for bomber practice approaches. This is Major Westfall and RJX-1. Come on, kid. Give me landing instructions. I have no fuel. I'm gliding. What? Hey. Hey, yeah, I see you now, Major. Wait a minute. I'll restrict the area. Okay, RJX-1. Go ahead. Approximately six miles north of field. Clear area for ten miles. Being cleared. What's your altitude? Ten thousand. Estimate six minutes to land. Tower to RJX-1. You are clear to land. Runway 9. Wind east, southeast 15. Roger. Coming down. Hank, you won't believe it, but you've got to. I know you won't believe it. It'll knock you over. Now, Ed, just take it easy, Phil. Sergeant. Yes, sir. Have the ship gone over by Geiger counters for radioactivity and seal it. What? Oh, yes, Hank. You better mount a 24-hour guard on it. Look, what did you run into? Plenty. Listen to me, Hank. They said the Earth would explode. They said it was the end for it. They said that? Come on, let's go over to my office. You gotta believe me. Read it like an order, Bill. My what? office. I want Major Donaldson to look at you. The psychiatrist? Hank, you've got to listen to me. over to the office. Well, that's the story, Major Donaldson. I see. Well, Hank, you believe it, don't you? Well, Major, what do you think? I'm not sure. Uh, Bill, these men from Mars... I didn't say they were from Mars. Did you hear me say anything about men from Mars? No, you didn't. All I'm trying to tell you is this. Whoever those people were, they knew all about us. Everything. And they warned me. Our atomic bombs are a danger to the universe. One more and we're going to be the juiciest galactic fourth of July of all time. Explode. Finish. Gone. Like that. How do you like it? All right, Bill. Roll it. Oh, now forget it, Major. All I need is a couple of drinks. Sorry, Bill. Sorry. Not right now. Let uh, the Major give you a hypo. Now, look. I got a drink coming. A lot of drinks. Come on, Bill. The sleeve. You heard him, Bill. All right, yes, all right, if it's an order. Go ahead. There. 
You'll be okay in a few hours. I'm okay now. Sure. We'll leave you here, Bill. It's all right if Bill's sleeping here, isn't it, Colonel? Sure. Yeah. Well, maybe you'll believe me tomorrow. You'd better. Come on, Major. He'll be okay by himself, Major. He's been under a strain, but he'll sleep a long time. Uh, you better explain it to his wife somehow. I'll talk to him tomorrow. Tough. I've heard he's one of the best. He's the best. A combination of nerve and loyalty and lightning reflexes that comes once in ten million times. What about it, Major? How does Bill look to you? I can't tell yet. Maybe a week, six months, six years. I'll need a whole lot of time with him before I can tell. I see. Well, we'd better get some sleep, too. Right. And don't worry, Colonel. He's a strong boy. Best nerves I've seen. I'd say things will be all right. Delusions like Bill's latched onto. Well, delusions like this. Major. Yes, Colonel? Major, when you make your charts for Bill, diagnose him and treat him and do all the things you have to, when you do that, Major, consider this. Yes? How did he keep that plane in the air for ten hours? For ten hours, Major, when he had fuel to last him only ten minutes. Everyday routine, ever dream of a life of romantic adventure, want to get away from it all. We offer you Escape. Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Escape. Brought to you by your Richfield gasoline dealer and the Richfield Oil Corporation of New York. Marketers of Richfield gasolines, motor oils, and other petroleum products. Look for the Richfield Eagle on the cream and blue puffs. Tonight, we escape to a gigantic rocket ship. About to be shocked into space on man's first voyage to Mars. As Ray Bradbury tells it in his famous science fiction story, Mars is heaven. The project is magnificent, overwhelming and tremendous. We return you now to the scene of the takeoff in the desert of New Mexico. Go ahead, New Mexico. Thank you, London. This is Stuart Novins back in New Mexico. I'm standing here on the Great Seal Observation Platform overlooking the takeoff stand. As the moment for departure draws nearer, the whole area has been flooded with artificial light. It bathes a spaceship in a kind of, of silver luminescence and surrounding it, engulfing it, this subdued hysteria of hundreds of thousands of people come to see the start of this incredible voyage of 18 men in the rocket ship, The Venture. It's standing there, pointing upward, pointing toward the heavens, and in a few minutes it will bloom out into great flowers of heat and color, shocked into space on man's first voyage to Mars. As you know, ladies and gentlemen, prayers are being said for these 18 men and their ship. 
the first men, the first ship to dare the voyage to another planet. Prayers are being said by every creed in mosques and churches and synagogues the world over. We take you now to the Basilica of St. Paul's in Rome. This is New Mexico again. We're sorry to come in, but that roar you're hearing, the roar of the crowd, it's the moment we've been waiting for. I can see the crew of the venture walking up the catwalk that leads to the spaceship. The men are entering, and now, now the escape hatch is closed. Now the men are in the ship. This silence, this, this great, awful silence of the crowd, it's the voiceless prayer that's in every heart. They're about ready now. Some lights from the ship just blinked on and off. It's a signal. In just a few seconds, a few more. Stand by. Stand by. They're gone. The venture. It's out of sight. Log entry, U.S. rocket ship venture. One hour out from Earth, destination Mars. Past Keneally heaviside layer without incident. Rate of speed, 450,000 miles per hour. With planet Mars at its closest point to Earth, 35 million miles. Calculate duration of voyage to be roughly three and a half days. Captain John Blackmaster. Log entry, U.S. rocket ship, the venture. Twelve hours out from Earth. While navigating supertension atmospheric forces, port shield generator broke down. Replaced by boosted. Yes? Lieutenant Lustig reporting, sir. Come in, Pete. Have the report on the trajectory, sir? Put it on my desk. Pete? Yes, sir. How do you feel? Feel? Why, just wonderful, sir. Sitting up there in an observation turret, I... I don't know just how to say it, but sights, I mean. Moon so close and Earth looking like... <laughs> and Mars, sir. Sir? You really think we'll make it? Who is it? Sure, Sam. Uh, you weren't asleep, were you, John? No, no, Sam. Just sitting here thinking. Well, don't think about it too much. Sleep instead. You need all the sleep you can get. Who sleeps? Who sleeps when he has no way of knowing what's waiting for him? Look at it through the portholes, Sam. Mars. How would you describe it, that glittering blob of red? That's good enough. Will it consume us? Spew our dust out into space? Maybe it's the Elysian fields, all charm and sweetness and moonlight shining on the restless dead. Which will it be, Sam? I don't know. All I know is that they told me I was an expert in space medicine. At Randolph Field on a plot of ground called Texas, they told me that. <laughs> That's all I know. 
What are you doing up? You're supposed to be in the sack. Well, I'll tell you, Captain. Sometimes a man can't sleep. That happens to me sometimes. So I just wander through the ship, check on the boys, see that they're tucked in properly. <laughs> That's what you were doing with me, huh? No, no, no. I, uh, well, I just... Uh, what made them do it, Sam? What made them volunteer? Man keeps looking for something. There are no new frontiers now, only new worlds. And there'll always be men who want to conquer them. Log entry, U.S. rocket ship venture. 78 hours out from Earth. Approaching gravitational field of Mars. Atmospheric conditions similar to Earth's. Log entry, U.S. rocket ship venture. 79 hours out from Earth. Have this moment landed on Mars at 1,700 hours. We made it. Chemical analysis indicated on ship's instruments shows air to be breathable and will sustain human life. Gravity comparable with that of Earth. Ready, John? Yes. All the men in sick base, Sam. Happy? They're all right, John. You ready? First one, thing. Captain to crew. Captain to crew, your attention. We have landed on Mars. No man is to leave this ship under penalty of court-martial. Dr. Hingston and I will make a brief reconnaissance. Crew will proceed with repair of ship's hull. As you know, our ship is armed against any possible aggression. I can't impress it upon you too strongly. No man will leave this ship until Dr. Hingston and I ascertain that we are not in a hostile world. That is all. Let's go, Sam. You first, Captain. Your Honor, you, the first man from Earth to walk on Mars. This, this grass, it's a well-kept lawn. John, look over there. A house, a Victorian house. Colored glass and scrolls and everything. I don't believe it. Come on, Sam, look at these. Two iron deer on this lawn. <laughs> we had a pair of these when I was a kid. Sam, you hear that? That piano from that house. Sam, this isn't Mars. It, it can't be. It just can't be. It can't be, John, but it is. Welcome to Mars. Perhaps you know that skilled research scientists have worked for many years to develop new high-octane components for gasoline. Components give your car higher antinoc performance and greater power. But do you know that from this research has come xylene? Xylene, one of the highest octane components in gasoline history. Now, listen. Today, every gallon of the famous Richfield gasoline contains xylene. Xylene and Richfield gasoline helps give your car new lively pickup, new high antidoc power, and new gasoline economy. Furthermore, there are two great Richfield gasolines with xylene. 
That means you can select the right Richfield gasoline to give your particular car the finest performance at lowest cost per mile. Richfield high-octane gasoline at regular price, especially refined for the average motor. Richfield ethyl, ethyl at its best, meets the requirements of the newest motors of the highest compression. And remember, both Richfield gasolines contain xylene. Stop where you see the Richfield Eagle on the cream and blue pumps. Get famous Richfield gasoline with xylene. And now we return you to... Escape. What did I say, Sam? Somewhere back there in space... That Mars was the Elysian Fields, all sweetness and charm. No, John, it isn't that. It's what you see. A world like ours on Earth. And this? A small town with good air in it. A small town like the one I was born in. Same smell of flowers, same sound. You think that the civilizations of two planets can progress at the same rate, develop in the same way? I do now. <laughs> well, I don't. Well, look at that house. A Victorian house on Mars? You expect me to believe that? A house with lace curtain windows with port swings with something that sounds like a piano and probably is a piano playing beautiful Ohio. You believe all that? I believe it. I admit it's strange, but I believe it. Strange nuts. It's impossible. We're going back to the ship. Wait, wait. It could be. It could be that there are similar patterns. Thought, movement, civilization on every planet in our system. Maybe we're on the threshold of the great psychological and metaphysical discovery of our time. Maybe we... Well, go on, Sam. Maybe this proves the existence of God. But everyone needs proof. I don't. But how else can you explain all this? John, it fills me with terror and joy. Or whether to laugh or cry. I admit it looks peaceful and cool. Pretty much like Council Bluffs, where I was born. That was a good, quiet place, Council Bluffs, Iowa. I'm... Do you see that, Sam? Do you hear it? I see it and hear it. It's there. A horse and carriage going down the street. Suppose... Just suppose that by accident or something, in another time, suppose that this is Earth. Thirty or fifty years ago. Maybe we got lost in the dimension. What do you think, Sam? So much like my hometown. That house. That room up there with a beaded lamp near the window. When I was a kid, I used to sleep and do my lessons in a room just like that. I'd lie there in the night and I'd be awake. And I could hear the freight trains across the river and... John, do you hear that? I hear Let's go. Where? We're going up to that house and ask questions. Where else? Come on. Yes? Can I help you? I beg your pardon, but uh, we want... If you're selling uh... something, I'm much too busy and I haven't time. We're all at supper. Oh, wait. Wait, don't go. Uh, what town is this? What do you mean, what town is this? How could you be in a town and not know what town it was? Oh. I beg your pardon, but we're strangers here. We're from Earth. And uh, we want to know how this town got here, how you got here. Are you the census taker? <laughs> no. Well, what do you want, then? How long has this town been here? 
It was built in 1868. Is this a game? Oh, no, no, not a, a game. Uh, look, uh, try to understand. We're from Earth. From where? From Earth. Where's that? Uh, the, the Earth? What? Uh, out of the ground, you mean? <laughs> no, from the planet Earth. Um, come out on the porch, please, and I'll show you. No, I won't come out there. You're evidently quite mad from the side. Well, let me try now. Uh, lady, uh, we came in a flying ship across space among the stars. We came from the third planet from the sun, Earth, to this planet, which is Mars. Now, do you understand? You're touched before I call my husband from his pepper. He'll beat you up. That's what he'll do. But uh, this is Mars, isn't it? This is Green Lake, Ohio, on the continent of America, surrounded by the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans on a place called the world, or sometimes the Earth. Go away now. Go away. Let's take a walk, Sam. Yeah. Sam. Yeah? There's something going on here. Something we don't understand. I want you to go back to the ship. If anything out of the way happens, lift the ship and get out. But John... That's an order, Sam. All right. If it's an order. John, look. Look at that woman walking toward us. Oh, what about her? Oh, she looks like... Sam! Oh, Sam, you look fine. So grown up. Sam, don't you know me? It's your grandma. Your old grandma. Grandmother. What's wrong, Sam? This is a happy meeting. And who is this friend of yours? This is Captain John Black. John, uh, this is my grandmother. Grandmother? So help me. So help me, John. This is my grandmother. She's dead. Died 30 years ago. But this is my grandmother. Well, there's no sense standing here on the street. You must come along to my house. There's so much to talk about. You too, Captain. And your friend of my grandson's is mine too. I don't stand there with your mouths open. Come on. Here, Sam, have some more iced tea. Would you like some more too, Captain? Oh, thank you. I would. Well, here's to our health. Health? How long have you uh, been here, Grandmother? Ever since I died. What? look like that. I said ever since I died, 30 years ago. Sam. Who are we to question what happened? What's living anyway? All I know is I'm alive again and no questions asked. Here, Captain Field. Go ahead to my arm. Solid, isn't it? You hear my voice, don't you? You hear it, don't you, Captain? Yes, yes, I hear it. Grandmother. Well, then why go around questioning? <laughs> Just this week. Right. I never thought I'd see you again, Grandmother. Mrs. Hastings. Yes, tomorrow I see Captain. Oh, no, no. Uh, I just want to ask you a question. Mrs. Hastings, is Mars heaven? Nonsense. No. It's a world, and we get a second chance. It's like another Earth. How do we know there wasn't one before Earth? <laughs> That's a good question, John. Well, uh, well, maybe we better get back to the ship, Sam. <laughs> It's been nice, Mrs. Hingston. Thanks for the drink. You'll be back, of course. For supper, I mean. We're having fried chicken and mashed potatoes. Wait a minute. What's, what's that? Excuse me, Mrs. Hingston. Sam? Sam, come here. 
Well, what do you know, John? A parade for the brass band. But the crew, my crew, marks behind the band with all those people. But they're heroes. These people are welcoming them. Heroes. They abandoned ship. They had orders. I'll court-martial every one of them. John, listen to me. They found all relatives and friends just like I have. They have their orders. What would you have done? Obeyed orders. I... I... What's the matter? Phyllis. They said I would find you here. Phyllis. Of course, darling. Phyllis. Of course. Who did you think it was? This is Phyllis, Sam. My what? Ten years ago. After that, I never got married. We're waiting for you. Uh, Your mother and father. They're alive. Waiting for you. At your old house. On Maple Avenue. You, you heard that, Sam, didn't you? This is Phyllis talking. And she said mother and dad and the house. You understand it now. You prove. Same thing has happened to them. Yes. Yes. When I open my eyes, it'll all be gone. Phyllis will be gone. Open them, John. Phyllis. Phyllis. Oh, my darling, my darling. It's good to see you children dancing together again. Your mother would have enjoyed it so much, John. I must have worn her out with all my questions. Don't worry about it, son. You get a good rest tonight. Then in the morning, the days after, we have so much time now, son. We'll all be together. You and Phyllis, your mother and I. So much time. Yes, yes. Don't go away from me, John. Hold me close, I've dreamed so long of dancing with you. Well, I... No, 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 no. No more questions. Just accept. If your mother and father were once dead, and I'm all alive, that I was killed. Ten years ago, I was killed in a horrible accident. And now... Now I'm alive. And in your arms. Oh, tight. Um, well, I think I'll run along to bed now. You children won't forget to turn off the lights. Well, you know what to do. Good night, Phyllis. Good night, Father Black. Good night, son. Good night, Dad. Shall we go out on the back porch, John? Like we used to long ago. Come with me, John.
here. Let's sit here on the steps. Remember that grape arbor? You built it. I remember you hit your thumb with a hammer. And I cried. You're very silent, John. Is anything wrong? Phyllis, I've just had a crazy notion. Suppose this were Mars. But it isn't. Humor me, Phyllis. Suppose it were Mars, and the Martians saw our ship coming and saw us inside our ship and hated us, and they wanted to destroy us, but in a very clever way. Yes. Well, what would be the best weapon a Martian could use against us with our atomic bombs, our hydrogen? John. No, let, let me finish. The hypothesis is interesting. The Martians would use telepathy, hypnosis, memory, imagination. John, don't question us anymore. No more. Well, suppose this town is some other shape, a Martian shape. But by playing on my memory and my desires and my wants, they've made it what I've wanted it to be. Yes. I suppose my mother and father weren't that at all. But two Martians, incredibly brilliant, keeping me under this dreaming hypnosis as other Martians have done it to my men, to Sam. But me, you've had your arms around me. You've kissed me. We shared old secrets. Was that a Martian hypnosis, John? Phyllis. Yes, what is it, John? Where are you going? I've got to talk to Sam. I've got to find out what he thinks now that he's alone with his grandmother. Stay here with me, John. Well, I've got to talk to Sam. Maybe he's beginning to wonder, too. You're not going anywhere, John. Phyllis! B of Sector Q, it is my proud privilege to read to you this message from the Planetary All High. It says, Congratulations on your splendid work in meeting the barbarian invaders and atomizing them. You have proven the complete efficiency of Plan A, and hereafter, mass hypnosis will become standard operating procedure in repelling any further invasion from outer space, be they sub-Martian, from Earth, or any other creature from any other planet. Well done. I can add little to this unstinted praise from the All-High, but I would like to point out to you that what you have accomplished could not have been done had it not been for our space heroes who have risked so much and often given all in recent years to keep the planet Earth under close surveillance. This surveillance, as you know, has been accomplished by our space patrol, known to Earthmen as flying saucers. Ah, they were courageous, these Earth creatures, to brave space in that crude ship. But they were inferior beings, and therefore they had to be atomized. Their extinction was necessary 
to ensure our way of life. Yet perhaps, since this has been your first encounter with creatures from outer space, you, you whose glorious victory this has been, may want to say something. Is there anyone who wants to say something? You? Uh, well, uh, yes, yes. It was a very interesting experience. He said his name was John Black. He was a nice young being. Nice. <laughs> he, he thought I was his father, whatever that is. Uh, uh, I guess that's all I want to say. And you? Oh, no, I, I don't think so. Well, I thought of something, but I forgot. I see. And you? One of them asked me if Mars was heaven. What's heaven? I don't know. Now for the business at hand. The ship, the ship they came in. The destruction of it. Disintegrator squad. Ready. Proceed. Compressed charge. Sixteen atmospheres. Charges compressed. Low velocity. Trajectory two. Low velocity. Trajectory two. Release. Charge. The ship they came in, it's gone. ever consider that taking care of a car is something like caring for a baby? It's easier when you've got a system. And in caring for your car, the Richfield gasoline dealer has a system. It's called Richfield All Point Safety Service. Have the Richfield dealer service your car tomorrow because hot weather is hard on lubricants. Wear and sudden breakdown can occur before you realize there's anything wrong. With All Point Service, the field dealer will change your oil to fresh, rich lube, all-weather motor oil and give your car a careful all-point lubrication job. Gassy, differential, front wheels, and transmission. And that includes service of automatic transmissions with the new Richfield Automatic Transmission Fluid. Richfield All-Point Safety Service also includes inspection and, and care of all the likely trouble spots, such as battery, spark plugs, tires, and radiator. So save time, save money with this one-stop service. Get warm weather protection for your car now with Richfield All-Point Safety Service. Look for the Richfield Eagle on the cream and blue pumps. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robson. And tonight has presented Mars is Heaven by Ray Bradbury. Adapted for radio by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. Featured in the cast were Jeff Corey as Captain Black, Florence Bates as the grandmother, Bill Johnstone as Dr. Hinkston, Walter Catlett as number one of Mars, Elizabeth Root as Phyllis, Paul Fries as Peter Lustig, Ian Wolfe as the father, and Stuart Novens who played himself. Also heard were Ruth Parrott and Ben Wright. Special music arranged and played by Ivan Dittmars. Next week. You're standing on the floor of the ocean. 
pronging up of fortune and sponges, but moving closer and closer to you, his huge sponge hook raised to rip open your diving suit, is a man from whom there is no escape. Next week at this time, the Ridgefield Oil Corporation of New York invites you to escape with an exciting story about sponge fishers in the Gulf of Mexico. As John and Gwen Bagney tell it in The Big Sponge. Be listening. Goodbye then until the same time next week when once again we offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. started to walk across the room, and as he turned, Martell moved. His face stayed dead, expressionless, but he moved. He picked up a heavy wrench, followed him, and then as Roy reached for the switch, he hit him. No! I heard his skull go like a rotten pumpkin shell, and he went down. Then Martell picked up a hacksaw and... No, no, I don't want to remember the rest. It was too awful, too horrible. Midnight, the witching hour when the night is darkest, our fears the strongest, our strength at its lowest ebb. Midnight, when the graves gape open and death strikes. How? You'll learn the answer in just a minute in Terror Out of Space. and terror by radio's masters of the macabre. Our story, which we prophesy will be long remembered as a classic, is by Robert Newman. A tale out of the news and out of man's deepest fears called Terror Out of Space. sat up in bed, straining my ears, listening. The surf was rolling and pounding on the beach at the foot of the cliff. One of the dynamos was purring away next door in the experimentation shack. And that was all. Had I really heard anything? Or had I just imagined it, dreamed it? I didn't know. All I knew was that I was in a cold sweat, shivering even though it was a hot summer's night. But that wasn't surprising after what had happened. Just what had happened? Maybe I could get it all straight, fill in the gaps that had been bothering me if I went back over it again from the beginning. I hadn't wanted to before this. I'd fought against even thinking about it. But now, now it was as if something was making me think about it. That's right, John. 
halfway back in the beginning. Then maybe you will remember. Not so. You start so. When was the beginning? When they assigned me here, I guess, miles from anywhere on the Jersey coast. I knew it was some kind of hush-hush project, and I'd been in the army long enough not to ask questions. I had some ideas, though. When I walked into administration and found Professor Martell there, I was pretty sure they were right. Lieutenant Larkin reporting for duty, sir. Hello, John. How are you? Fine, Professor. Uh, I mean, Major. Well, let's forget the Major. <laughs> I've been trying to. <laughs> I think the Army's a little sorry about the whole thing also. Well, that's not the way I heard it. Some of the things you've worked out in the last few years was something. Quite a break my getting assigned here. <laughs> you think it was an accident? You, you mean you requested me? Of course. What did I take you away from, by the way? Oh, nothing very much. Straight communications, a little radar. Mm-hmm. No chance to continue any of the research you started when you were at the university, huh? No. Afraid I've gotten rusty? Not really. But there are just going to be the three of us to do the bulk of the work. You, myself, and a chap named Roy Shields. He worked with Ramsey Tech. And what's the project? Something big? I think so. We're going to try and establish radio contact with the moon. What? Theoretically, it shouldn't be too difficult, you know. Of course. It, and with the progress we've made during the war... We, well, Professor, it's terrific. One of the most exciting things I've ever heard <laughs> of. think so. Well, don't you? Don't you remember when we used to talk about it in the lab? What it would mean to the astronomers, the astrophysicists, measurements that they've never <laughs> even been able to take before? Yes, John, I remember. Well, then? I don't know. Somehow it... Well, it worries me. How we're going to do it? No, that's all cut and dried. What's going to happen when we do do it? What do you mean? We're reaching out, John. Reaching out into places where man has never been before. We're pretty close to the secret of matter, to the origin of life, and to the mystery of the universe. Sometimes, sometimes I become a little afraid. Afraid that we may stumble on something that's too much for us, too big and... That's silly. Go pick out a bunk and get some rest, John. Tomorrow, we go to work. The work? I remember that all right, weeks of it. And finally, the big night, the night we were ready for our first test. It was clear and cool, the ocean still, not thundering but whispering at the base of the cliffs, as if it were waiting. Every star separate and distinct, like signposts on the road to the infinite. Martell at the table in the center of the laboratory with the charts and diagrams doing the computing. Roy at the power controls, and I at the director. Time, 23.02. 15 seconds. Power, 10.12. Check. You're reading, John. 93 degrees. Make it plus 0.2. Check. Time, 23.02. 10. Power on. Three seconds. Four. Now. How long to wait? We should get it almost immediately. Lag of not more than... Say it! Listen! Huh? That's it! That's it! We've done it! We're in contact with the moon! Yes, we've done it. Reached out into space and done it. For the first time since man had walked erect, we had established contact with another heavenly body. Bridged the infinite with man-made electrical impulses. There was no work done during the next two days, just excitement. Public relations broke the story the next morning, and we were swamped. 
newspaper reporters, photographers, interviews, commentaries, prophecies. Finally, we got back to normal. And a couple of nights later... Yes, it's starting to come back to me now. I remember. I remember. It was the sound of the generators that woke me. I looked at my watch, almost midnight. Roy was asleep in his bunk, and I didn't wake him. I padded out along the duckboards to the laboratory. The lights were on. I went in, and there was Professor Martell. He was sitting at the control table, and he was... Well, he was funny. His eyes were open, but he didn't seem to see me. I said, Hello, Professor. He didn't move. He didn't answer. I took a quick look at the control board, and the frequency had been changed. A little uneasy, I, I tried again. Professor, what are you doing? And then, then something very strange happened. Half of him came alive. His right side first. His right eye lighting up. While his left eye stayed dead. His right hand twitched. While his left one remained stiff. It was just for a fraction of a second. Then... What? Oh. Hello, John. Hello, Professor. Anything the matter? Matter? What am I doing in here? I don't know, sir. I heard the generators go on. I came in and found you here. Strange. Very strange. I went to bed about 10.30. Ever walked in your sleep before? No, not that I know of. Of course, I haven't been sleeping too well lately. Very disturbing dream. Did you change the transmitter frequency that way? Uh, No, sir. You must have done it yourself in his sleep. That would make it more of a carrier instead of a transmitter way. Uh, shall I shift it back? No, leave it. I'd like to take a look again in the morning. Do some thinking about it. The next morning, somehow, neither of us mentioned it. I could be sure now whether we didn't remember or just didn't think it was important. That night... Yes. Yes, it was that night that we discovered what it meant. That we knew. It was the sound of the generators that woke me again. I looked at my watch a few minutes before midnight. And it was then that I noticed that Roy wasn't in his bunk. I lay there. And for some reason I was terrified, trembling. There was something in the air, a feeling of a feeling of menace that I made myself get up. Slipped on a pair of sneakers and went out along the duck walk to the laboratory. The lights were on again. I didn't go in this time, but but I looked in the window. There was Roy, and there was Professor Martell again. He was sitting at the control table with that that same dead look on his face. And Roy was standing in front of him and talking to him. I could hear him through the window. What is it, sir? What's going on? Is anything the matter? Sleep. Walking in his sleep. I better get Larkin and... Oh, can't leave the generator on, though. Gotta shut that out first. He turned and started to walk across the room toward the master switch. And as he turned, Martell moved. His face stayed dead, expressionless, but he moved. He got up without a sound, took a heavy wrench from the work table, and followed Roy. And then, just as Roy put out his hand to throw the switch... He hit him. I heard his skull go like the shell of a rotten pumpkin. And he went down, dead. I 
I couldn't move. I couldn't make a sound. I just stood there, frozen with horror. Martell looked down at him without batting an eye. Then, like a zombie, he walked over to the bench, picked up a hacksaw and went back. And then, bending over Roy's body, he started cutting off the top of his head. A voice from the void. And a midnight waking. Memories. Things best forgotten. Coming back again. Memories of the terror that came out of space and of... Murder! And now, back to Murder at Midnight and Terror Out of Space. That was... That's all I remember then. When Professor Martell bent over Roy's body with a hacksaw in his hand, I must have fainted. When I opened my eyes, I was lying on the sand outside the shack, and there was Martell bending over me. No, Professor, no, no, don't! My don't, John! What's the matter? Leave me alone! Don't come near me! Don't touch me! I saw what you did in there! In where? Where? Just now in the shack to Roy! Aren't you well either, John? What do you mean? I just came up here from the cottage. I had a bad dream. I've been having quite a few of them lately, and I woke up with a very annoying headache. I came out to take a walk, get some air. I found you lying but, there. But, but, I'm telling you, I saw you. I saw you in there with Roy and... And what? Well, I don't even want to think about it. But you killed him. Killed him? Huh. Let's go back to the bunkhouse, John. Take a look. The bunkhouse? Yes, when you see that Roy is where we should be in bed... Maybe it'll convince you that you either dreamed or imagined the whole thing. He led the way to the bunkhouse, and I followed. Still shaken, but starting to feel a little foolish. This was the Professor Martell I had studied under, known for years, the man who wouldn't hurt a fly. We went into the bunkhouse, and Roy's bed was empty. He wasn't there. Martell gave me a funny look. And started calling. Roy! Roy, where are you? Roy! Without a word, we hurried back to the laboratory and... There was no sign of him there either. Nothing. Wait, he, he must have gone out for a walk too, Professor. Or maybe jeeped into town. If it was true, there'd be something here. His body, blood there, John. Well, right there, in front of the switch. But there's nothing there. No. Except that it looks as if this floor was just scrubbed. The floor? You're right. John! Huh? Did you change the transmitter frequency this way? But no, sir. You must have done it. Just the way you did last night. Last night? You mean something happened last night, too? You don't remember? No. Tell me what you saw happen tonight. Everything you remember, whether you believe it now or not. Well, it was... It was pretty terrible, Professor. You were sitting there... Quietly, as if he were a laboratory specimen, you took a hacksaw and started to cut off the top of his head. Mercy. Yes. Talking to you now, I know the whole thing's mad, impossible, but... Yes, mad, impossible, I... but... You... You mean... 
It could have happened some way without your knowing it. Sit down, John. Relax. Tell me what you know about the moon. Well, the moon is a satellite, stellar body, probably formed by our sun in an encounter with some other stellar body. Yes, yes, probably formed at the same time as the Earth. But it may very well have supported life long before there was life here. Life? But we know what its atmosphere yes, is. we know what it is now. But how do we know what it was a million, several million years ago? Suppose, just suppose, that there was life there millions of years ago. Life that reached a level of development we cannot even imagine. Suppose it died out as a form of life that we could recognize, but remained in a form that is eternal. What? What do you mean? In the form of electrical energy. We know that thought is an electrical process. An electrocephalograph will give a definite reading when a man is thinking. Yes. Suppose intelligences continue to exist on the moon in the form of complex electric charges. And suppose a channel is suddenly open between the moon and some other planet. The beams we sent out are our radar beams. You mean they they could come down down the beam, take hold of someone, you, and make you... I'm supposing, John, hypothesizing. But the fact is that the transmitter was set at carrier frequency, and none of us did it consciously. Of course, even if it's true, we have no way of knowing whether these entities are dangerous, malevolent, or not. No way of knowing, but, but they killed. They made you kill. Made you kill Roy. Because he was going to shut off the transmitter, cut off contact with the place they came from. As for the rest, well, they would be intensely curious about the human body, particularly the brain. They would want to examine it. And a Good Lord, Professor, do you realize what you're saying? The taking over of a person's body? Yes, John, I do realize what I'm saying. Well, I don't believe it myself. Have you a gun? Uh, well, yes. Yes, I never carry it. Well, start carrying it. And if you notice me doing anything strange, incomprehensible, don't hesitate. Shoot. I didn't sleep that night. I remember that now. And I was convinced that I would never sleep again. Because it was there then, the moon. It was there all the time, of course, day and night. But it was during the night when I was asleep. That it would be easiest for them. That they might try and... and... <laughs> no, I can't think about it. I won't even now. With the daylight, I felt a little better. Roy hadn't come back, but... Well, there were a dozen possible explanations for that. I went to have another talk with Professor Martell... And he was gone, too. His bed was empty, as if it had never been slept in. I waited until about noon. Then I called headquarters. I had decided that I was going to tell them only facts, things I could believe myself. Hello? Hello, Colonel. This is Larkin over at Radar Experimental. Oh, yes, Larkin. Uh, pretty good, sir. Uh, I'd like to report that both Sergeant Shields and Major Martell are missing. Huh? Missing? What do you mean? I don't know, sir. They were both gone when I got up this morning. Oh, no, sir, I, I couldn't. Not right now. Okay. Then you carry on until they get back, and then I'll arrange for you to do it officially. So I stayed. Stayed there in the lonely shack on top of the cliff, alone. And that was the most awful, terrible week of my life. Only the wind, the pounding of the surf, 
and my fears, fears that were with me constantly. There was work I had to do, but I had to force myself to go into the laboratory. Then, on Friday, they found Roy's body. A phone call took me to town to the local funeral parlor. When I got there, the colonel was waiting. Um, you knew Sergeant Shields pretty well, didn't you, Larkin? Yes, sir. Some fishermen found a body in their nets this morning. I wish you'd look at it. Of course, sir. Uh, right here. Oh, good, good laws. Evidently, the fish were pretty hungry. Well, no one could be sure, sir, but I think that is Shields. All right, Larkin. Thank you. Yes, they found Roy's body. And that night, Martell came back. I'd taken something to make me sleep. It was the only way I could sleep. But the sound of the generators woke me again. I lay there listening, unbelieving but terrified because there was no one at the station but me. Then, picking up my gun, I went down the duck walk to the laboratory. I opened the door, and there he was, Professor Martell. His face was thin, haggard. His eyes were dead, lackluster, the way they'd been those other two nights. And when he spoke... His voice was hardly human, as if someone was using him, speaking through him. Too bad that you woke up, Larkin. You should not have come in here. What do you mean, Professor? Where have you been? We have been looking over your planet, studying it. Very interesting. And now we are ready to go. Go? Go where? What are you talking about? What? What? Are you... you... You said we... Professor Martell, have, have they... Just a few preparations to make. And then... Then... The voice, that horrible voice stopped. And Martell swayed as if he were going to fall. Uh. I grabbed him. And he opened his eyes. He was himself again. And when he spoke, it was with his own voice. John. John, for heaven's sake, help me. Help me. How, Professor, how? Your gun. What I told you, don't you remember? Don't you understand? They've got me. They took me that night. Took me all over the country. Looking, examining, studying. They bit my brain. They sucked me dry. And now, now they're going to take me back with them. Back with them? Back to where they came from. Not my body, they're not interested in that. But the essential me, the, the... It has to shoot, John. Shoot and... And now we are ready. They had him again. As your friend told you, we are taking him with us. But you, you will not remember. You will remember nothing, do you understand? Because someday we may come back. I stood there, frozen, still holding on to Martell. Like a sleepwalker with superhuman strength, he pushed me away. I staggered back against the wall. Stiffly and mechanically, he walked to the door, opened it, and went out. The surf was thundering, the wind blowing, straight to the edge of the cliff he walked, and then went over. But before he fell, he seemed almost to hover for a moment, as if something in him was going not down, but up. Now do you remember, John? Now do you remember? You've got to remember. You've got to. I tricked them. Hold them. That's how I was able to get through to you. But they'll be coming for me any minute. Don't! You've got to do something. You've got to. It's true. They do exist. And they've got me here. And they've got 
found this all written out on the pad I keep next to my bed. Written out in my own handwriting, but a little scrawled and jerky as if my hand wasn't quite steady. Some of it I remember. Other parts, like Roy's murder, Professor Martell's suicide, I don't recall at all. Either I'm mad, completely mad, or... No, no, I can't think about it. I mustn't. Anyway, if I showed this to anyone, the world would think I'm mad. So now I'm going to burn it. Burn it up completely. White and shaking, John Larkin tears the scrawled pages from his notebook, crumples them into an ashtray, and puts a match to them. Thus there disappears into ashes the only remaining evidence of the terror from out of space and of murder at midnight. to be with us again when death comes in some unknown form. The clocks strike twelve for murder at midnight. The part of John Larkin was played by George Petrie and Peter Capel was Professor Martell. With music by Charles Paul, Murder at Midnight was directed by Anton M. Leader. Far horizons of the unknown come tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of a future. Adventures in which you'll live in a million could be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company presents X minus one. Prime difference. But first, hear this. This is Bill Goodwin. You know, someone once said humor 
is the true democracy. And that's why we Americans can smile when we tell the stories of the legendary heroes who helped to build our country's great institutions and industries, like transcontinental transportation. Ever hear of Windwagon Smith? Well, in the early pioneering days, most of the traveling was done by ox team. And if folks covered 15 miles a day, they were doing good. That's about the time Windwagon Smith showed up with his prairie clipper. The clipper was a wagon without any animals to pull it, but with a sail sticking up from the middle of the wagon. When the wind caught the sail, the wagon took off. And that's where Windwagon Smith got his name. He figured he might be able to cover as much as 70 miles a day with the clipper, and folks began to figure it might be a good thing when Windwagon pointed out how fast the country was growing and how more transportation was needed to haul people and goods. Then he invited the United States Secretaries of War and the Navy to ride on the clipper's maiden voyage. But disaster struck. The clipper got out of control, the Secretary of War rolled out, and the Secretary of the Navy landed in a cactus patch. But Windwagon and the Clipper kept going and never stopped. As transportation grew in America, people all over the country claimed to have seen Windwagon Smith. He was in the pilot house of the first steamboat to sail up the Yellowstone. He held the golden spike when the first transcontinental railroad was completed. And when the first transcontinental plane roared out of Kansas City, it was Windwagon Smith, the spirit of American transportation, who waved the pilot on his way. Yes, it is a democracy which lets us tell stories of such legendary heroes with a twinkle in our eyes and a chuckle in our throats. And so long as we continue to laugh together as a people, ladies and gentlemen, we will live together as a nation. Now, X minus one and prime difference. I suppose every guy reaches a point once in his lifetime where he gets 140% fed up with his wife. Understand, now, I've got nothing against marriage. Marriage is great. A good, red-blooded American institution. Only, it's so permanent. Especially when you're married to a woman like March. Ah, she was a dream to look at. Tawny hair and sulky gray eyes and a shape that could set your teeth chattering. But she had a tongue like a number 10 wood rasp and a list of grievances long enough to paper a ballroom. Why do you always upset me in the morning when I've got a headache? I'm not trying to upset you. Now, you deliberately... I'm trying to have my coffee so I can go down to the office and earn a living. A living. Go ahead. Run away. That's all you've done all our married life. Whenever there's something unpleasant to be faced, you run away. I'd even forgotten what the unpleasant something was. Well, then I'll remind you. It's your own selfish, indulgent nature. Staying out till after midnight when I was here waiting and suffering. I was working. I was at the office working. I know you were at the office, dear. I phoned, remember? Well, then what in blame? Only you weren't working. Your breath Oh, listen, listen. I fired Miss Carver. She was okay, but I fired her for you. It was her last day. We all had a couple of drinks, that's all. Maybe we just weren't meant for each other. I don't know. If we'd been living back in the blissful 50s, I might have divorced her. But this was 1974. And what with the Family Togetherness Act of 68 and the Agreed Spouse Compensation Act of 69, I'd have been an outcast and a pauper for the rest of my life. 
So you can't really blame me, can you? For looking for another way out, I mean. Oh, come. Oh, hi, Harry boy. Say, George, I just took your new secretary out in the waiting room. Oh, is she here already? Oh, boy. I tell you, if I had a secretary like that, the first thing I'd do is go out and get myself an Ego Prime. A what? An Ego Prime, a duplicate of myself to send home to the wife evenings. You know, that's strictly against the law, it's Harry. So speeding, but everybody does it. Well, anyway, I wouldn't think of it. It's indecent. Oh, it's just joking, Georgie boy, just joking. Still, it's, uh, it's fun to think about, huh? Freedom from wife. Absolutely safe and harmless. Not even too expensive if you had the right contacts. Well, uh, you're coming. Mr. Fairclaw? Yes. I'm Jerry Lamont. Your new secretary. <clears throat> what did I tell you, Georgie boy? Uh, Harry, if you don't mind, I'd like to get right down to work with Miss Lamont. Excuse us. Why huh? not? Uh, don't forget what we were talking about, huh, Georgie? I happen to know a fellow with just the right contacts for that deal. Yeah, sure. Uh, so long, Harry. So long. Bye, Miss Lamont. Bye. Well, glad to have you aboard, Miss Lamont. Oh, Miss Lamont is so formal. Mr. Blickendorf called me Jerry when I worked for him. Oh, uh, Hank uh, Blickendorf? Mm-hmm. Oh, you must be the girl he, uh... You must have accompanied him on his business trip to Rio. Yes. Well, he spoke very highly of you. Oh. I'm sure we'll get along just fine. Well, I feel the same way. I prefer working for a younger man than Mr. Blickendorf, anyway. When I came home to dinner that night, Marge was waiting with a full barrage. She let me get my first bite of dinner halfway to my mouth and then opened up. Well, I hear you got a new secretary today. <coughs> oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I also hear she's 5'8 and tapes out at 38, 25, 36 and likes men. That's quite a spy system you've got there. She isn't much of a secretary either. She's a perfectly good secretary. Well, that isn't what Molly Blickendorf said. I don't care what Molly Blickendorf said. Now, where are you going? I have to make a business call. I forgot. Well, I suppose it would be too much to expect you to do your work at the office with that... Mis- Harry? George Faircloth. Listen, Harry, you know that conversation we had this afternoon? Could you put me in touch with your friend? Yes, as soon as possible. The following evening, I found myself at the door of a dingy office in an ancient warehouse up near 14th Street. A little rodent of a man answered. Yes, brother? I'm George Faircloth. Harry sent me. Oh, yes. Step inside, brother. I've been told that you can supply me with... Uh, yes, brother. It might be possible. We uh, get quite a few busy executives who are in a hurry. Can't be bothered with licensing a utility prime. Mister, if I wanted an ordinary utility prime, I wouldn't have hiked up here. I'd have picked up the phone and ordered it. I want a super deluxe ego prime with all the circuits open. 
In short, a carbon copy of me, George mm-hmm. Faircloth. Well, uh, just step back here, brother. Fine. These uh, domestic situations can be awkward. You understand, if the feds find out about this, you're in as much trouble as we are. I'm more worried about my wife finding out. Ease your mind, brother. We've never had one yet. Except for that little shut-off control in the hair behind the ear, these ego primes are identical with living humans. Now, if you'll just step back into the lab and take your clothes off, we'll start. I spent a busy two hours under the NP microprobes. The artists worked outside taking casts and impressions while the technicians worked inside, feeding all my brain patterns into a hunyadi pantograph. I came out of it pretty woozy, but I shot a happy O fixed that. Then I waited in the recovery room until the salesman walked in, followed by a tall, sandy-haired man with tired blue eyes wearing a business suit, who looked remarkably like me. Mr. Fairclaw? Yes? Meet Mr. Fairclaw, Prime. So, this is me. Shake, George. Why, he even talks like me. I ought to. I've got a dozen Hunyadi tubes in my cranial vault with your speech patterns on them. I'll be doggone. Nice job, eh? It's fantastic. Now, the shut-off mechanism is behind his right ear. Now, bring him in every two months for the regular two-month refill and pattern accommodation. Uh, Let me get a few things straight. Uh, How do we change places? George Prime has remote recall. You just signal him with this transmitter... And he'll come to you wherever you are. Oh, good. Uh, Suppose I call you GP for George Prime. Okay with me, George. Right. Now there's the matter of the uh, check. Oh, yes, right here. Yeah, all made out. Good. Thank you. And uh, good luck. Okay. Well, let's go, GP. I'd like you to meet the little woman. Half an hour later, George Prime put my pipe in his mouth and walked into the house. I stayed out in my workshop in the garage and listened. Five minutes later, they were fighting. It sounded so familiar, I laughed out loud. Then I caught a cab and headed uptown toward Jerry's place. We had uh, quite an evening, and I rolled in just as George Prime was starting the car, business suit and briefcase, ready for work. I slipped into the garage. Hey, hold it, hold it. Oh, you're back. How'd it go, huh? Well, you didn't tell me you were married to a female Bengal tiger. Well, she didn't suspect it, she? Oh, of course not. Well, what'd you do? Well, fought till about 1 a.m., then went to our respective corners and sulked. You think you can handle it? Listen, she's really a sweet girl underneath. Now, I'll be so attentive and sweet, she'll soften up. You wait and see. Well, don't overdo it. She is my wife, you know. Naturally. Now, you're sure you understand the recall signal? Perfectly. When you buzz the recall, I wait for the first logical opportunity to join you, and then you take over. Right, right, right. Now, climb into the trunk here, and I'll shut you off and lock you in. Righto. Well, I'll see you tonight, old man. I'll see you tonight, George. 
I could go on at some length about my exploits, but I won't. In the end, it was like buying a three-dimension TV set. After a week or two, the novelty starts to wear off. Well, I got it down to where Tuesday and Thursday nights, I was informally out while formally in. The rest of the time, George Prime was in the box. Well, uh, Marge didn't suspect a thing. In fact, George Prime was having a remarkable effect on her. Oh, that you, George? Yeah. Hello. Oh, you look tired. Have a hard day? Well, uh, now that you mention it, yeah, I, I did. Yeah. Well, why don't you sit down and, and relax? I fixed a martini before dinner. That sounds like a splendid idea. Are you all right? I'm fine. Why? What? Nothing. Well, what are you looking at? Are you? You, you've done something to your hair or something. You like it? Yes. You know, I've always thought you were a darn beautiful woman. Well, thank you, Mr. Faircloth. You know, you're not so bad yourself since you, well, since you stopped scowling and snapping. I guess that's a compliment, huh? George, isn't it about time we stopped clawing each other? It's what I've always wanted, Mark. So have I. And well, you, you've changed so much recently. What changed? Well, you know, you, well, you've been less irritable and more considerate and well, so much more vital. Oh, you know what I mean. Yeah, I'm afraid I do. George. Yeah. Uh, look, let's have dinner and, and some wine and spend a nice evening together. Like we used to when, when we were first married. Why, well, sounds fine. Holy smokes. Hey, hey, what, what time is it? It's 7.30. Why? Well, listen, I, I have to run down to the corner for some tobacco. I wouldn't want to spend a relaxing evening without tobacco, you know. But, but there's some in your holder. Well, I want something fresh. Uh, you chill the wine. I won't be a minute. All right, dear. And hurry back. <laughs> I'd forgotten all about my date with Jerry. Actually, I didn't want to keep it. The idea of spending a quiet evening with Marge was really appealing for a change. But I had to run over and explain to Jerry, so I sent George Prime in to keep Marge company till I got back, which was about midnight. As I walked down the path, I looked in the window. George Prime was there, and he was kissing my wife the way I hadn't kissed her in years, and she wasn't exactly fighting him off either. I almost wore off my thumb on that recall button before he came out to the garage. Are you there, George? It's me, G.P. What's well, about time? I'm sorry, old man. Sorry. Look, I saw what was going on in there. Well, you know, old Bean, I am a super deluxe model. I should say you are. First thing tomorrow, big boy, I'm taking you in to have your circuits rewired. Look, aren't you being a little overly jealous? No, I mean for a man who wanted to get rid of his wife. I never said that. Well, I could never understand it personally. I, listen. She's the one who's going to be suspicious if I don't get back there. Now, you give me that dressing gown and you get back in that box. Tomorrow morning, back to the factory. Marge was waiting for me. And one of those flimsy things that I'd given her when we were first married. I must say she looked so charming and lovely that my heart just melted. And still I was overwhelmed with a sense of guilt and I wanted to tell her what I'd done. You finally got back. I, I thought you'd never get here. Oh, my. You, you look ravishing. That's the idea. Marge, 
Listen, I've got to tell you something, and before I do, I... I want you to know that in spite of the... the cad I've been, I do love you. I always have. I know that. And you don't have to tell me anything. Oh, this is important. And it'll shock you. In fact, you may never speak to me. I know what you're going to tell me. You... you mean... About George Prime. Great Scott, you knew. Well, of course, George. Now, you don't think I could be fooled by something out of the lab, do you? You've known all along? All along. Oh, Marge. Then tomorrow morning, we'll send that stuff dummy back to the factory. And then we'll live the way we've always wanted. Oh, yes, dearest. The way we've always wanted. I... I just don't know where to begin. Then why not begin by just kissing me? I kissed her tenderly, and her lips were softer and more responsive than I've ever known them. Yes, she'd certainly changed. I turned out the lamp. I ran my fingers through her fragrant, tawny hair. My thumb stopped at a little depression behind her ear. And then suddenly, I knew what had happened. It was a turn-off switch, of course. And I, George Faircloth, was now married to Marge Prime. X-1 has brought you Prime Difference, written by Alan E. Norse, and adapted for radio by George Leopards. Featured in our cast were Lawson Zerby as George and George Prime, Anne Loring as Marge, Evelyn Jester as Jerry, Merrill Joels as the salesman, and John Thomas as Harry. This is Fred Collins. X-1 was directed by George Vutsas and is an NBC Radio Network production. We pause now for station identification. Ironized Yeast presents Light. Out. Everybody. It is later than you think. Lights Out brings you stories of the supernatural and the supernormal. Dramatizing the fantasies and the mysteries of the unknown. We tell you this frankly. So if you wish to avoid the excitement and tension of these imaginative plays, we urge you calmly, but sincerely, to turn off your radio now. This is Arch Obler. Someone has said that the two mainsprings which drive the world are hunger and the will to power. I think we'll all agree about the hunger, but as to the will to power, well, sometimes I think it's not quite as strenuous as that. There are some people in this world who don't want to run anything. They just want to be liked. And that's the mainspring of our story tonight, oxychloride X. But before we begin, Frank Martin. Folks, it's a sad fact that today a number of Americans are too nervous and tired out, too thin and run down and cranky to make friends or keep them. 
If that's how it is with you, listen. Maybe you simply need more vitamin B and iron than you're getting from your food. If so, by all means, try ironized yeast tablets. They're the amazing little easy-to-take tablets that give you both vitamin B and iron. Thousands of men and women who simply needed more of these substances tell us how quickly ironized yeast has helped them gain glorious new pep and strength, new pounds, new popularity. The name is Ironized Yeast Tablets. Make a note of it now. And now? Lights out. Everybody. So, uh, I says to him, I says, well, sir, I'd like to be obliging, but I really haven't got the time. And he says to me, he says, well, Mr. Jackson, after all, we're making this proposition only to a few outstanding student representatives on the campus. And uh, we do feel that you should be interested in our proposition. Well, so, what did you say? Well, I said, mister, I can't be bothered. Just can't be bothered. And I gets in my car and off I go. But, Bob, free clothes just for wearing them around the campus. Listen, Stan, my boy, what I want to be a clothes horse for any old haberdashery. My old pappy's got more money than he knows what to do with. Now, what for, I ask? Well, I guess you got something there. Mm. Say, uh, who are you going to take to the dance Saturday night? Hmm, haven't made up my mind. How about that new number over at the Roto House? Ah, uh, no, thank you, brother. What's the matter? Well, did you ever take a look at her feet? <laughs> no, sir. Never got below her chin. <laughs> hold it. Yeah? Ray Stewart to see you, Stan. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. Uh, send him on up. Ray Stewart? Who's he? Well, we're still short one pledge, aren't we? Oh, yeah, I know, but Ray Stewart, who is he? Oh, I met him over in chemistry. Got a mind like a textbook. Oh, but who is he? We can't pledge a man just because he's a grind. Well, we could use a few grinds around here. Exams come around, there's nothing like a few of those brainy boys to pull us through. But who is he? Where's he from? Who's his family? Who's his father? Hold on, hold on. Morning, Ray. Oh, thank you. Oh, it was good of you to bother to come over tonight. It was good of you to ask me. Oh, not at all. Ray, I want you to meet the president of our house, Bob Jackson. Mr. Jackson, Mr. Stewart. Uh, I'm certainly glad to make your acquaintance. I I might as well admit this is the first time I've ever been in a fraternity house. Really? Uh, sit down, Ray. Make yourself at home. Oh, thank you, thank you. Now, tell me, Ray, uh, uh, do you ever go in for any sports back in your prep days? Oh, no, I never had much time for that sort of thing. No? No, I think that sports should be put into their proper place. After all, I'm sure you agree they aren't particularly important. No? And what might I ask is important in your estimation, Mr. Uh, uh, Stewart? Doing things. Being someone. What? Doing things man's never done before. Taking the elements and transmuting them into things which never existed until you thought of them. That, that's important. That's, well, that's being almost godlike, isn't it? Mister, how you talk? <laughs> Sorry, I, I get sort of carried away. Yeah. Well, that's all right. Uh, Bob, uh, this boy sure knows his chemistry. Huh? Oh, I, I really don't know so much. Say, I ought to know better. You pulled me over some tough spots in this course. I, I'm very glad to help you whenever I can. If, if I lived here, I could help you all the time. I could help you too, Mr. Jackson. If I need help, I know where to get it. Oh, I, I didn't mean to it's, offend uh, you. It's all right, Stuart. Uh, now, uh, tell me, you're, uh, you're from around Chicago way, aren't you? Oh, no, Milwaukee. Lived there for years. Nah, don't tell me I'm one of those brewing families. <laughs> oh, no. We're not wealthy people at all. Uh. My father runs a small business. It, it isn't much, but we get along. Oh. I don't think money's important anyway if a person's ambitious. 
Do you, Mr. Jackson? Oh, no, no. What's money? You fellas may think this funny, but... Well, I always thought it's more important what a fella does than what he has. I mean, well, I've always had the feeling that someday, somehow, I'm going to do something really important. Maybe even miraculous. Well, now, what do you expect to do? Discover the missing link? Uh, yes, Stuart. Uh, what is this miracle you expect to perform? Well, I... I don't know exactly. Ever since I've been just a kid, I, I've been interested in chemistry, and I, I've had a feeling that someday I'd... Well, perform an experiment. Mix certain chemicals together, and something would happen that never happened before. Now you hear that, Stan? A miracle man. Amazing, my dear Bob. Simply amazing. I know it sounds silly, but the things I dream about always seem to work out. Well, would you mind telling us the last miracle that worked out? Well, this. This? Well, what do you mean? Well, as long as I can remember, I've always wanted to belong to a fraternity, and here I am. I mean, you invited well, me. Oh, no, just a minute there, fellow. Mr. Stewart, it's been awfully nice of you to come over and visit with us. And someday we'll have you back again. Uh, but now we've got some studying to do, so if you don't mind... Oh, no, no, not at all. It was nice of you to invite me over. Well, good night, fellas. Good night. Good night. Uh, all this girly <laughs> crackpot. <laughs> yeah. Did you see the look in his eye when he was talking about miracles? Yeah. Well, it'll be a miracle if he ever gets back into this house again, I'll tell you that. What in the world ever made you ask him over here? Well, I didn't know. How was I to know he's a crackpot? <laughs> Pledge him to our fraternity. <laughs> Pledge him to the, the booby hatch. Mr. Stewart, if you please, Mr. Stewart. Oh, yes, Professor? Mr. Stewart, might I ask if you're anxious to sever your relationship with this university? No, sir. Then might I ask why in creation you persist in ignoring my warnings? In this laboratory, you're to perform the experiments given you to perform. Understand? Given you to perform. Yes, sir. Then might I ask why you persist in your, shall I call it, original experiments? Perhaps it's your intention to blow up the university. Or just the laboratory. I'm sorry. You'll be more than sorry if I find you doing this sort of thing again. Now, take down this apparatus and continue with the work in your textbook. Yes, sir. This is my last warning, so bear it in mind. Oh, hello, Stuart. Um, how about loaning me your notebook for a few hours? Hmm? Uh, oh, hello, Jackson. You, uh, you haven't been to lab much, have you? Well, no, no, I haven't, but I can make it up. Well, we've been pretty busy over to the house. Initiations and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, Jackson. Yeah? You, uh, never invited me back. I... I thought maybe you forgot. Oh, well, you know how those things are. I I wrote my mother that I was joining your fraternity. Well, that was a sap thing to do. Was it? Well, we hadn't pledged you. Stan simply invited you over so I could talk to you. But you said you wanted me to come back. Oh, now, look here, fella. Don't be stupid about this. We didn't pledge you, so that's that. And you're not going to pledge me? Certainly not. But why? I don't have to tell you why. But you've got to tell me. Oh, quit me. pawing me, will you? All right, you're asking for it, so here it is. We didn't pledge you because we think you're a crackpot. A what? A crackpot. You talk about miracles. You spend every minute of your time here in the lab monkeying around with things you don't know anything about, getting yourself in all kinds of trouble. I'll bet you never had a glass of beer in your life. And if a girl ever looked at you, you'd fall over in a faint. Then you're not going to pledge me? You're not going no, to pledge me? No, we're not going to pledge you. So if your mom expects you to be in a fraternity, you better start cooking up one of those miracles, fella. A first-class miracle. It's so late. Sleep. Got to sleep. Not gonna pledge. That's what he said. Not gonna pledge me. Why do I keep thinking about it? 
If I could only sleep. Sleep? We think you're a crackpot. Oh, I've got to stop thinking about these things. It's not healthy to think what I'm thinking. Crackpot. Not gonna pledge you. Crackpot. What's the matter with not my head? Crackpot. I heard him talking in it crackpot. over and over and over again. Crackpot. I'm not crazy. I'm not. I'm as good as you are. I'm as good as both of you put together. Stop saying that. Stop saying it. I'll show you. I'll show you both. I'm better than you are. I'm better than anybody. I'll show you. I'll show you. I'll show you. Talk about miracles. I'll give you miracles. The lab. Gotta get into it. I'll give you miracles. Dark in there. I've gotta get in. Oh, blasted door. Gotta get in. Window. I'll show you. So dark in here. Gotta find a lab table. Gotta make a miracle. Who's there? Who's there, I say? Watchman. Come on now, who's there? Talk up. You don't have to get so excited. I, I'm a student. Student, eh? Let's have a look at you. That flashlight, you're, you're blinding me. Yeah, I've got to see who you are, don't I? Yeah, I know you. Seen you on the campus. I told you I'm a student. Well, I don't give you no right to be here after hours. How'd you get in here? Oh, broke a window now, did you, huh? I didn't break the window. But I heard the glass. So did I, and I followed the man in here. Man, what are you talking about? Give me your flashlight and I'll show you. All right. Here. Now look behind you. Well, no one will stop me. No one. Miracle. I've got to make one. Got to. Got to. Got to. cc barium. 5 cc selenium oxychloride. Oh, good, good. You're working out just as I planned. Who's there? Who's that working there? Professor. Oh, oh, it's you, Stuart. And after all my warnings. You're just in time, Professor. Yes, just in time to have you thrown out of the university. What are you doing there? What is this mess of equipment? It's my miracle. Miracle? What are you talking about? My miracle. Are you insane? Take it apart, all of it, at once. Hmm. Listen to it bubbling. Beautiful sound, isn't it, Professor? Take it apart, I tell you. Empty out the retort. No. I've got to wait. Are you mad? Turn out the burners. All right, I'll turn them off for you. No, stay where you are. Stuart, put down that acid. I'll smash the bottle on your head if you touch anything no. on the table. No, don't throw it. Put the bottle of acid down, Stuart. Please. My experiment. My miracle. Bubbling and boiling and stewing. It will work, Professor. It's got to work. But, but what is it? I told them I'd create something that no other man has. I told them. And I will, Professor. You hear me? I will. But, but what? A solvent. A solvent more powerful than anything the world has ever known. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Listen to it, Bob. You said solvent. Explain yourself. Yes, solvent. A solvent that will dissolve steel like a hot flame. What do you say? You heard me say it. A solvent that will dissolve steel faster than a razor cutting through paper. Do you know what that means? Well, yeah. Run a line of this liquid across a steel girder. The girder will crumple like a falling tree. Pour some of my solvent into a glass shell and bomb the cities. Tell you it'll make war too horrible for men to endure. Uh, you, you crazy boy, you. You know what you're talking about? I'm talking about that. That liquid there. Listen to it. Listen to it sing. Why, no such solvent exists. Selenium oxychloride, perhaps, but to do the impossible things you talked about would require a quantity so... Oh, the beaker. It cracked. Well, do something. That liquid's flying all over my bench, my laboratory. The stone of the bench. It's eating through the stone. Oh, stop it. The liquid. It's eating through the stone bench. No. No, it can't be. It's eating through the slate of the floor. The hole's getting bigger and bigger. Run! Run! Oh, I've done it. I've created something no other man has done. A solvent that dissolves anything. Anything. 
anything. What's the matter? The lamp. I guess it's on fire. But where's the fire? I can't see anything. The whole school's out here. Hey, hey, fellas, what's up? Well, nobody seems to know. Something's going wrong in the lab. Firemen won't let us in. Something burning? I don't know. Can't get near enough to find out. Well, I can't see any fire. There's plenty of smoke, though. Plenty of excitement. Read about it in tomorrow's paper, I'll bet you. Hey, listen to that sound. Yeah, it sounds like water. Gosh, what is it? Hey, everybody back! The building! It's got a crash! Run! Hey, run! I did it. A solvent that dissolves anything. Anything. Ladies and gentlemen, a deep breath is certainly indicated at this moment in our story of young Ray Stewart and his amazing discovery. And in this intermission, before we go back to further developments in tonight's exciting Lights Out story... I wonder how many of you girls are asking yourselves this question tonight. Listen. Why is everything all wrong for me? Other girls have jobs and do war work too, like I do. But other girls get all the dates and all the fun. All I get is thinner and tireder and more jittery and lonely and miserable by the minute. I certainly need something I haven't got. Well, miss, maybe it's just more vitamin B and iron. If that's it... I suggest you try ironized yeast tablets. Oh, I've tried tonic after tonic. None I've taken seem to help me. But ironized yeast is different. It's a two-way tonic. It gives you both vitamin B and iron. That's why it's been of such amazing benefit to thousands who simply needed more of these substances. Well, I still don't understand. Well, here's how the experts explain it. When you don't get enough vitamin B out of your food, you may lose your appetite. You may eat so poorly that you lose weight and lose your pep. Or you may not get all the good out of what you do eat. And when you don't get enough iron from your food, you may be weak and pale and feel only half alive. So if you're short on these substances, for your own sake, start taking ironized yeast tablets right away, tonight. Then see if before long you aren't saying, I feel wonderful now. Everybody says I look like a million, too, since I gained these good pounds. And talk about dates. <laughs> Everybody's asking me out nowadays. I wish I'd tried ionized yeast ages ago. And now back to Lights Out. Hey, Chief, Chief, look at this. Hmm? What's the matter, Murph? Somebody have sex doublets? Get a load of this, Chief. Came in over the news wires. Read it. Uh, additional on Whitmore University. Mysterious cavity on campus growing larger hourly. More follows. <laughs> Mysterious cavity. Hey, what is this, a dentist advertisement? Oh, don't you remember, Chief? A couple hours ago, that flash about something eating a hole so big a building fell in it. This is the follow-up. The thing's getting bigger. What do you want to do about it? Forget it. What? Don't you see through a gag when it hits you in the face? Somebody's just having fun on the wires. Ha! Mysterious cavity growing bigger. Well, when it's as big as a hole in your head, that'll be news, Murph. That'll be news. Anything. It dissolves anything. And I did it. I discovered it. I discovered it. Yes, 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 yes. Hello. What is it? Yes, yes, this is Dr. Whitmore. Who is this? Who? National News Service. 
Now, look here, my good man. It's four o'clock in the morning, and I'm supposed to be resting. My vacation, you know. What? My university? Building collapsed. But, but are you sure? Yes, yes, I'll call them long distance at once. No, no, I can't give you any sort of statement. Now, hang up, man. I've got to get the operator. 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 Give me long distance. Give me... What? Long distance is calling? Well, put them on. Put them on. Hello. Hello. Yes, this is he. Rogers? Yes, Rogers. What? Did? That's impossible. Larger? But how could it grow larger? Chemicals? Are you drunk, man? Insane? It's impossible. Impossible. But you must do something. Something. Listen, mister. I'm a fireman, not a magician. But that hole, it's 20 feet wider than it was 10 minutes ago. Mister, I don't know what it's all about. No fire and the ground's burning right away. We have $5 million worth of property on this ground. If that hole spreads... For Pete's sake, leave me alone, will you? We've been throwing water on the edges of the thing ever since the building fell in, but it don't do no good. It don't do no good. Gentlemen, listen to this out of tonight's paper. The latest news on the Whitmore University mystery. What at first was treated lightly by all newspapers as either a hoax or a shifting of earth stratum has now developed into an authentic yet unbelievable situation. The hole which began at the site of the chemical laboratory building is now 300 feet in diameter and spreading with unbelievable rapidity. Fire departments and fire experts from all neighboring communities within a radius of 100 miles have been called in, but have been helpless to combat the rapidly spreading pit. Many conflicting theories have been propounded as to the cause of the cave-in, but at last reports nothing definite had been determined. That's the, enough, the... Professor Parker. What about the solvent? Yes. Yes. About... Unbelievable, unexplainable as it is. It is apparently self-regenerating and oxidizing anything it comes in contact with so quickly that we see no fire but only the rapidly growing cavity where the earth is being consumed. But, Professor Parker, what is this solvent? Surely you don't expect us to believe that this student you were telling us about... I mean exactly that. Oh, preposterous. It's a fault in the structure of the earth. There is no such thing as a self-regenerating solvent. Simple cave-in, that's all it is. Yes, gentlemen, gentlemen, if you please, what I know, I know. Oh, it's preposterous. Oh, gentlemen, if you please, if my professional reputation is not enough to substantiate what I've said, then at least you'll listen to the boy himself. He's here. Listen to him. Oh, why should we? Yes, gentlemen, if you'll listen, I'll tell you. You'd better listen to me. Gentlemen, please. What Professor Parker said is true. It is a solvent. It dissolves anything it touches quickly, furiously. The byproducts of that dissolution give it new strength and movement. And I discovered it, gentlemen. I. I know, but what will happen? What can we do? We can wait. Wait? Wait? How can we wait? Look out there. The hole's within two feet of another building already. We've got to stop it. At once. If you don't... The building. The foundation's under mine. It's crashing. Mother in heaven. Harris Hall... Caved right in the hole. Professor Parker, you boy, listen. Which chemicals did you use? We've got to fight it with chemicals. Spread them around the edge. Neutralize the solvent. Yes, yes, that's it. Chemicals. We'll neutralize the reaction. No, gentlemen. Listen. Listen. You may neutralize the reaction at the edges of the hole, but you forget one thing. What? What are you talking about? The solvent is eating downward at many times the rate it's eating outward. You may neutralize the reaction at the edges of the hole, but have you forgotten... It's eaten the hole a quarter of a mile deep already. And it's eating into the earth faster and faster. <laughs> How are you going to stop that? How are you going to stop that?
faster, faster and faster at an ever-increasing rate, this strange cancer on the surface is eating away. It is now approximately 14 hours since the phenomenon began, and already it has eaten outward a distance approximately one mile in diameter, with a resulting damage of over a million and a half in property. Truly, the most astounding factor in this catastrophe is the fact that the hole is increasing in depth at an unbelievable rate. At our last reports, approximately ten minutes ago, the pit had reached a depth of approximately three miles, and experts apparently refuse to predict how much further this earth cancer will go. What only a handful of hours ago was a quiet section of the country in which stood the Whitmore University is now a great gaping pit in the surface of the earth out of which rise strange noxious gases as that burning something eats deeper and deeper and deeper into the bowels of the earth. The latest sonic recordings indicate that the shaft has now reached a depth of 11 miles, 2,342 feet. I'm right on the scene and will continue to send reports as quickly as I get Sure is a crowd here. Yeah, half million, they say. Yeah, watching it and waiting. And for what? Ain't it ever going to stop, Stan? Don't ask me. I don't know. It's going deeper and deeper every minute. There ain't no stopping it. Listen to him. Scared, ain't they? Every one of them. Well, aren't you? Yeah, sure. That hole going deeper and deeper into the ground and nobody can stop it. And what happens when it gets all the way through, nobody knows. Sure, I'm scared. Scared plenty. Earthquake. Help, send help. Volcano erupting. City on fire. Martial law declared. Tidal waves sweeping inland. Nothing can stop it. Nothing. Nothing. Earthquake. Fire. Tidal waves. We're coming to an end. Judgment of God. Judgment of God. From Siberia to Cape Town to San Francisco and around the world again. I tell you, the earth's ripping apart. And I tell you, it's that hole in the ground that's done it. It's affected the rotation of the earth. Unbalanced things. Yes. And it's biting deeper every minute. What'll happen when it eats through to the other side? The ocean pouring through. We'll die. We'll all die. Who's to blame? Who's, who's to blame? Who's to blame? It's that kid who's to blame. Yeah, we read it in the papers. That crazy yeah. college kid. There. There he is. Yes, that's him. That's him. Grab him. Yeah, I blame him. No, no, let me go, you fools, you. I've done a great thing, a wonderful thing. Created something no one ever thought of. No, let me down. Let me down. Let me down, you fools. I started the song, but I didn't know this would happen. You can't blame me for a miracle. Throw him in the hole. No. Yes, throw him no. in the hole. He made it. No, don't throw yes, me down yes, in here. There's me. no bottom to it. No, no. Here. Here, put him down here on the grass. Dan? Yes. Boy, oh boy. Will this be a sensation on the campus? But... Watchman, how did it happen? Well, me, I'm making my rounds of the grounds as usual, and all at once in the moonlight I see this fellow walking across the grass. So I go up to him and I see the fellow's walking in his sleep. In his sleep, sleep yeah. Just when I starts to grab him easy-like, he pulls loose, yells something about, don't throw me in, don't throw me in. And then he runs across the campus and dives headfirst down into the swimming pool. And it's empty. When I pull him out, he's... He's like he is now. Busted neck. But who is he? Anyone recognize him? Yeah. Yeah, I know him. Stewart's his name. Ray Stewart. Kind of a screwy little crackpot. 
Always talking about creating miracles with chemicals. I wonder what he thought was happening to him diving down that hole. Well, Mr. Obler, <laughs> I suppose all I can say is holy... We've quite, had quite enough holes tonight. <laughs> Supposing we talk about haunted houses. Yeah. Whose haunted houses and where? Well, it's the most famous haunted house in the world. In fact, in the good psychic circles, it's supposed to be the haunted house where all the ghosts go. I'll tell you about that, Frank, as soon as you've talked to our audience. Well, I just want to remind you folks that if you're nervous and tired, underweight and under par... And if, like so many Americans these days, you only need more vitamin B and iron, then don't wait. Do try ironized yeast tablets right away. They give you both vitamin B and iron. They cost but a few pennies a day, and you don't risk even those few pennies. For ironized yeast tablets are sold on this money-back basis. If you don't quickly begin to eat and sleep better, to gain new pounds to feel much stronger and peppier. And if you're not convinced that ironized yeast has been of real help, the cost of the first bottle will be refunded to you in full by Ironized Yeast, Box IY, Rahway, New Jersey. But remember, there's only one ironized yeast. You'll know it by the big letters IY on the package and on each tablet. And now then... What about the haunted house, Mr. Obler? Well, it's a rectory about 60 miles from London, just within the Essex border. Ghostly figures of headless coachmen appear on the lawn, and the ghostly figure of a nun walks through the rooms. An old-fashioned coach driven by two headless men gallops across the lawn. No, I'm not more than normally crazy. Fact is, for ten years, these phenomena have been investigated by various thoroughly reliable and well-intentioned gentlemen, but they say the headless horsemen still ride and the woman still walks through the woods at the back of the house. Well, for next week, I've written a play about that particular house. It's a nice, fresh ghost story. Its title is They Met at Dorset, and it concerns the attempt on the part of one hideous Himmler, head of the German Gestapo, to rescue England's unwilling house guest, Herr Rudolf Hess. Yes, I I really think you're going to enjoy They Met at Dorset, but, as usual, that's next week. Lights Out will come to you again next Tuesday at this same time. Be sure to listen to Arch Obler's amazing story, They Met at Dorset. And if you need more vitamin B and iron, be sure to try Ironized Yeast, the one and only Ironized Yeast, with the big letters IY on the package and on each tablet. Stop a moment and consider. Does your shaving cream vanish into your skin before you've finished shaving? Does one side of your face dry before you can get to it? Well then, why not try Molay Brushless Shaving Cream? Molay stays on your face until you've finished shaving. Its protective film helps guard your face against painful nicks and cuts. Try Molay for a quicker, more comfortable shave. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. 
Adventures in Time and Space. Transcribed in future tense. Dimension. This is a story of Riesling, the singer of the spaceways. You've probably sung his songs in school, in English, French, or German. The language doesn't matter, but it was an earth tongue. But the real story of Riesling is not found in the footnotes of a scholar's critique or a publisher's biography. It is in the memories of the old-time spacemen, the pioneers who pushed the thundering old-fashioned rockets to the far, strange ports that are our commonplace heritage. These men know the true story of Riesling. The arching sky is calling spacemen back to their trade. All hands stand by free, falling and the lights below us fade. Outride the sons of terror, far drives the thundering jet, up leaps the race of earth. first met Riesling, he was hustling drinks in the Twin Moons Bar at Drywater, Mars. He'd won a guitar off a Chinese barkeep at Luna City by cheating at one thumb, and he made his whiskey by singing in the bar and passing the hand. Listen to her, Hudson. Don't she strum pretty? Like a 16-year-old gal. Say, how much did you collect on that last song? Three dollars, Marshal, and a slug. Al grabbed it from a bill. You don't trust me no more. Funny, never did have no luck with hound dogs nor Martian barking. Hey, Riesling, look over there by the bar. There's an Institute for Striper giving in the eye. Know him? <laughs> Captain Hicks off the goshawk. He's sure giving you the once-over. Maybe he's got a job. <laughs> they don't make never no mind to me. I've been blacklisted. Hicks logged me for making up a song on watch. Right fine song, too. Uh, hold it. Here comes the brass arm. Uh, Riesling, uh, I've been looking for you. I've been right here, Skipper. You saw to that. I need a jet man on the goshawk. Interesting. Real interesting. Well? I got news for you, Skipper. You blacklisted me, remember? Well, you kept your nose clean. And uh, we need an experienced man. Been a little changing down aft in the goshawk, ain't there, Skipper? How'd you know that? You got that new atomic pile drive. Last three of them tea kettles blew somewhere in the asteroids. Look, it's double pay, but if you're scared... Scared? Listen, fella. For double pay, I'd jump off the top of the Harriman Tower if you allowed me rubber heels for the landing. All right, then. You show up tonight to sign the book. Sober. Got no choice, Skipper. Money and me is total strangers. We lift at 11.30 Mars time. Sober, you understand, Riesling? <laughs> you taking the job? Well, that goshawk is one stinking old tub. Her engine's got more bugs than a beagle dog in spring. And that new drive is about as safe as a pretty gal in the Ozark. But I reckon she'll do for one more trip. Welcome home, Riesling. Hi, Jimmy Legs. Meet my friend Hertzman. He's signing on as a waffle. Wiper. This is Jimmy Legs Casey. <laughs> He's bosun. 
can't hold his liquor no more than a sieve, poor boy. Hey, Mr. Casey. Riesling, you uh, sober enough to sign the book? Drunk or sober, I make my mark. Stand aside. Uh, three X's. <laughs> Took me a middle name. <laughs> yeah, you two lay below. And Hertzman. Aye, sir. Get him sobered up before the skipper makes rounds. Jimmy Legs, I'm sober as a hanging judge. Yeah? Well, you can leave that bottle here. What bottle? The one in your back pocket. Oh, glass buttons, maybe, huh? <laughs> Give it here. Jimmy Legs, I swear I'm going to write a song about you. Go ahead, threaten me. Now, get below. We raise ship in 30 minutes. Riesling, what the devil are you doing up here on the bridge without permission? Figured I'd take a little stroll. Riesling, get below no, before no, no, I hold have... Hold on, Skipper. You'll have that gold braid just crawling up your arm. I'm up here on business. Well? That number two jet ain't fit. Cadmium dampers are warped. Why tell me? Tell the chief engineer. I did. He says they'll hold. Well? He's wrong. He's wrong. He's got a Harriman Institute degree in power electronics. And some drunk space rat says he's wrong. Skipper, I was damping jets when that shirt-tailed tad wore pins for buttons. I've got no time for you, Riesling. Casey, sound takeoff. Aye, sir. I'm telling you, Skipper, that number two jet's gonna blow. Dampers walk crooked like a turtle's back. Riesling, drag your dead head out of here. Get below. Go ahead from the control tower, Captain. All right, Casey. Fire one and four. <laughs> before going into free flight. Riesling and I had the second watch. Damping was done by hand in those days with a multiplying vernier and a danger peeper. And as long as the peeper ticked off slow and steady, we knew the ship was safe for a while. Hey, Riesling, you better stow that guitar. If Jimmy Legs catches it, he'll blow a gasket. Don't worry, I could damp this tea kettle in my sleep. How's number two? Uh, all right, so far. Did you ever hear that song about Hicks, the one that got me blacklisted? Oh, the skipper is the father of his crew. A gentle guiding light to me and you. But on Mars he likes his women if they walk or if they're swimming or if they've got six arms instead of two. <laughs> hey, the, the second verse is better. Now the skipper likes his liquor by the quart. Yes, he go from Mars to Venus for a snort. He'll drink rocket fuel and... Hell, hi, Skip. Didn't see you come in. You were too busy, eh? Who's watching the gauge? I got an eye on it. Don't you fret none. Riesling, I'm going to fix it so you can't get a berth on a rocket-powered pogo stick. Report to Casey under arrest. I don't rightly think I will. You what? You kind of forget, Skipper. According to space code, you can't remove a jetman till the end of the watch. Right? Now, look, you corn-fed space lawyer. Now, I... is that a rule or ain't it? Riesling... Your ship is over at 2300. And I'll see you ride the rest of the way in slop locker. Maybe. Maybe. In the meantime, you clear out of my power room. I gotta make me up a third verse from a song. I got it. Power room. Damn 
number two appoint. Number two, all right. Hey, let me have that mic. Jimmy Legs, is that force drive boil up there? Give me that, Casey. Riesling, I've taken just about enough for you. And I've got a little news for you, Skipper. Number two jet is bulging like a fat lady in a satin skirt. Listen, you clown. Skipper, I think I'm going to junk my song and start over. I could do much better on you. This is the last time, Riesling. Damp number two appoint. Why, sure. Look out, Hutchman. I'll take it. You watch the gauge. Now. She's bucking a little. Riesling, hit the emergency. She won't damp. It's that boy. There go the lights. Tight now. What happened? Number two blew your lunk-headed space rat. You all right? A little sunburn. Uh, the lights are gone. Hey, what's the matter with the emergency circuits? Riesling. Jimmy Legs, get some lights down here. It's dark. Get the emergency light on. They're on, Riesling. They went on after the blast. The lights are on. What are you talking about? Jimmy Legs. Jimmy Legs, turn on the lights. It's dark. Turn on the lights. That blue radioactive glow from the jets was the last thing Riesling ever saw. His optic nerve was burned out in an instant. He was in sick bay on the rest of the trip, and on the swing back, we set Riesling down at dry water Mars. Look out for the cable, Riesling. Thanks, Richmond. Hey, Riesling. That you, Jimmy Legs? Hold up a minute, will you? Oh, uh, Riesling. Jimmy Legs, I promised I'd write a song about you, didn't I? Sure, Riesling, sure. Can't seem to sing like I used to. Uh, look, Riesling, uh, the men up on the bridge feel kind of bad about this. Yeah? Why didn't they think of that when Riesling told them that damper was shot? Now, Hertzman, that's all over. Sure, sure, that's all forgotten. Riesling, let's, let's get out of the Twin Moons before I vomit. Now, hold it, hold it. The skipper feels pretty bad about the whole thing, Riesling. Kind of late for that, Jimmy Lakes. Feeling sorry, don't hold no corn. The boys passed the hat. The skipper kicked in half a month's pay. Did he now? Then on principle, I suppose I ought to tell him to stuff it back up the jets. But you can't buy no drinking whiskey on principle. I'll take it. Here you are. Uh, I'll get it. Uh, I'll be seeing you recently. Sure, Jimmy Lee. Sure. Come on, Hertzman. Let's get that drink. That was all. Just another space bum who didn't have the good sense to finish before his luck ran out. Well, Riesling holed up at the Twin Moons till his money was gone. Then he hooked a ride on a crawler over to Marsopolis. It was a boom town then, with an industrial district mushrooming between the Lesser and Grand Canals. I ran into Riesling about two months later, playing his guitar on a jetty that ran out into the canal. He had a dirty rag tied over his eyes, with a jetman's knot, and 
and his hat was on the wharf beside him. Priestley! Who's that? Wait a minute. Hertzman. Yeah, how have you been? Passable. Gee, is this a Venusian dime? Ah, it's a slug. <laughs> I figured. Well, how's it going? Singing again? Some. Work in saloons, mostly. But I've been thinking some funny songs, Hertzman. The words come out different than they used to. Come on along the canal with me. Sure. Uh, here, take my arm. I know the way. That's a funny thing, Hertzman. I figure I know it better than other folks. Look back there, t- towards the city. What do you see? Factory towers. Ah, smell them from here. But it don't seem that way to me. I remember them old buildings. Old before Bible times on Earth. Thin and graceful like... The fairy palaces my Grammy used to tell about down home in the hills. They've torn them down now, or else blocked them up with cinder bricks. Hertzman, when I stand out out here on the canal, I can see it the way it used to be. The water, ice blue with the stars shining up out of it. Way off there, the city with the towers sweeping up like a bird of flying off a tree. I can see it. It's the dirtiest stinkhole in the system. Not always. Depends on how you see it. Bone tie the race that raised the towers Forgotten are their lords Long gone the gods who shed the tears That laugh these crystal shores Slow you go home, Riesling. Home? Earth. I've been thinking about that, Hertzman. When I was a youngster down in the Ozarks, I used to climb a big old oak tree my daddy had in the dooryard. You could see the hills for miles, green and cool. I've been thinking about that. Why don't you go back then? I couldn't see them hills no more now. I couldn't stand to see black when I knew they was lying all around me, cool and green in the sun. I couldn't stand that. Yeah. Well, let's get back to town, Hertzman. Today I made three and a half dollars mush, and I'm all set to drink it down before dawn. Come on! I lost track of Riesling after that. I shipped out on a slow freight of the Condor class for Luna, and he hitchhiked a ride to Venusburg on an ore ship in the Triplanet run. So he beat around the system. Venusburg to Layport to Drywater to New Shanghai and back. Any spaceport was his home, and no skipper had refused to lift the extra mass of Riesling and his battered guitar. He made up his songs, sitting out watches down in the power room with old shipmates, while the monotonous speed of the jet shook the hull plates. Hear the jet. Hear the jet. Hear the jet. 
Hear them snarl at your back when you're stretched on the rack. Hear the Jets. Feel the pain in your ship. Feel the strain in your grip. Hear the Jets. Feel her rise, feel her drive, strand steel come alive on her Jets. Little by little, his songs began to travel along the spaceways ahead of him. Raw spaceman songs with titles like Since the Pusher Met My Cousin and The Space Suit Built for Two. But more and more, we began to hear a different kind of song. Strange, sad songs. The ones you find printed in the centennial editions. Dark Star Passing. Death Song of a Woods Cove. And then, finally, The Green Hills of Earth. It grew for 20 years, that song. They say it started way back when Riesling was down in the labor camps on Venus, singing for the indentured man. Now, if someone will kindly pass a bottle. Oh, it is not much, Riesling. Here. It'll do. <laughs> yeah, what is that stuff? Tequila. You cannot make him good here on Venus. What do you use? Karak bush. A home it is... Home, it is different. Where are you from, son? Tasco, Mexico. It's a long way from here. See, si, a long way. <laughs> How'd you come to sign on? The man comes out of the village from the city in the shining automobile. Very big. He says there is work. You sign the paper for ten years and you work. Yeah, work. There is work here, all right. Ten stinking hours in the jungle with machete. I tell you, when I get home to Earth... What will you do, son? Ah, what is the use? We aren't getting home. You know how many men die out there in the swamp today? Ten men, ten! What is the use? My mother, she's dead. My father don't care. A girl? Oh, she, she says she wait. I, I, I don't know. Sure, son. You, uh, you sing some more, Easton. We drink, you sing. Maybe a new song, son. We ride in the molds of Venus. We regurgitated bread. Foul are her flooded jungles are crawling with unclean dead. Let the... What is the matter? Finish the song, Riesling. I can't. Can't yet. It just don't come. I'll finish it when I go home. That's it. When I go home to the hills. Now pass that bottle. The dawn whistle don't blow for four hours. That's where the Green Hill started. And I was there when it was finished. It was 20 years after that. And there wasn't a man flying or on the beach hadn't heard of Riesling and his songs. He was getting old now for a spaceman. He was a familiar figure through the whole system. Tall, gaunt, and with that dirty bandage tied across his blind eyes. I was chief jetman then on the old Falcon. We were cradled at Venus Alice Isle, scheduled for a direct jump to Great Lakes, Illinois, on Earth. I was checking in Dunnage when Riesling felt his way up the gangway and came through the lock. Riesling! Who's that? Mike Hertzman! 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 Well, what are you doing on this old hog? I figured I'd ride her back to Earth. Earth? Are you going home, Riesling? 
I thought you were never going to make that run. They've been hankering to set foot in the Ozarks again. How about those hills? I've been singing about them so long now, Hertzman. I got to finish the song. I got to set foot in the dooryard and hear the wind through that oak tree. About the last thing I'll be doing, I got to get home before... Riesling has a new company policy. You see, Hertzman, I'm getting just a little old. Riesling, listen. No more deadhead rides. The new code book is enforced. Oh, I seen code books come and go. The skipper's one of them youngsters fresh out of Harriman Institute cadet training. He's liable to throw the book at you. At me? I've been around space as long as Halley's Comet and Brewster's Ridge. I'm going back to Earth, the cool green hills of Earth. I'm going home. All secured, Hertzman. What are you doing here? That's Riesling, Captain. Riesling, huh? I'm dragging it back to Earth, Captain. Not in this ship. Hertzman have his man removed. Funny thing, Captain, I, I sprained my shoulder sudden. Look, Skipper, you're a youngster. You're, you're pretty new out here. I'm going home. You don't know what that means to an old man, going home. I can't take you. Against the Harriman Code. Oh, now look, Skipper, you can slide me by to the distressed spaceman's clause in that code book. Distressed spaceman, my eye. You've been bumming around the system for 30 years. Skipper, you make me do something I've never done for no one before. I'm an old man, an old blind man, and I want to go home. I ain't never crawled in front of a four-striper in my life, but you got to let me drag home. The law says a man's got a trip coming to him. You can stretch for a poor old blind man, now, can't you? You got it, Skipper. All right, you old space rat, but keep out of the way. I run an efficient ship, and I don't want any trouble. No, sir, no, sir, no trouble. I'll just lay down to the power room. Kind of like to be near the jets when they blast off for Earth. Sit down, Riesling. Take a load off your feet. Thanks, Mick. Stand by for lift. Stand by. Best seat in the system. Power room and an old hawk glass ship. Power room, fire three. I see. <laughs> Green hills of Earth. You still singing that recently? Oh, some. I changed her a little. Gonna finish her now, Mac. Going home to finish her. Yeah. Have you seen those new uh, automatic dampers, Riesling? Don't have to do nothing but sit and watch. Hey, where, where's the peeper? Turned off. She's all automatic. And you have it soft nowadays. When I was twisting her tail, you had to stay awake. You got an old hand damping plates on? All but the links. Iron ship them. They cover up the dials. You might need them. No, the automatic's handled. Finally going home, Riesley, huh? Won't seem the same out past the moon. I've been waiting for this a long time, man. Gonna be good to get home, I reckon. The arching sky is calling spacemen back. Mac! Hey, Mac, you all right? I, I, I got the emergency. The hand dampers, where are the links? Somebody's got a damper. Riesling, I'm sending in a crew. No, 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 no use. The whole room will be hot. 
and the other jets won't hold. Skipper, throw on the recording tape. What? Throw on the recording tape. I want to get something down. Tape's on, Riesling. Stop it, Riesling. The radiation will burn you down. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, pretty soft sunburn. Pick me out of here with a dog. Bury me in a lead shield coffin. Okay, Skipper. She's clean. Radiation's getting brighter. I can almost see bright, rosy like the sun. Like the sun over the hills down home. I got my song figured right now. Here it comes. We pray for one last landing on the globe that gave us birth. Let us rest our eyes on the fleecy skies of the cool green hills of earth. I can see him now. The hills. The sun. I can see the sun. That's the way he died. Riesling. A blind singer of the spaceways, singing of the home he never reached, the cool green hills of Earth. at this same time next week for another adventure into the unknown world of Dimension Quiet, please. Quiet, please. American Broadcasting Company presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for today is called One for the Book. Once upon a time when there were more lieutenants than lieutenant colonels in the Air Force, and when you could tell a cadet by his blue suit like a mailman's, a thing happened. And if you think the boys from the bright blue yonder got snafu'd sometime in this last war, brother, I'm here to tell you you ain't seen nothing yet. Because this was the largest, the most comprehensive, the doggondest. Well, I have to tell you. And the thing about it is, this snafu isn't over yet. It won't be over for nine years. Listen, I'll tell you. Ever hear of Muroc Dry Lake? Well, you go out San Fernando Road and you turn off at Fremont Pass onto 6 instead of going up over the ridge route. You go up through Mid Canyon, see, and on through Palmdale and Lancaster. Then you take a road off to the right by the SP station. After about 40 miles of Joshua Trees, you get to Muroc, and a big, tough MP tells you, turn around and go back where you came from. Because that's where they got the jets. 
Our guys are ringing them out so fast they sometimes get where they're going before they've started. And they tore up the welcome mat a long time ago. But back in the early part of 1937, well, it was kind of different. Muroc, which incidentally is not an Indian name, it's just the name Coram spelled backwards like on the radio. Coram Brothers was ranchers that owned a joint. And it's just what you think it is, the bottom of an old dried up lake. It's flat as a billiard table. Flatter than the one in the officer's club at Maxwell. And back in those days, you could take your car out in the middle and open her up to 80 and sit back and watch. Look, Mama, no hands. Which was quite a lot of fun, though. Some newspaper guy blew a tire and did 108 snap rolls with it. With the customary results. Well, it ain't like that today. I mean, the lake's still there, but it isn't a lonesome place anymore. The lobo wolves and the coyotes and the rattlesnakes and the roadrunners have scrammed. They got an installation there that... Well, never mind. You're not going to see it, but it's a biggie. And the lake itself is about the biggest landing field in the world. You could set down anywhere, practically. Well, the Air Corps decided back in 1937 to have them a big air maneuvers there at Muroc. So in came about everything they had that could fly. Martin B-10Bs from Langley, P-26s from Selvage and Maxwell Randolph. And a bunch of skinny blue things they called PB-2As that came from... I don't have any idea. And over at Marchfield at Riverside, they had a flock of A-17s, attack jobs, two-seaters at Northrop made. They had holes in their flaps, I remember. First ones to have holes in their flaps. And there was a lot of other miscellaneous stuff. It was quite colorful. P-26s painted O.D. The bombers black and yellow. They all had yellow wings. The PB-2As were blue and the A-17s shiny Doral. Everybody had the red and white stripes on the rudder and the big old white star and the blue circle on the wings. All 300 of them. All we had, practically, in 1937. And anti-aircraft. Complete with the 1937 version of radar. A cluster of big horns on a trailer with a guy wearing earphones in the middle of them. You couldn't spit half a mile away if the horns was pointed at you on account of you bust the guy's eardrum. And there was a bunch of movie guys taking pictures. They had plenty of expense money. He didn't shoot crap so good. So, one way and another, it was quite a thing. And, brother, it was hot. That still is. It'd get down to 40 or 50 in the early morning, and by noon it was up to 115 with the sun bouncing off that white lake bottom and mirages everywhere you looked. Well, I was a crew chief in a P-26 squadron from Selbridge, see? Oh, excuse me, I didn't introduce myself. Westlake's my name. Max Westlake, Captain USAF. I was a staff sergeant in 1937. Up there at Muroc, I got acquainted with a guy. Of all things, a sergeant in an anti-aircraft outfit named Bill Carrant. And I remember how this snafu started. Bill and I were sitting in a bar in Lancaster one Saturday, drinking beer listening to Pancho Barnes, God rest her soul, telling about buzzing a church steeple in Long Beach and a Jenny. And a couple of elements of B-10Bs went over. Bill Carrant, he said he'd buy another beer. I'll buy another beer, Max. Uh, I'm going out and sit on the porch and read. Read? What do you want to read for when you can drink beer? Free beer. Well, I found a couple of magazines. Let's see. Uh, go on, drink your beer. Super Science Stories. Miraculous stories. You like that kind of junk? Well, what if I do? A lot of hooey. 
No, they're not. Guys flying rockets and taking off for the moon and malarkey like that. Yeah? Listen, in 20 years, the stuff in these books will be ancient history. What do you mean? In 20 years, people will be flying rockets. In 20 years, they'll be writing the same kind of guck, and people will be flying old-fashioned airplanes, bud, and we'll be shooting them down. You wait and see. Yeah. In another 20 years, airplanes, rocket planes will be going so fast you won't be able to see them, much less shoot them down. How fast? Couple thousand miles an hour. A guy couldn't fly that fast. Why couldn't he? Well, he'd he'd outrun himself. <laughs> he'd come in for a landing, and fifteen minutes later, you'd hear him. You can fly as fast as sound. You're nuts. Well, a bullet flies faster than sound. But there ain't anybody riding it. Yeah, they get a big enough bullet, somebody'll ride it. Bring me another beer. They get me one, I'll fly it. You'd feel pretty funny starting out someplace on Saturday and getting there on Friday afternoon. Yeah, well, listen, it'll happen. In them magazines. These magazines told a lot of things that have come true, Bill. For instance? Well, I couldn't give you an instance right now, but they have. <laughs> I'll take beer. Yeah, you watch and see. One of these days, I'll come bouncing in someplace in one of these rocket jobs, and you'll be right... I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll kiss your foot at high noon right in front of everybody. Now, you want a beer? You're going to sit there reading about buzzing the man in the moon in a skyrocket. Or what? I did both. Then we bummed a ride back to the lake after a while, and I went to bed. Bill Carrant was pretty disgusted when he got there and found out he had to stand guard because the sergeant that was supposed to be had broke out with the measles. And he put on his overcoat and stopped by my tent for a cigarette before he went out where it was cold. We talked, and he left, and I went to sleep. Well, I woke up in the middle of the night, see. I couldn't get back to sleep. So I got up and put on my pants and shoes and a flying jacket. I went out to the anti-aircraft battery. I said, hey, Carrant. Hey, Bill Carrant. Who's that? Me. Westlake, Max Westlake. What are you doing up? I couldn't sleep. Well, I wish I could. I'm about froze. How much longer you got? Oh, half an hour. Wouldn't have a bottle, would you? Oh, I'm sorry. <sighs> Gee. Pretty night, ain't it? I'll give it to you. Mm. Millions of stars. Yeah. Ever fly at night, Bill? And I ain't going to. I ain't going to fly at all. That's well up there with the stars. I'll stay here. I wonder what's up there. I got no curiosity at all. Yeah. I'm going to find out some one day. In your skyrocket? Oh, probably not. What was that? Search me. Sounded like it came from up there. Probably one of your skyrockets. Well, I don't think there's anybody up tonight. I don't see anything. I wonder what it... Hey. What? Look up there. Where? Right there, by the Big Dipper. What is it? I don't see anything. Hey, you know what that is? That's a parachute. Say, that's what it is. Only that's the biggest. 
parachute. There goes a searchlight. They saw it over at A Battery. Gosh, that is a big one. Yeah. Wonder who it is. That's a funny looking thing. Looks like a box or something. It looks like part of an airplane. There goes a crash truck. I didn't see any airplane, Bill. Maybe it was one of your skyrockets. Shut up. Give me your field glasses. He's gonna hit awful hard. Give me the glasses. Oh, oh he sure did. Yeah, that's part of an airplane, Bill. They're pulling a guy out of it. In some kind of funny suit. Why? Poop and fish? It's, a, it's kind of like a diver's suit. Kind of like a, a space flyer's suit. I know where he came from. Where? He bailed out of Goofy Stories magazine. I handed back the glasses to Bill Carrot and I walked over to the infirmary. That's where they'd take whoever he was, I figured. And in a minute, the crash wagon came back and they carried the fellow in. I sat there a minute to talk to Daniel Webster, the medic that had the duty. They were fussing around with the fellow inside the ward, the doc and everybody. I sat there talking. There was a piece of metal lying on a stretcher that one of the medics had picked up where the thing crashed. I looked at it. U.S. Air Force, it was stenciled on it. U.S. Air Force and a number and XF-131. What's XF-131 mean, I said. Why, I said to myself, U.S. Air Force. This is the Army Air Corps. What's the U.S. Air Force? Something new? And what's XF-131? I know what a P-26 is and a PB-2A and a B-10B, but what's an XF-131? And then the doctor called me and I stood up surprised. Sergeant Westlake, come in here. Sir? I said come in here. Yes, sir. In here. Yes, sir. Ever see that man before? Why, no, sir. Sure? Well, he looks kind of familiar, but is he a... Uh, uh... He's got a slight concussion, and I've given him a shot. Who is he, sir? Is he from here? You don't know him? I know, sir, but I... He sure looks familiar, but... What's your first name, Sergeant? Sir? Your first name. Oh, Max. Yeah. What's the matter, sir? Sergeant, that man's name is Max Westlake, too. Huh? Only he's a major in the United States Air Force. What do you make of that, Sergeant? Hey? Huh? What would you have made of it? I looked at the guy more carefully. And then I saw why he looked familiar. I'd seen that puss in the mirror every morning for 22 years. There was the scar on the eyebrow where I drove the car into the lamppost. Only it was on the wrong eyebrow. Then I remembered I wasn't looking into a mirror. I said, Doc, I don't get it. He said, don't you? And I said, well, sir. So I went out. And just as I was going out at the tent, in walks Bill Carrant. And I must have looked funny because Bill grabbed me by the arm. What's the matter with you, Max? Huh? 
You look as if you... Uh, wait a minute, Bill. I think I've got something figured out. What are you doing for the love of... I'm taking off my shoes, Sergeant Garrett. What for? Well, not exactly high noon, Sergeant. But you're going to kiss my foot just the same. Huh? That's right. Why? Because, but... Sergeant Garrett, that guy in there, that that guy that flew in here in a skyrocket, that major in there, is me. And so the snafu began. I got called over to the colonel's tent right after breakfast. He was sitting there with the doctor. They looked up when I get my heels pretty close together and placed my hand, fingers extended and joined against my right eyebrow. Sit down, Sergeant. Yes, sir. Uh, the doctor tells me this fellow who bailed out last night has the same name you have. Yes, sir. Looks a lot like you, too, Sergeant. You know him, Sergeant? Yes, sir. Said last night you didn't. Well, I got it all straightened out in my mind now, sir. Well? He's me, sir. Sergeant, have you lost your buttons? No, sir, I don't think so, sir. Say that again, Sergeant. Sir, I said, no, I don't think so. No, what you said before. Oh. He's me, sir. Cross your knees, Sergeant. Sir? Cross your knees. Yes, sir. Ow! Reflexes are all right. Sergeant, do you mind explaining what you're trying to give us? I've got a tactical program on this morning, and I... Go ahead, Sergeant. Well, sir, it's perfectly simple. Aviation is progressing, sir. So what? Well, sir, it's perfectly simple. This Major Westlake, who is me, <laughs> flew in in something like a rocket plane or something quite a long time in the future. You understand, sir? Go ahead, Sergeant. And he flew so fast, he... Well, he just got here before he started, sir. Sergeant. Sir? Nothing. Go on. Well, sir, that... that's all there is. Sometime I'll be a major, like he is. I mean, like I am... No, no, what do I mean? I mean, if he's me, I'm a major. But I'm still a sergeant. I mean, I'll be a major, and I'll take off, and when I get here... I mean, when I got here, I'm still a sergeant. Sergeant, please. My head hurts. I'm sorry, sir, but that's what happened, sir. Somebody around here is crazy. Oh, no, sir, not me. Uh, let's try that again, shall we? What, sir? Your theory. I just want to be sure I'm not hearing things, Doctor. Well, if you're hearing them, so am I. Go on, son. Well, sir... Some day in the future, I'm going to be a major. You're not if... Well, never mind. Yes, sir. So, someday I'm going to be a major, see, and I'm going to fly a rocket plane or something. How do you know all this, Sergeant? You got a crystal ball? No, sir. It's obvious, ain't it, sir? Not to me. You, Doctor? Well, you're going to be a major, sir. Yes, sir. Well, I must be. I'm over there in the tent, ain't I, Doctor? Uh-huh. And I'm a major, ain't I? You see? Sir? Uh-huh. And someday when I'm a major, sir, I'm going to get into this rocket plane, see, and... Boom! I'm going to take off and I'm going to go so fast that... Gosh, I sure must have been rolling last night. Sergeant, you must want to get out of the Army awful bad. Sir, me? Well, no, sir, I don't want to get out of the Army. Well, 
What makes the colonel think that? Well, if I ever heard of anybody asking for a transfer to the loony bin, this is it. Sir, I assure the colonel I am not nuts. Well, then, why the dickens are you telling me all this? Sir, the colonel asked me. Okay. Go on. You were taking off in a rocket ship. Or something like that, sir. Like I said, I go so fast that I just run out of time and I landed last night. You believe that, Sergeant? Yes, sir. Um, where did you, uh, I mean, how did you fall on this this theory? Well, sir, I read science fiction magazines and... Ah, you do. And I just deduced it. Oh. Sir, rocket travel is perfectly possible. Mm Mm-hmm. It's an interesting theory. Doctor, are you nuts, too? I'm really not sure, Colonel. Well, what are you talking about, then? I was just looking at this identification card I took out of the, uh, Major Westlake's pocket. What about it? It's, uh, dated November 24th, 1951. Fifteen years from now. Snafu and snafu and snafu. The colonel... We didn't have any guardhouse or anything. He confined me to my tent. That is, he confined Sergeant Max Westlake to my tent. Major Max Westlake was still out like a light. He he couldn't talk. And me, I didn't have anybody to talk to, but I thought. And the harder I thought, the surer I was I was right. And the second day I was in there, the colonel came to my tent and he looked about 18 years older. I stood up. Rest, Sergeant. Now, listen, I had the doctor take that, uh, that major's fingerprints. And I flew them to Washington to be looked up in the big file. Yes, sir. The dope came back this morning. Yes, sir. I'll read you what they say. Uh, the subject fingerprints are those of Staff Sergeant Max Westlake, and so forth and so forth. There is no record of a major Max Westlake in the Army Air Corps. By direction, so forth and so forth. Oh, yes, sir, that's the way I figured it. Westlake, if you're running a Sandy on me... Not yeah. running a Sandy, sir. Come with me. Where are we going, sir? Right into the infirmary tent. Yes, sir. Now then, you sit here behind this canvas wall and you listen to that fellow talk. And don't say a word. Just nod your head if he's right, or shake it if he's wrong. Hear me? Yes, sir. All right. Listen. Major, where did you come from? Here at Murat, sir. What outfit are you with? I'm chief test pilot here. I see. And what happened, do you know? Yes, sir. I was flying an XF-131. That's the newest experimental rocket job at the speed of about max seven. Uh, what, what are you talking seven, about? Sir, seven times the speed of sound. Uh, what the? See. Suddenly, the, the needle flew way over beyond the mark. I got scared, pushed the automatic cockpit release, and bailed out. And uh, how fast do you think you were going then? Well, I should say about... Twelve times the speed of sound? I see. 
And uh, what was the date of your takeoff, Major? Why, December 21st, 1957. Now, look here. You see? You, you, you see, Colonel? You see? Snafu. Wow. Tarfu. Fubar. The Army never saw one like this before. They sent us to the general. Yeah, sit down, gentlemen. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, Westlake? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Your brothers? No, sir. No, sir. Now, just a minute. Uh, uh, just a minute, I mean. Uh, Westlake? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Stop. Yes, sir. <clears throat> yes, sir. Sergeant Westlake? Yes, sir. Who is this Major Westlake? He's me, sir. Sergeant, I... We can't prove otherwise, General. That will do, Colonel. Yes, sir. Now, Major Westlake, who is this sergeant? Sir, I don't know. Well, isn't he your brother? No, sir. Well, who is he then? Answer me. Sir, I think he's me. Doctor, are these men crazy? Not as far as I can tell, sir. Well, what ails them then? Sir, I just work here. Well, now... <laughs> Major, how come I don't know you? Well, that I couldn't say, sir. Uh, I don't know the general either. Young man, I have been in the Army 28 years. Yes, sir. At 29. I was at Bliss with Lord George Langren when he had the 8th Cavalry. Yes, sir. And I know thousands of officers in the Army. Yes, sir. But I don't know you. No, sir. Young man... Do you know the penalty for impersonating an officer? Sir, I'm not impersonating an officer. Here's his identification card, General. <laughs> Is that your picture, Major? Yes, sir. And doesn't look like you. Well, sir, these pictures never look like the people. Oh, that's right. Mine looks like a... Well, it seems to be an order, all right. It is, sir. I know that. Are those your fingerprints? Yes, sir. They're the sergeants, Washington says, General. Now, now, how could that be? Well, sir, they have to be me. Uh, he's me. I, I mean, I'm... The, I'm us, I mean, sir. Uh, Colonel, has this man ever demonstrated... Uh, uh, has he... Uh, has he... Uh, I mean, has he ever had attacks before? No, sir. He's always been rational, sir. He's one of my best men. He's rational now, General. That is, I think he is. Kind of, I mean. Uh, sergeant? Do you know that a board may be convened and that they're liable to throw you right out of the army? Sir, I'm not worried about that. Oh, you're not, huh? Why not? Because they can't, sir. I, I have to stay in. Kindly tell me why. Because, well, don't you see, sir, I'm going to be a major and I'm going to fly a rocket plane. The XF-131. What makes you think so? Well, I'm here, sir, after all. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to solve this problem once and for all in a military manner. Major Westlake, you are subject to orders, aren't you? Yes, sir, of course. And I want this to be a lesson to you other officers, too. You gentlemen are expected to use your intelligence and initiative and not come bothering me with all sorts of details that could just as well be handled in your own ballywicks. You understand me? Yes, sir. Silence! That is a very simple way to solve this problem, as I said. Major Westlake, you are ordered to return to your base. Sir, I'm at my base. I'm stationed at Muroc Dry Lake. This is Muroc Dry Lake, sir. Well, how did you get here? I flew, sir. Uh, oh, but how did you... 
I mean, how did you get here, now? Sir, I just flew so fast I got here before I started. I didn't ask you, Sergeant. That's right, sir. I flew so fast I got here before I started. Doctor, do you have an aspirin on you? See who that is. Yes, sir. Sir, I found something I thought might be important. Who are you? Sergeant William Terrence, sir. I'm sergeant of the guard today. Now, what have you got there, Sergeant? I don't know what it is, sir, but I found it out there where... Where the Major landed. Uh, Major Westlake? Yes, sir. Well, let's see it. Let's see it, Sergeant. I never saw anything like it before, sir, and I thought I'd better bring it to the General. May I see that, please? Well, it's my Mac meter, sir. Your what? Mac meter, sir, an instrument that measures speed. Sergeant Westlake, please. Excuse me, sir. That's what it is, General. It measures speed in terms of the speed of sound. Mac 1 is sound speed. Mac 2 is twice the speed of sound. Now, let's see it. Hmm. Very curious. Yes, very, very curious. All of a sudden, it got jammed, General. You see the needle is jammed way over here on the pin? It indicated probably 12 times the speed of sound, and that was awful fast, so I bailed out. Uh, see if I can't unjam the needle. Uh, there's a ratchet underneath, sir. Oh, oh I see. Uh, hmm. <laughs> it's like a speedometer, isn't it? It turns hard. Ah, oh, there. Hey. Where did Major Westlake go? Why, he was right here. I saw I him. I seen him, sir. I was looking right at him. When you turned the, the thing meter back, he just turned all transparent, and then he disappeared. What? Sir, I think the general just unscrewed him right back where he came from. That was it. The general turned the Mac meter backward, and that's all. But I'd like to never get out of all that snafu. Well, I'm a captain now, and it's only nine more years, and I'll be a major. And I'll fly an XF-131 here at Muroc, and my Mac meter will go haywire, and... My gosh, have I... Have I got to go through all that again? The title of today's Quiet Please story is One for the Book. It was written and directed by Willis Cooper, and the man who spoke to you was Ernest Chappell. And Dan Sutter played Sergeant Carrant. Melville Ruick was a colonel. The doctor was played by Charles Eggleston. General, Lloyd Buckley. As for Major Westlake, well, we leave that for a guess. As usual, music for Quiet Please is played by Albert Berman. Now, for a word about next week, here is our writer-director, Willis Cooper. Thank you for listening to Quiet, please. My story for next week is called My Son John. And so, until next week at the same time, I am quietly yours, Ernest Chappell. And now, a listening reminder. There's an exciting story waiting for you this afternoon on David Harding Counterspy. See what happens when a flood of counterfeit currency threatens to disrupt the entire financial structure of a South American country, and the counterspies are called in to investigate. Tune in David Harding Counterspy on your ABC station. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. <laughs>